Chapter 14 Labor Productivity, Wages, and Unemployment Planning for Freedom and 16 Other Essays and Addresses Wages, Unemployment, and Inflation Our economic system, the market economy or capitalism, is a system of consumer supremacy. The customer is sovereign. He is, says a popular slogan, always right. Businessmen are under the necessity of turning out what the consumers ask for, and they must sell their wares at prices which the consumers can afford and are prepared to pay. A business operation is a manifest failure if the proceeds from the sales do not reimburse the businessman for all he has expended in producing the article. Thus, the consumers in buying at a definite price determine also the height of the wages that are paid to all those engaged in the industries. Number 1. Wages Ultimately Paid by the Consumers It follows that an employer cannot pay more to an employee than the equivalent of the value the latter's work, according to the judgment of the buying public, adds to the merchandise. This is the reason why the movie star gets much more than the charwoman. If he were to pay more, he would not recover his outlays from the purchasers. He would suffer losses and would finally go bankrupt. In paying wages, the employer acts as a mandatory of the consumers, as it were. It is upon the consumers that the incidence of the wage payment falls. As the immense majority of the goods produced are bought and consumed by people who are themselves receiving wages and salaries, it is obvious that in spending their earnings, the wage earners and employees themselves are foremost in determining the height of the compensation they and those like them will get. Number 2. What Makes Wages Rise the buyers do not pay for the toil and trouble the worker took, nor for the length of time he spent in working. They pay for the products. The better the tools are which the worker uses in his job, the more he can perform in an hour, the higher is consequently his remuneration. What makes wages rise and renders the material conditions of the wage earners more satisfactory is improvement in the technological equipment. American wages are higher than wages in other countries because the capital invested per head of the worker is greater and the plants are thereby in the position to use the most efficient tools and machines. What is called the American way of life is the result of the fact that the United States has put fewer obstacles in the way of saving and capital accumulation than other nations. The economic backwardness of such countries as India consists precisely in the fact that their policies hinder both the accumulation of domestic capital and the investment of foreign capital. As the capital required is lacking, the Indian enterprises are prevented from employing sufficient quantities of modern equipment, are therefore producing much less per man hour, and can only afford to pay wage rates, which compared with American wage rates appear as shockingly low. There is only one way that leads to an improvement of the standard of living for the wage-earning masses, vis-a-vis -vis the increase in the amount of capital invested. All other methods, however popular they may be, are not only futile, but are actually detrimental to the well-being of those they allegedly want to benefit. Number 3. What Causes Unemployment? The fundamental question is, is it possible to raise wage rates for all those eager to find jobs, above the height they would have attained on an unhampered labor market. Public opinion believes that the improvement in the conditions of the wage earners is an achievement of the unions and of various legislative measures. It gives to unionism and to legislation credit for the rise in wage rates, the shortening of hours of work, the disappearance of child labor, and many other things. The prevalence of this belief made unionism popular, 
and is responsible for the trend in labor legislation of the last two decades. As people think that they owe to unionism their high standard of living, they condone violence, coercion, and intimidation on the part of unionized labor and are indifferent to the curtailment of personal freedom inherent in the union shop and closed shop clauses. As long as these fallacies prevail upon the minds of the voters, it is vain to expect a resolute departure from the policies that are mistakenly called progressive. Yet this popular doctrine misconstrues every aspect of economic reality. The height of wage rates at which all those eager to get jobs can be employed depends on the marginal productivity of labor. The more capital, other things being equal, is invested, the higher wages climb on the free labor market, i.e. on the labor market not manipulated by the government and the unions. At these market wage rates, all those eager to employ workers can hire as many as they want. At these market wage rates, all those who want to be employed can get a job. There prevails on a free labor market a tendency toward full employment. In fact, the policy of letting the free market determine the height of wage rates is the only reasonable and successful full employment policy. If wage rates, either by union pressure and compulsion or by government decree, are raised above this height, lasting unemployment of a part of the potential labor force develops. Number 4. Credit Expansion – No Substitute for Capital these opinions are passionately rejected by the union bosses and their followers among politicians and the self-styled intellectuals. The panacea they recommend to fight unemployment is credit expansion and inflation, euphemistically called an easy money policy. As has been pointed out above, an addition to the available stock of capital previously accumulated makes a further improvement of the industry's technological equipment possible thus raises the marginal productivity of labor and consequently also wage rates. But credit expansion, whether it is affected by issuing additional banknotes or by granting additional credit on bank accounts subject to check, does not add anything to the nation's wealth of capital goods. It merely creates the illusion of an increase in the amount of funds available for an expansion of production. Because they can obtain cheaper credit, people erroneously believe that the country's wealth has thereby been increased and that therefore certain projects that could not be executed before are now feasible. The inauguration of these projects enhances the demand for labor and for raw materials and makes wage rates and commodity prices rise. An artificial boom is kindled. Under the conditions of this boom, nominal wage rates which before the credit expansion were too high for the state of the market and therefore created unemployment of a part of the potential labor force, are no longer too high, and the unemployed can get jobs again. However, this happens only because under the changed monetary and credit conditions, prices are rising, or, what is the same expressed in other words, the purchasing power of the monetary unit drops. Then, the same amount of nominal wages, i.e. wage rates expressed in terms of money, mean less in real wages i.e. in terms of commodities, that can be bought by the monetary unit. Inflation can cure unemployment only by curtailing the wage earners' real wages. But then, the unions ask for a new increase in wages in order to keep pace with the rising cost of living, and we are back where we were before, i.e. in a situation in which large-scale unemployment can only be prevented by a further expansion of credit. This is what happened in this country as well as in many other countries in the last years. The unions, supported by the government, forced the enterprises to agree to wage rates that went beyond the potential market rates, 
i.e. the rates which the public was prepared to refund to the employers in purchasing their products. This would have inevitably resulted in rising unemployment figures. But the government policies tried to prevent the emergence of serious unemployment by credit expansion, i.e. inflation. The outcome was rising prices, renewed demands for higher wages, and reiterated credit expansion. In short, protracted inflation. Number 5. Inflation cannot go on endlessly. But finally, the authorities become frightened. They know that inflation cannot go on endlessly. If one does not stop in time the pernicious policy of increasing the quantity of money and fiduciary media, the nation's currency system collapses entirely. The monetary unit's purchasing power sinks to a point which, for all practical purposes, is not better than zero. This happened again and again in this country with the continental currency in 1781, in France in 1796, in Germany in 1923. It is never too early for a nation to realize that inflation cannot be considered as a way of life and that it is imperative to return to sound monetary policies. In recognition of these facts, the administration and the Federal Reserve Authority some time ago discontinued the policy of progressive credit expansion. It is not the task of this short article to deal with all the consequences which the termination of inflationary measures brings about. We have only to establish the fact that the return to monetary stability does not generate a crisis. It only brings to light the malinvestments and other mistakes that were made under the hallucination of the illusory prosperity created by the easy money. People become aware of the faults committed and, no longer blinded by the phantom of cheap credit, begin to readjust their activities to the real state of the supply of material factors of production. It is this, certainly painful but unavoidable, readjustment that constitutes the Depression. Number 6. The Policy of the Unions One of the unpleasant features of this process of discarding chimeras and returning to a sober estimate of reality concerns the height of wage rates. Under the impact of the progressive inflationary policy, the union bureaucracy acquired the habit of asking at regular intervals for wage raises, and business after some sham resistance yielded. As a result, these rates were at the moment too high for the state of the market and would have brought about a conspicuous amount of unemployment. But the ceaselessly progressive inflation very soon caught up with them. Then the unions asked again for new raises and so on. Number 7. The Purchasing Power Argument It does not matter what kind of justification the unions and their henchmen advance in favor of their claims. The unavoidable effects of forcing the employers to remunerate work, done at higher rates than those the consumers are willing to restore to them in buying the products, are always the same, rising unemployment figures. At the present juncture, the unions try to take up the old, a hundred times refuted, purchasing power fable. They declare that putting more money into the hands of the wage earners, by raising wage rates, by increasing the benefits to the unemployed, and by embarking upon new public works, would enable the workers to spend more and thereby stimulate business and lead the economy out of the recession into prosperity. This is the spurious, pro-inflation argument to make all people happy through printing paper bills. Of course, if the quantity of the circulating media is increased, those into whose pockets the new fictitious wealth comes, whether they are workers or farmers or any other kind of people, will increase their spending. 
But it is precisely this increase in spending that inevitably brings about a general tendency of all prices to rise, or, what is the same expressed in a different way, a drop in the monetary unit's purchasing power. Thus, the help that an inflationary action could give to the wage earners is only of a short duration. To perpetuate it, one would have to resort again and again to new inflationary measures. It is clear that this leads to disaster. Number 8. Wage Raises, as such, not inflationary. There is a lot of nonsense said about these things. Some people assert that wage raises are inflationary, but they are not in themselves inflationary. Nothing is inflationary except inflation, i.e. an increase in the quantity of money in circulation and credit subject to check, checkbook money. And under present conditions, nobody but the government can bring an inflation into being. What the unions can generate by forcing the employers to accept wage rates higher than the potential market rates is not inflation and not higher commodity prices, but unemployment of a part of the people anxious to get a job. Inflation is a policy to which the government resorts in order to prevent the large-scale unemployment the union's wage raising would otherwise bring about. Number 9. The Dilemma of Present-Day Policies The dilemma which this country, and no less many other countries, has to face is very serious. The extremely popular method of raising wage rates above the height the unhampered labor market would have established would produce catastrophic mass unemployment if inflationary credit expansion were not to rescue it. But inflation has not only very pernicious social effects. It cannot go on endlessly without resulting in the complete breakdown of the whole monetary system. Public opinion, entirely under the sway of the fallacious labor union doctrines, sympathizes more or less with the union boss's demand for a considerable rise in wage rates. As conditions are today, the unions have the power to make the employers submit to their dictates. They can call strikes and, without being restrained by the authorities, resort with impunity to violence against those willing to work. They are aware of the fact that the enhancement of wage rates will increase the number of jobless. The only remedy they suggest is more ample funds for unemployment compensation and a more ample supply of credit, i.e. inflation. The government, meekly yielding to a misguided public opinion and worried about the outcome of the impending election campaign, has unfortunately already begun to reverse its attempts to return to a sound monetary policy. Thus, we are again committed to the pernicious methods of meddling with the supply of money. We are going on with the inflation that, with accelerated speed, makes the purchasing power of the dollar shrink. Where will it end? This is the question which Mr. Ruther and all the rest never ask. Only stupendous ignorance can call the policies adopted by the self-styled progressives pro-labor policies. The wage earner, like every other citizen, is firmly interested in the preservation of the dollar's purchasing power. If, thanks to his union, his weekly earnings are raised above the market rate, he must very soon discover that the upward movement in prices not only deprives him of the advantages he expected, but besides, makes the value of his savings, of his insurance policy, and of his pension rights dwindle. And, still worse, he may lose his job and will not find another. Number 10. Insincerity in the Fight Against Inflation all political parties and pressure groups protest that they are opposed to inflation. But what they really mean is that they do not like the unavoidable consequences of inflation, vis-a-vis -vis the rise in living costs. 
Actually, they favor all policies that necessarily bring about an increase in the quantity of the circulating media. They ask not only for an easy money policy to make the union's endless wage boosting possible, but also for more government spending and at the same time for tax abatement through raising the exemptions. Duped by the spurious Marxian concept of irreconcilable conflicts between the interests of the social classes, people assume that the interests of the property classes alone are opposed to the union's demand for higher wage rates. In fact, the wage earners are no less interested in a return to sound money than any other group or class. A lot has been said in the last months about the harm fraudulent officers have inflicted upon the union membership. But the havoc done to the workers by the union's excessive wage boosting is much more detrimental. It would be an exaggeration to contend that the tactics of the unions are the sole threat to monetary stability and to a reasonable economic policy. Organized wage earners are not the only pressure group whose claims menace today the stability of our monetary system. But they are the most powerful and most influential of these groups, and the primary responsibility rests with them. Number 11. The Importance of Sound Monetary Policies Capitalism has improved the standard of living of the wage earners to an unprecedented extent. The average American family enjoys today amenities of which, only a hundred years ago, not even the richest nabob streamed. All this well-being is conditioned by the increase in savings and capital accumulated. Without these funds that enable business to make practical use of scientific and technological progress, the American worker would not produce more and better things per hour of work than the Asiatic coolies would not earn more and would, like them, wretchedly live on the verge of starvation. All measures which, like our income and corporation tax system, aim at preventing further capital accumulation, or even at capital decumulation, are therefore virtually anti-labor and anti-social. One further observation must still be made about this matter of saving and capital formation. The improvement of well-being brought about by capitalism made it possible for the common man to save, and thus to become in a modest way himself a capitalist. A considerable part of the capital working in American business is the counterpart of the savings of the masses. Millions of wage earners own saving deposits, bonds, and insurance policies. All these claims are payable in dollars, and their worth depends on the soundness of the nation's money. To preserve the dollar's purchasing power is also, from this point of view, a vital interest of the masses. In order to attain this end, it is not enough to print upon the bank notes the noble maxim, in God we trust. One must adopt an appropriate policy. Human Action Number 3. Wages Labor is a scarce factor of production. As such, it is sold and bought on the market. The price paid for labor is included in the price allowed for the product or the services if the performer of the work is the seller of the product or the services. If bare labor is sold and bought as such, either by an entrepreneur engaged in production for sale, or by a consumer eager to use the services rendered for his own consumption, the price paid is called wages. For acting men, his own labor is not merely a factor of production, but also the source of disutility. He values it not only with regard to the immediate gratification expected, but also with regard to the disutility it causes. But for him, as for everyone, other people's labor as offered for sale on the market is nothing but a factor of production. 
Man deals with other people's labor in the same way that he deals with all scarce material factors of production. He appraises it according to the principles he applies in the appraisal of all other goods. The height of wage rates is determined on the market in the same way in which the prices of all commodities are determined. In this sense, we may say that labor is a commodity. The emotional associations which people, under the influence of Marxism, attach to this term do not matter. It suffices to observe incidentally that the employers deal with labor as they do with commodities because the conduct of the consumers forces them to proceed in this way. It is not permissible to speak of labor and wages in general without resorting to certain restrictions. A uniform type of labor or a general rate of wages do not exist. Labor is very different in quality and each kind of labor renders specific services. Each is appraised as a complementary factor for turning out definite consumers' goods and services. Between the appraisal of the performance of a surgeon and that of a stevedore, there is no direct connection. But indirectly, each sector of the labor market is connected with all other sectors. An increase in the demand for surgical services, however great, will not make stevedores flock into the practice of surgery. Yet the lines between the various sectors of the labor market are not sharply drawn. There prevails a continuous tendency for workers to shift from their branch to other similar occupations in which conditions seem to offer better opportunities. Thus, finally, every change in demand or supply in one sector affects all other sectors indirectly. All groups indirectly compete with one another. If more people enter the medical profession, men are withdrawn from kindred occupations, who again are replaced by an inflow of people from other branches and so on. In this sense, there exists a connexity between all occupational groups, however different the requirements in each of them may be. There again we are faced with the fact that the disparity in the quality of work needed for the satisfaction of wants is greater than the diversity in men's inborn ability to perform work. Connexity exists not only between different types of labor and the prices paid for them, but no less between labor and the material factors of production. Within certain limits, labor can be substituted for material factors of production and vice versa. The extent that such substitutions are resorted to depends on the height of wage rates and the prices of material factors. The determination of wage rates, like that of the prices of material factors of production, can be achieved only on the market. There is no such thing as non-market wage rates, just as there are no non-market prices. As far as there are wages, labor is dealt with like any material factor of production and sold and bought on the market. It is usual to call the sector of the market of producers' goods on which labor is hired the labor market. As with all other sectors of the market, the labor market is actuated by the entrepreneur's intent upon making profits. Each entrepreneur is eager to buy all the kinds of specific labor he needs for the realization of his plans at the cheapest price. But the wages he offers must be high enough to take the workers away from competing entrepreneurs. The upper limit of his bidding is determined by anticipation of the price he can obtain for the increment in sellable goods he expects from the employment of the worker concerned. The lower limit is determined by the bids of competing entrepreneurs, who themselves are guided by analogous considerations. It is this that economists have in mind in asserting that the height of wage rates for each kind of labor 
is determined by its marginal productivity. Another way to express the same truth is to say that wage rates are determined by the supply of labor and of material factors of production on the one hand, and by the anticipated future prices of the consumer's goods. This catalactic explanation of the determination of wage rates has been the target of passionate but entirely erroneous attacks. It has been asserted that there is a monopoly of the demand for labor. Most of the supporters of this doctrine think that they have sufficiently proved their case by referring to some incidental remarks of Adam Smith concerning a sort of tacit but constant and uniform combination among employers to keep wages down. Other refer in vague terms to the existence of trade associations of various groups of businessmen. The emptiness of all this talk is evident. However, the fact that these garbled ideas are the main ideological foundation of labor unionism and the labor policy of all contemporary governments makes it necessary to analyze them with the utmost care. The entrepreneurs are in the same position with regard to the sellers of labor as they are with regard to the sellers of the material factors of production. They are under the necessity of acquiring all factors of production at the cheapest price. But if in the pursuit of this endeavor, some entrepreneurs, certain groups of entrepreneurs, or all entrepreneurs, offer prices or wage rates which are too low, i.e. do not agree with the state of the unhampered market, they will succeed in acquiring what they want to acquire only if entrance into the ranks of entrepreneurship is blocked through institutional barriers. If the emergence of new entrepreneurs or the expansion of the activities of already operating entrepreneurs is not prevented, any drop in the prices of factors of production not constant with the structure of the market must open new chances for the earning of profits. There will be people eager to take advantage of the margin between the prevailing wage rate and the marginal productivity of labor. Their demand for labor will bring wage rates back to the height conditioned by labor's marginal productivity. The tacit combination among the employers to which Adam Smith referred, even if it existed, could not lower wages below the competitive market rate unless access to entrepreneurship required not only brains and capital, the latter always available to enterprises promising the highest returns, but in addition, also an institutional title, a patent, or a license reserved to a class of privileged people. It has been asserted that a job seeker must sell his labor at any price, however low, as he depends exclusively on his capacity to work and has no other source of income. He cannot wait and is forced to content himself with any reward the employers are kind enough to offer him. This inherent weakness makes it easy for the concerted action of the masters to lower wage rates. They can, if need be, wait longer, as their demand for labor is not so urgent as the workers' demand for subsistence. The argument is defective. It takes it for granted that the employers pocket the difference between the marginal productivity wage rate and the lower monopoly rate as an extra monopoly gain and do not pass it on to the consumers in the form of a reduction in prices. For if they were to reduce prices according to the drop in costs of production, they, in their capacity as entrepreneurs and sellers of the products, would derive no advantage from cutting wages. The whole gain would go to the consumers, and thereby also to the wage earners, in their capacity as buyers. The entrepreneurs themselves would be benefited only as consumers. 
However, to retain the extra profit resulting from the exploitation of the workers' alleged poor bargaining power would require concerted action on the part of employers in their capacity as sellers of the product. It would require a universal monopoly of all kinds of production activities, which can be created only by an institutional restriction of access to entrepreneurship. The essential point of the matter is that the alleged monopolistic combination of the employers about which Adam Smith and a great part of public opinion speak would be a monopoly of demand. But we have already seen that such alleged monopolies of demand are in fact monopolies of supply of a particular character. The employers would be in a position enabling them to lower wage rates by concerted action, only if they were to monopolize a factor indispensable for every kind of production and to restrict the employment of this factor in a monopolistic way. As there is no single material factor indispensable for every kind of production, they would have to monopolize all material factors of production. This condition would be present only in a socialist community, in which there is neither a market nor prices and wage rates. Neither would it be possible for the proprietors of the material factors of production, the capitalists and the landowners, to combine in a universal cartel against the interests of the workers. The characteristic mark of production activities in the past and in the foreseeable future is that the scarcity of labor exceeds the scarcity of most of the primary nature-given material factors of production. The comparatively greater scarcity of labor determines the extent to which the comparatively abundant primary natural factors can be utilized. There is unused soil. There are unused mineral deposits and so on, because there is not enough labor available for their utilization. If the owners of the soil that is tilled today were to form a cartel in order to reap monopoly gains, their plan would be frustrated by the competition of the owners of the submarginal land. The owners of the produced factors of production, in their turn, could not combine in a comprehensive cartel without the cooperation of the owners of the primary factors. Various other objections have been advanced against the doctrine of the monopolistic exploitation of labor by a tacit or avowed combine of employers. It has been demonstrated that at no time and at no place in the unhampered market economy can the existence of such cartels be discovered. It has been shown that it is not true that the job seekers cannot wait and are therefore under the necessity of accepting any wage rates, however low, offered to them by the employers. It is not true that every unemployed worker is faced with starvation. The workers, too, have reserves and can wait. The proof is that they really do wait. On the other hand, waiting can be financially ruinous to the entrepreneurs and capitalists, too. If they cannot employ their capital, they suffer losses. Thus, all the disquisitions about an alleged employer's advantage and worker's disadvantage in bargaining are without substance. But these are secondary and accidental considerations. The central fact is that a monopoly of the demand for labor cannot and does not exist in an unhampered market economy. It could originate only as an outgrowth of institutional restrictions of access to entrepreneurship. Yet one more point must be stressed. The doctrine of the monopolistic manipulation of wage rates by the employers speaks of labor as if it were a homogeneous entity. It deals with such concepts as demand for labor in general and supply of labor in general. 
But such notions have, as has been pointed out already, no counterpart in reality. What is sold and bought on the labor market is not labor in general, but definite specific labor suitable to render definite services. Each entrepreneur is in search of workers who are fitted to accomplish those specific tasks which he needs for the execution of his plans. He must withdraw these specialists from the employments in which they happen to work at the moment. The only means he has to achieve this is to offer them higher pay. Every innovation which an entrepreneur plans, the production of a new article, the application of a new process of production, the choice of a new location for a specific branch or simply the expansion of production already in existence, either in his own enterprise or in other enterprises, requires the employment of workers hitherto engaged somewhere else. The entrepreneurs are not merely faced with a shortage of labor in general, but with a shortage of those specific types of labor they need for their plants. The competition among the entrepreneurs in bidding for the most suitable hands is no less keen than their competition in bidding for the required raw materials, tools, and machines, and in their bidding for capital on the capital and loan market. The expansion of the activities of the individual firms, as well as of the whole society, is not only limited by the amount of capital goods available and of the supply of labor in general. In each branch of production, it is also limited by the available supply of specialists. This is, of course, only a temporary obstacle which vanishes in the long run when more workers, attracted by the higher pay of the specialists in comparatively undermanned branches, will have trained themselves for the special tasks concerned. But in the changing economy, such a scarcity of specialists emerges anew daily and determines the conduct of employers in search for workers. Every employer must aim at buying the factors of production needed, inclusive of labor, at the cheapest price. An employer who paid more than agrees with the market price of the services his employees render him would be soon removed from his entrepreneurial position. On the other hand, an employer who tried to reduce wage rates below the height consonant with the marginal productivity of labor would not recruit the type of men that the most efficient utilization of his equipment requires. There prevails a tendency for wage rates to reach the point at which they are equal to the price of the marginal product of the kind of labor in question. If wage rates drop below this point, the gain derived from the employment of every additional worker will increase the demand for labor and thus make wage rates rise again. If wage rates rise above this point, the loss incurred from the employment of every worker will force the employers to discharge workers. The competition of the unemployed for jobs will create a tendency for wage rates to drop. Number 4. Catalactic Unemployment If a job seeker cannot obtain the position he prefers, he must look for another kind of job. If he cannot find an employer ready to pay him as much as he would like to earn, he must abate his pretensions. If he refuses, he will not get any job. He remains unemployed. What causes unemployment is the fact that, contrary to the above-mentioned doctrine of the worker's inability to wait, those eager to earn wages can and do wait. A job seeker who does not want to wait will always get a job in the unhampered market economy in which there is always unused capacity of natural resources and very often also unused capacity of produced factors of production. It is only necessary for him either to reduce the amount of pay he is asking for 
or to alter his occupation or his place of work. There were, and still are, people who work only for some time, and then live for another period from the savings they have accumulated by working. In countries in which the cultural state of the masses is low, it is often difficult to recruit workers who are ready to stay on the job. The average man there is so callous and inert that he knows of no other use for his earnings than to buy some leisure time. He works only in order to remain unemployed for some time. It is different in the civilized countries. Here the worker looks upon unemployment as an evil. He would like to avoid it provided the sacrifice required is not too grievous. He chooses between employment and unemployment in the same way in which he proceeds in all other actions and choices. He weighs the pros and cons. If he chooses unemployment, this unemployment is a market phenomenon whose nature is not different from other market phenomena as they appear in a changing market economy. We may call this kind of unemployment market-generated or catalactic unemployment. The various considerations which may induce a man to decide for unemployment can be classified in this way. Number one. The individual believes that he will find at a later date a remunerative job in his dwelling place and in an occupation which he likes better and for which he has been trained. He seeks to avoid the expenditure and other disadvantages involved in shifting from one occupation to another and from one geographical point to another. There may be special conditions increasing these costs. A worker who owns a homestead is more firmly linked with the place of his residence than people living in rented apartments. A married woman is less mobile than an unmarried girl. Then there are occupations which impair the worker's ability to resume his previous job at a later date. A watchmaker who works for some time as a lumberman may lose the dexterity required for his previous job. In all these cases, the individual chooses temporary unemployment because he believes that this choice pays better in the long run. Number two, there are occupations, the demand for which is subject to considerable seasonal variations. In some months of the year, the demand is very intense. In other months, it dwindles or disappears altogether. The structure of wage rates discounts these seasonal fluctuations. The branches of industry subject to them can compete on the labor market, only if the wages they pay in the good season are high enough to indemnify the wage earners for the disadvantages resulting from the seasonal irregularity in demand. Then, many of the workers, having saved a part of their ample earnings in the good season, remain unemployed in the bad season. Number three, the individual chooses temporary unemployment for considerations, which in popular speech are called non-economic or even irrational. He does not take jobs which are incompatible with his religious, moral, and political convictions. He shuns occupations, the exercise of which would impair his social prestige. He lets himself be guided by traditional standards of what is proper for a gentleman and what is unworthy. He does not want to lose face or caste. Unemployment in the unhampered market is always voluntary. In the eyes of the unemployed man, Unemployment is the minor of two evils between which he has to choose. The structure of the market may sometimes cause wage rates to drop. But on the unhampered market, there is always for each type of labor a rate at which all those eager to work can get a job. 
The final wage rate is that rate at which all job seekers get jobs and all employers as many workers as they want to hire. Its height is determined by the marginal productivity of each type of work. Wage rate fluctuations are the device by means of which the sovereignty of the consumers manifests itself on the labor market. They are the measure adopted for the allocation of labor to the various branches of production. They penalize disobedience by cutting wage rates in the comparatively overmanned branches and recompense obedience by raising wage rates in the comparatively undermanned branches. They thus submit the individual to a harsh social pressure. It is obvious that they indirectly limit the individual's freedom to choose his occupation. But this coercion is not rigid. It leaves to the individual a margin in the limits of which he can choose between what suits him better and what less. Within this orbit, he is free to act of his own accord. This amount of freedom is the maximum of freedom that an individual can enjoy in the framework of the social division of labor. And this amount of coercion is the minimum of coercion that is indispensable for the preservation of the system of social cooperation. There is only one alternative left to the catalactic pressure exercised by the wages system. The assignment of occupations and jobs to each individual by the peremptory decrees of an authority, a central board planning all production activities. This is tantamount to the suppression of all freedom. It is true that under the wages system, the individual is not free to choose permanent unemployment. But no other imaginable social system could grant him a right to unlimited leisure. That man cannot avoid submitting to the disutility of labor is not an outgrowth of any social institution. It is an inescapable natural condition of human life and conduct. It is not expedient to call catalactic unemployment in a metaphor borrowed from mechanics, frictional unemployment. In the imaginary construction of the evenly rotating economy, there is no unemployment because we have based this construction on such an assumption. Unemployment is a phenomenon of a changing economy. The fact that a worker discharged on account of changes occurring in the arrangement of production processes does not instantly take advantage of every opportunity to get another job, but waits for a more propitious opportunity is not a consequence of the tardiness of the adjustment to the change in conditions, but is one of the factors slowing down the pace of this adjustment. It is not an automatic reaction to the changes which have occurred, independent of the will and the choices of the job seekers concerned, but the effect of their intentional actions. It is speculative, not frictional. Catalactic unemployment must not be confused with institutional unemployment. Institutional unemployment is not the outcome of the decisions of the individual job seekers. It is the effect of interference with the market phenomena intent upon enforcing by coercion and compulsion wage rates higher than those the unhampered market would have determined. The treatment of institutional unemployment belongs to the analysis of the problems of interventionism. Chapter 15. The Hampered Market Economy Planning for Freedom and 16 Other Essays and Addresses Middle-of-the-road policy leads to socialism. The fundamental dogma of all brands of socialism and communism is that the market economy or capitalism is a system that hurts the vital interests of the immense majority of people for the sole benefit of a small minority of rugged individualists. It condemns the masses to progressing impoverishment, 
It brings about misery, slavery, oppression, degradation, and exploitation of the working men, while it enriches a class of idle and useless parasites. This doctrine was not the work of Karl Marx. It had been developed long before Marx entered the scene. Its most successful propagators were not the Marxian authors, but such men as Carlyle and Ruskin, the British Fabians, the German professors, and the American institutionalists. And it is a very significant fact that the correctness of this dogma was contested only by a few economists, who were very soon silenced and barred from access to universities, the press, the leadership of political parties, and, first of all, public office. Public opinion by and large accepted the condemnation of capitalism without any reservation. Number 1. Socialism But, of course, the practical political conclusions which people drew from this dogma were not uniform. One group declared that there is but one way to wipe out these evils, namely to abolish capitalism entirely. They advocate the substitution of public control of the means of production for private control. They aim at the establishment of what is called socialism, communism, planning, or state capitalism. All these terms signify the same thing. No longer should the consumers, by their buying and abstention from buying, determine what should be produced, in what quantity, and of what quality. Henceforth, a central authority alone should direct all production activities. Number 2. Interventionism, allegedly a middle-of-the-road policy. A second group seems to be less radical. They reject socialism no less than capitalism. They recommend a third system, which, as they say, is as far from capitalism as it is from socialism, which, as a third system of society's economic organization, stands midway between the two other systems, and while retaining the advantages of both, avoids the disadvantages inherent in each. This third system is known as the system of interventionism. In the terminology of American politics, it is often referred to as the middle-of-the-road policy. What makes this third system popular with many people is the particular way they choose to look upon the problems involved. As they see it, two classes, the capitalists and entrepreneurs on the one hand, and the wage earners on the other hand, are arguing about the distribution of the yield of capital and entrepreneurial activities. Both parties are claiming the whole cake for themselves. Now, suggest these mediators, let us make peace by splitting the disputed value equally between the two classes. The state, as an impartial arbiter, should interfere and should curb the greed of the capitalists and assign a part of the profits to the working classes. Thus, it will be possible to dethrone the Moloch capitalism without enthroning the Moloch of totalitarian socialism. Yet this mode of judging the issue is entirely fallacious. The antagonism between capitalism and socialism is not a dispute about the distribution of booty. It is a controversy about which two schemes for society's economic organization, capitalism or socialism, is conducive to the better attainment of those ends, which all people consider as the ultimate aim of activities, commonly called economic, vis-a-vis -vis the best possible supply of useful commodities and services. Capitalism wants to attain these ends by private enterprise and initiative subject to the supremacy of the public's buying and abstention from buying on the market. The socialists want to substitute the unique plan of a central authority for the plans of the various individuals. They want to put in place of what Marx called the anarchy of production, the exclusive monopoly of the government. The antagonism does not refer to the mode of distributing a fixed amount of amenities. It refers to the mode of producing all those goods which people want to enjoy. The conflict of the two principles is irreconcilable and does not allow for any compromise. 
control is indivisible. Either the consumer's demand as manifested on the market decides for what purposes and how the factors of production should be employed, or the government takes care of these matters. There is nothing that could mitigate the opposition between these two contradictory principles. They preclude each other. Interventionism is not a golden mean between capitalism and socialism. It is the design of a third system of society's economic organization and must be appreciated as such. Number 3. How Interventionism Works It is not the task of today's discussion to raise any questions about the merits either of capitalism or of socialism. I am dealing today with interventionism alone. And I do not intend to enter into an arbitrary evaluation of interventionism from any preconceived point of view. My only concern is to show how interventionism works and whether or not it can be considered as a pattern of a permanent system for society's economic organization. The interventionists emphasize that they plan to retain private ownership of the means of production, entrepreneurship, and market exchange. But they go on to say it is peremptory to prevent these capitalist institutions from spreading havoc and unfairly exploiting the majority of people. It is the duty of government to restrain, by orders and prohibitions, the greed of the propertied classes, lest their acquisitiveness harm the poorer classes. Unhampered or laissez-faire capitalism is an evil. But in order to eliminate its evils, there is no need to abolish capitalism entirely. It is possible to improve the capitalist system by government interference with the actions of the capitalists and entrepreneurs. Such government regulation and regimentation of business is the only method to keep off totalitarian socialism and to salvage those features of capitalism which are worth preserving. On the ground of this philosophy, the interventionists advocate a galaxy of various measures. Let us pick out one of them, the very popular scheme of price control. Number 4. How Price Control Leads to Socialism the government believes that the price of a definite commodity, for example milk, is too high. It wants to make it possible for the poor to give their children more milk. Thus it resorts to a price ceiling and fixes the price of milk at a lower rate than that prevailing on the free market. The result is that the marginal producers of milk, those producing at the highest cost, now incur losses. As no individual farmer or businessman can go on producing at a loss, these marginal producers stop producing and selling milk on the market. They will use their cows and their skill for other more profitable purposes. They will, for example, produce butter, cheese, or meat. There will be less milk available for the consumers, not more. This, of course, is contrary to the intentions of the government. It wanted to make it easier for some people to buy more milk. But, as an outcome of its interference, the supply available drops. The measure proves abortive from the very point of view of the government and the groups it was eager to favor. It brings about a state of affairs which, again from the point of view of the government, is even less desirable than the previous state of affairs which it was designed to improve. Now, the government is faced with an alternative. It can abrogate its decree and refrain from any further endeavors to control the price of milk. But if it insists upon its intention to keep the price of milk below the rate the unhampered market would have determined, and wants nonetheless to avoid a drop in the supply of milk, it must try to eliminate the causes that render the marginal producer's business unremunerative. It must add to the first decree concerning only the price of milk a second decree fixing the prices of the factors of production necessary for the production of milk at such a low rate that the marginal producers of milk will no longer suffer losses and will therefore abstain from restricting output. 
But then the same story repeats itself on a remoter plane. The supply of the factors of production required for the production of milk drops, and again the government is back where it started. If it does not want to admit defeat and to abstain from any meddling with prices, it must push further and fix the prices of those factors of production, which are needed for the production of the factors necessary for the production of milk. Thus, the government is forced to go further and further, fixing step by step the prices of all consumers' goods and of all factors of production, both human, i.e. labor and material, and to order every entrepreneur and every worker to continue work at these prices and wages. No branch of industry can be omitted from this all-around fixing of prices and wages, and from this obligation to produce those quantities which the government wants to see produced. If some branches were to be left free out of regard for the fact that they produce only goods qualified as non-vital or even as luxuries, capital and labor would tend to flow into them, and the result would be a drop in the supply of those goods, the prices of which government has fixed precisely because it considers them as indispensable for the satisfaction of the needs of the masses. But when this state of all-around control of business is attained, there can no longer be any question of a market economy. No longer do the citizens, by their buying and abstention from buying, determine what should be produced and how. The power to decide these matters has devolved upon the government. This is no longer capitalism. It is all-around planning by the government. It is socialism. Number 5. The Zwangswirtschaft Type of Socialism It is, of course, true that this type of socialism preserves some of the labels and the outward appearance of capitalism. It maintains, seemingly and nominally, private ownership of the means of production, prices, wages, interest rates, and profits. In fact, however, nothing counts but the government's unrestricted autocracy. The government tells the entrepreneurs and capitalists what to produce and in what quantity and quality, at what prices to buy and from whom, at what prices to sell and to whom. It decrees at what wages and where the workers must work. Market exchange is but a sham. All the prices, wages, and interest rates are determined by the authority. They are prices, wages, and interest rates in appearance only. In fact, they are merely quantity relations in the government's orders. The government, not the consumers, directs production. The government determines each citizen's income. It assigns to everybody the position in which he has to work. This is socialism in the outward guise of capitalism. It is the Zwangswirtschaft of Hitler's German Reich and the planned economy of Great Britain. Number 6. German and British Experience For the scheme of social transformation which I have depicted is not merely a theoretical construction. It is a realistic portrayal of the succession of events that brought about socialism in Germany, in Great Britain, and in some other countries. The Germans in the First World War began with price ceilings for a small group of consumers' goods, considered as vital necessities. It was the inevitable failure of these measures that impelled them to go further and further, until in the second period of the war, they designed the Hindenburg Plan. In the context of the Hindenburg Plan, no room whatever was left for a free choice on the part of the consumers and for initiative action on the part of business. All economic activities were unconditionally subordinated to the exclusive jurisdiction of the authorities. The total defeat of the Kaiser swept the whole imperial apparatus of administration away, and with it went also the grandiose plan. But when in 1931 Chancellor Brüning embarked anew on a policy of price control and his successors, first of all Hitler, obstinately clung to it, the same story repeated itself. 
Great Britain and all the other countries which, in the First World War, adopted measures of price control, had to experience the same failure. They too were pushed further and further in their attempts to make the initial decrees work. But they were still at a rudimentary stage of this development when the victory and the opposition of the public brushed away all schemes for controlling prices. It was different in the Second World War. Then Great Britain again resorted to price ceilings for a few vital commodities and had to run the whole gamut proceeding further and further until it had substituted all around planning of the country's whole economy for economic freedom. When the war came to an end, Great Britain was a socialist commonwealth. It is noteworthy to remember that British socialism was not an achievement of Mr. Attlee's Labour government, but of the war cabinet of Mr. Winston Churchill. What the Labour Party did was not the establishment of socialism in a free country, but retaining socialism as it had been developed during the war and in the post-war period. The fact has been obscured by the great sensation made about the nationalization of the Bank of England, the coal mines, and other branches of business. However, Great Britain is to be called a socialist country not because certain enterprises have been formally expropriated and nationalized, but because all the economic activities of all citizens are subject to full control of the government and its agencies. The authorities direct the allocation of capital and of manpower to the various branches of business. They determine what should be produced. Supremacy in all business activities is exclusively vested in the government. The people are reduced to the status of wards, unconditionally bound to obey orders. To the businessmen, the former entrepreneurs, merely ancillary functions are left. All that they are free to do is to carry into effect, within a nearly circumscribed narrow field, the decisions of the government departments. What we have to realize is that the price ceilings affecting only a few commodities fail to attain the end sought. On the contrary, they produce effects which, from the point of view of the government, are even worse than the previous state of affairs, which the government wanted to alter. If the government, in order to eliminate these inevitable but unwelcome consequences, pursues its course further and further, it finally transforms the system of capitalism and free enterprise into socialism of the Hindenburg pattern. Number 7. Crises and Unemployment The same is true of all other types of meddling with the market phenomena. Minimum wage rates, whether decreed and enforced by the government or by labor union pressure and violence, result in mass unemployment prolonged year after year as soon as they try to raise wage rates above the height of the unhampered market. The attempts to lower interest rates by credit expansion generate, it is true, a period of booming business. But the prosperity thus created is only an artificial hothouse product and must inexorably lead to the slump and to the depression. People must pay heavily for the easy money orgy of a few years of credit expansion and inflation. The recurrence of periods of depression and mass unemployment has discredited capitalism in the opinion of injudicious people. Yet these events are not the outcome of the operation of the free market. They are, on the contrary, the result of well-intentioned but ill-advised government interference with the market. There are no means by which the height of wage rates and the general standard of living can be raised other than by accelerating the increase of capital as compared with population. The only means to raise wage rates permanently for all those seeking jobs and eager to earn wages is to raise the productivity of the industrial effort by increasing the per-head quota of capital invested. What makes American wage rates by far exceed the wage rates of Europe and Asia 
is the fact that the American workers' toil and trouble is aided by more and better tools. All that good government can do to improve the material well-being of the people is to establish and to preserve an institutional order in which there are no obstacles to the progressing accumulation of new capital required for the improvement of technological methods of production. This is what capitalism did achieve in the past and will achieve in the future too, if not sabotaged by a bad policy. Number 8. Two Roads to Socialism Interventionism cannot be considered as an economic system destined to stay. It is a method for the transformation of capitalism into socialism by a series of successive steps. It is as such different from the endeavors of the communists to bring about socialism at one stroke. The difference does not refer to the ultimate end of the political movement. It refers mainly to the tactics to be resorted to for the attainment of an end that both groups are aiming at. Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels recommend successively each of these two ways for the realization of socialism. In 1848, in the Communist Manifesto, they outlined a plan for the step-by-step -step transformation of capitalism into socialism. The proletariat should be raised to the position of the ruling class and use its political supremacy to wrest, by degrees, all capital from the bourgeoisie. This, they declare, cannot be effected except by means of despotic inroads on the rights of property and on the conditions of the bourgeois production, by means of measures, therefore, which appear economically insufficient and untenable, but which in the course of the movement outstrip themselves, necessitate further inroads upon the old social order, and are unavoidable as a means of entirely revolutionizing the mode of production. In this vein, they enumerate, by way of example, ten measures. In later years, Marx and Engels changed their minds. In his main treatise, Das Kapital, first published in 1867, Marx saw things in a different way. Socialism is bound to come with the inexorability of a law of nature. But it cannot appear before capitalism has reached its full maturity. There is but one road to the collapse of capitalism, namely the progressive evolution of capitalism itself. Then only will the great final revolt of the working class give it the finishing stroke and inaugurate the everlasting age of abundance. From the point of view of this later doctrine, Marx and the school of orthodox Marxism reject all policies that pretend to restrain, to regulate, and to improve capitalism. Such policies, they declare, are not only futile, but outright harmful. For they rather delay the coming of age of capitalism, its maturity, and thereby also its collapse. They are therefore not progressive, but reactionary. It was this idea that led the German Social Democratic Party to vote against Bismarck's social security legislation and to frustrate Bismarck's plan to nationalize the German tobacco industry. From the point of view of the same doctrine, the communists branded the American New Deal as a reactionary plot extremely detrimental to the true interests of the working people. What we must realize is that the antagonism between the interventionists and the communists is a manifestation of the conflict between the two doctrines of the early Marxism and of the late Marxism. It is the conflict between the Marx of 1848, the author of the Communist Manifesto, and the Marx of 1867, the author of Das Kapital. And it is paradoxical indeed that the document in which Marx endorsed the policies of the present-day self-styled anti-communists is called the Communist Manifesto. There are two methods available for the transformation of capitalism into socialism. 
One is to expropriate all farms, plants, and shops, and to operate them by a bureaucratic apparatus as departments of the government. The whole of society, says Lenin, becomes one office and one factory, with equal work and equal pay. The whole economy will be organized like the postal system. The second method is the method of the Hindenburg Plan, the originally German pattern of the welfare state and of planning. It forces every firm and every individual to comply strictly with the orders issued by the government's Central Board of Production Management. Such was the intention of the National Industrial Recovery Act of 1933, which the resistance of business frustrated and the Supreme Court declared unconstitutional. Such is the idea implied in the endeavors to substitute planning for private enterprise. Number 9. Foreign Exchange Control The foremost vehicle for the realization of this second type of socialism in industrial countries like Germany and Great Britain is foreign exchange control. These countries cannot feed and clothe their people out of domestic resources. They must import large quantities of food and raw materials. In order to pay for these badly needed imports, they must export manufacturers, most of them produced out of imported raw material. In such countries, almost every business transaction, directly or indirectly, is conditioned either by exporting or importing, or by both exporting and importing. Hence, the government's monopoly of buying and selling foreign exchange makes every kind of business activity depend on the discretion of the agency entrusted with foreign exchange control. In this country, matters are different. The volume of foreign trade is rather small when compared with the total volume of the nation's trade. Foreign exchange control would only slightly affect the much greater part of American business. This is the reason why in the schemes of our planners there is hardly any question of foreign exchange control. Their pursuits are directed toward the control of prices, wages, and interest rates, toward the control of investment, and the limitation of profits and incomes. Number 10. Progressive Taxation Looking backward on the evolution of income tax rates from the beginning of the federal income tax in 1913 until the present day, one can hardly expect that the tax will not one day absorb 100% of all surplus above the income of the average voter. It is this that Marx and Engels had in mind when in the Communist Manifesto they recommended a heavy progressive or graduated income tax. Another of the suggestions of the Communist Manifesto was abolition of all right of inheritance. Now, neither in Great Britain nor in this country have the laws gone up to this point. But again, looking back upon the past history of the estate taxes, we have to realize that they more and more have approached the goals set by Marx. Estate taxes of the height they have already attained for the upper brackets are no longer to be qualified as taxes. They are measures of expropriation. The philosophy underlying the system of progressive taxation is that the income and the wealth of the well-to-do classes can be freely tapped. What the advocates of these tax rates fail to realize is that the greater part of the income taxed away would not have been consumed, but saved and invested. In fact, this fiscal policy does not only prevent the further accumulation of new capital, it brings about capital decumulation. This is certainly today the state of affairs in Great Britain. Number 11. The Trend Toward Socialism The course of events in the past 30 years shows a continuous, although sometimes interrupted, progress toward the establishment in this country of socialism of the British and German pattern. The United States embarked later than these two countries upon this decline and is today still farther away from its end. 
But if the trend of this policy will not change, the final result will only in accidental and negligible points differ from what happened in the England of Attlee and in the Germany of Hitler. The middle-of-the-road policy is not an economic system that can last. It is a method for the realization of socialism by installments. Number 12. Loopholes Capitalism Many people object. They stress the fact that most of the laws which aim at planning or at expropriation by means of progressive taxation have left some loopholes which offer to private enterprise a margin within which it can go on. That such loopholes still exist, and that, thanks to them, this country is still a free country, is certainly true. But this loopholes capitalism is not a lasting system. It is a respite. Powerful forces are at work to close these loopholes. From day to day, the field in which private enterprise is free to operate is narrowed down. Number 13. The coming of socialism is not inevitable. Of course, this outcome is not inevitable. The trend can be reversed, as was the case with many other trends in history. The Marxian dogma, according to which socialism is bound to come with the inexorability of a law of nature, is just an arbitrary surmise devoid of any proof. But the prestige which this vain prognostic enjoys, not only with the Marxians, but with many self-styled non-Marxians, is the main instrument of the progress of socialism. It spreads defeatism among those who otherwise would gallantly fight the socialist menace. The most powerful ally of Soviet Russia is the doctrine that the wave of the future carries us towards socialism and that it is therefore progressive to sympathize with all measures that restrict more and more the operation of the market economy. Even in this country, which owes to a century of rugged individualism, the highest standard of living ever attained by any nation, public opinion condemns laissez-faire. In the last 50 years, thousands of books have been published to indict capitalism and to advocate radical interventionism, the welfare state, and socialism. The few books which try to explain adequately the working of the free market economy were hardly noticed by the public. Their authors remained obscure, while such authors as Veblen, Commons, John Dewey, and Lasky were exuberantly praised. It is a well-known fact that the legitimate state, as well as the Hollywood industry, are no less radically critical of free enterprise than are many novels. There are in this country many periodicals which in every issue furiously attack economic freedom. There is hardly any magazine of opinion that would plead for the system that supplied the immense majority of the people with good food and shelter, with cars, refrigerators, radio sets, and other things which the subjects of other countries call luxuries. The impact of this state of affairs is that practically very little is done to preserve the system of private enterprise. There are only middle-of-the-roaders who think they have been successful when they have delayed for some time an especially ruinous measure. They are always in retreat. They put up today with measures which only 10 or 20 years ago they would have considered as undiscussable. They will in a few years acquiesce in other measures which they today consider as simply out of the question. What can prevent the coming of totalitarian socialism is only a thorough change in ideologies. What we need is neither anti-socialism nor anti-communism, but an open positive endorsement of that system to which we owe all the wealth that distinguishes our age from the comparatively straightened conditions of ages gone by. Chapter 16, Price Controls Planning for Freedom and 16 Other Essays and Addresses Inflation and Price Control 
Number 1. The Futility of Price Control Under socialism, production is entirely directed by the orders of the Central Board of Production Management. The whole nation is an industrial army, a term used by Karl Marx in the Communist Manifesto, and each citizen is bound to obey his superior's orders. Everybody has to contribute his share to the execution of the overall plan adopted by the government. In the free economy, no production czar tells a man what he should do. Everybody plans and acts for himself. The coordination of the various individuals' activities and their integration into a harmonious system for supplying the consumers with the goods and services they demand is brought about by the market process and the price structure it generates. The market steers the capitalistic economy. It directs each individual's activities into those channels in which he best serves the wants of his fellow men. The market alone puts the whole social system of private ownership of the means of production and free enterprise in order and provides it with sense and meaning. There is nothing automatic or mysterious in the operation of the market. The only forces determining the continually fluctuating state of the market are the value judgments of the various individuals and their actions as directed by these value judgments. The ultimate factor in the market is the striving of each man to satisfy his needs and wants in the best possible way. Supremacy of the market is tantamount to the supremacy of the consumers. By their buying and by their abstention from buying, the consumers determine not only the price structure, but no less what should be produced and in what quantity and quality, and by whom. They determine each entrepreneur's profit or loss, and thereby who should own the capital and run the plants. They make poor men rich and rich men poor. The profit system is essentially production for use, as profits can be earned only by success in supplying consumers in the best and cheapest way with the commodities they want to use. From this it becomes clear what government tampering with the price structure of the market means. It diverts production from those channels into which the consumers want to direct it into other lines. Under a market not manipulated by government interference, there prevails a tendency to expand the production of each article to the point at which a further expansion would not pay, because the price realized would not exceed costs. If the government fixes a maximum price for certain commodities below the level which the unhampered market would have determined for them, and makes it illegal to sell at the potential market price, production involves a loss for the marginal producers. Those producing with the highest costs go out of the business and employ their production facilities for the production of other commodities, not affected by price ceilings. The government's interference with the price of a commodity restricts the supply available for consumption. This outcome is contrary to the intentions which motivated the price ceiling. The government wanted to make it easier for people to obtain the article concerned, but its intervention results in shrinking of the supply produced and offered for sale. If this unpleasant experience does not teach the authorities that price control is futile and that the best policy would be to refrain from any endeavors to control prices, it becomes necessary to add to the first measure, restricting merely the price of one or of several consumers' goods, further measures. It becomes necessary to fix the prices of the factors of production required for the production of the consumers' goods concerned. Then, the same story repeats itself on a remoter plane. The supply of those factors of production whose prices have been limited shrinks. Then again, the government must expand the sphere of its price ceilings. It must fix the prices of the secondary factors of production required for the production of those primary factors. Thus, the government must go farther and farther.
It must fix the prices of all consumers' goods and of all factors of production, both material factors and labor. And it must force every entrepreneur and every worker to continue production at these prices and wage rates. No branch of production must be omitted from this all-around fixing of prices and wages and this general order to continue production. If some branches were to be left free, the result would be a shifting of capital and labor to them and a corresponding fall in the supply of goods whose prices the government has fixed. However, it is precisely these goods which the government considers as especially important for the satisfaction of the needs of the masses. But when such a state of all-around control of business is achieved, the market economy has been replaced by a system of centralized planning, by socialism. It is no longer the consumers, but the government who decides what should be produced and in what quantity and quality. The entrepreneurs are no longer entrepreneurs. They have been reduced to the status of shop managers, or Betriefsführer, as the Nazis said, and are bound to obey the orders issued by the government's Central Board of Production Management. The workers are bound to work in the plants to whom the authorities have assigned them. Their wages are determined by authoritarian decrees. The government is supreme. It determines each citizen's income and standard of living. It is totalitarian. Price control is contrary to purpose if it is limited to some commodities only. It cannot work satisfactorily within a market economy. The endeavors to make it work must needs enlarge the sphere of the commodities subject to price control until the prices of all commodities and services are regulated by authoritarian decree and the market ceases to work. Either production can be directed by the prices fixed on the market by the buying or the abstention from buying on the part of the public or it can be directed by the government's offices. There is no third solution available. Government control of a part of prices only results in a state of affairs which, without any exception, everybody considers as absurd and contrary to purpose. Its inevitable result is chaos and social unrest. Economic Policy Thoughts for Tomorrow and Today Interventionism A famous, very often quoted phrase says, the government is best which governs least. I do not believe this to be a correct description of the functions of a good government. Government ought to do all the things for which it is needed and for which it was established. Government ought to protect the individuals within the country against the violent and fraudulent attacks of gangsters, and it should defend the country against foreign enemies. These are the functions of government within a free system, within the system of the market economy. Under socialism, of course, the government is totalitarian, and there is nothing outside its sphere and its jurisdiction. But in the market economy, the main task of the government is to protect the smooth functioning of the market economy against fraud or violence from within and from outside the country. People who do not agree with this definition of the functions of government may say, this man hates the government. Nothing could be farther from the truth. If I should say that gasoline is a very useful liquid, useful for many purposes, but that I would nevertheless not drink gasoline because I think that would not be the right use for it, I am not an enemy of gasoline and I do not hate gasoline. I only say that gasoline is very useful for certain purposes, but not fit for other purposes. If I say it is the government's duty to arrest murderers and other criminals, but not its duty to run the railroads or to spend money for useless things, then I do not hate the government by declaring that it is fit to do certain things, but not fit to do other things. 
It has been said that under present-day conditions, we no longer have a free market economy. Under present-day conditions, we have something called the mixed economy. And for our evidence of our mixed economy, people point to the many enterprises which are operated and owned by the government. The economy is mixed, people say, because there are in many countries certain institutions, like the telephone, telegraph, and railroads, which are owned and operated by the government. That some of these institutions and enterprises are operated by the government is certainly true. But this factor alone does not change the character of our economic system. It does not even mean there is a little socialism within the otherwise non-socialist free market economy. For the government in operating these enterprises is subject to the supremacy of the market, which means it is subject to the supremacy of the consumers. The government, if it operates, let us say, post offices or railroads, has to hire people who have to work in these enterprises. It also has to buy the raw materials and other things that are needed for the conduct of these enterprises. And on the other hand, it sells these services or commodities to the public. Yet, even though it operates these institutions using the methods of the free economic system, the result, as a rule, is a deficit. The government, however, is in a position to finance such a deficit. At least the members of the government and of the ruling party believe so. It is certainly different for an individual. The individual's power to operate something with a deficit is very limited. If the deficit is not very soon eliminated, and if the enterprise does not become profitable, or at least show that no further deficit losses are being incurred, the individual goes bankrupt and the enterprise must come to an end. But for the government, conditions are different. The government can run at a deficit because it has the power to tax people. And if the taxpayers are prepared to pay higher taxes in order to make it possible for the government to operate an enterprise at a loss, that is, in a less efficient way than it would be done by a private institution, and if the public will accept this loss, then of course the enterprise will continue. In recent years, governments have increased the number of nationalized institutions and enterprises in most countries to such an extent that the deficits have grown far beyond the amount that could be collected in taxes from the citizens. What happens then is not the subject of today's lecture. It is inflation, and I shall deal with that tomorrow. I mention this only because the mixed economy must not be confused with a problem of interventionism, about which I want to talk tonight. What is interventionism? Interventionism means that the government does not restrict its activity to the preservation of order, or as people used to say a hundred years ago, to the production of security. Interventionism means that the government wants to do more; it wants to interfere with market phenomena. If one objects and says the government should not interfere with business, people very often answer. But the government necessarily always interferes. If there are policemen on the street, the government interferes. It interferes with a robber looting a shop, or it prevents a man from stealing a car. But when dealing with interventionism and defining what is meant by interventionism, we are speaking about government interference with the market. That the government and the police are expected to protect the citizens, which includes businessmen and, of course, their employees, against attacks on the part of domestic or foreign gangsters, is in fact a normal, necessary expectation of any government. Such protection is not an intervention, for the government's only legitimate function is precisely to produce security. What we have in mind when we talk about interventionism is the government's desire to do more than prevent assaults and fraud. 
Intervention is a means that the government not only fails to protect the smooth function of the market economy, but that it interferes with the various market phenomena. It interferes with prices, with wage rates, interest rates, and profits. The government wants to interfere in order to force businessmen to conduct their affairs in a different way than they would have chosen if they had obeyed only the consumers. Thus, all the measures of interventionism by the government are directed toward restricting the supremacy of consumers. The government wants to arrogate to itself the power, or at least a part of the power which, in the free market economy, is in the hands of the consumers. Let us consider one example of interventionism, very popular in many countries and tried again and again by many governments, especially in times of inflation. I refer to price control. Governments usually resort to price control when they have inflated the money supply and people have begun to complain about the resulting rise in prices. There are many famous historical examples of price control methods that failed, but I shall refer to only two of them because, in both these cases, the governments were really very energetic in enforcing or trying to enforce their price controls. The first famous example is the case of the Roman Emperor Diocletian, very well known as the last of those Roman emperors who persecuted the Christians. The Roman emperor in the second part of the third century had only one financial method, and this was currency debasement. In those primitive ages, before the invention of the printing press, even inflation was, let us say, primitive. It involved debasement of the coinage, especially the silver. The government mixed more and more copper into the silver until the color of the silver coins was changed and the weight was reduced considerably. The result of this coinage debasement and the associated increase in the quantity of money was an increase in prices, followed by an edict to control prices. And Roman emperors were not very mild when they enforced the law. They did not consider death too mild a punishment for a man who had asked for a higher price. They enforced price control, but they failed to maintain the society. The result was the disintegration of the Roman Empire and the system of the division of labor. Then, 1,500 years later, the same currency debasement took place during the French Revolution. But this time, a different method was used. The technology for producing money was considerably improved. It was no longer necessary for the French to resort to debasement of the coinage. They had the printing press. And the printing press was very efficient. Again, the result was an unprecedented rise in prices. But in the French Revolution, maximum prices were not enforced by the same method of capital punishment, which the emperor Diocletian had used. There had also been an improvement in the technique of killing citizens. You all remember the famous Dr. J.I. Guillotine, 1738-1814, who advocated the use of the guillotine. Despite the guillotine, the French also failed with their laws of maximum prices. When Robespierre himself was carted off to the guillotine, the people shouted, There goes the dirty maximum. I wanted to mention this because people often say, What is needed in order to make price control effective and efficient is merely more brutality and more energy. Now certainly, Diocletian was very brutal, and so was the French Revolution. Nevertheless, price control measures in both ages failed entirely. Now let us analyze the reasons for this failure. The government hears people complain that the price of milk has gone up. And milk is certainly very important, especially for the rising generation, for children. Consequently, the government declares a maximum price for milk, a maximum price that is lower than the potential market price would be. 
Now the government says, certainly we have done everything needed in order to make it possible for poor parents to buy as much milk as they need to feed their children. But what happens? On the one hand, the lower price of milk increases the demand for milk. People who could not afford to buy milk at a higher price are now able to buy it at the lower price which the government has decreed. And on the other hand, some of the producers, those producers of milk who are producing at the highest cost, that is, the marginal producers, are now suffering losses because the price which the government has decreed is lower than their costs. This is the important point in the market economy. The private entrepreneur, the private producer, cannot take losses in the long run. And as he cannot take losses in milk, he restricts the production of milk for the market. He may sell some of his cows for the slaughterhouse, or instead of milk, he may sell some products made out of milk, for instance, sour cream, butter, or cheese. Thus, the government's interference with the price of milk will result in less milk than there was before, and at the same time there will be a greater demand. Some people who are prepared to pay the government-decreed price cannot buy it. Another result will be that anxious people will hurry to be the first at the shops. They have to wait outside. The long lines of people waiting at shops always appear as a familiar phenomenon in a city in which the government has decreed maximum prices for commodities that the government considers as important. This has happened everywhere when the price of milk was controlled. This was always prognosticated by economists. Of course, only by sound economists and their number is not very great. But what is the result of the government's price control? The government is disappointed. It wanted to increase the satisfaction of the milk drinkers, but actually it has dissatisfied them. Before the government interfered, milk was expensive, but people could buy it. Now there is only an insufficient quantity of milk available. Therefore, the total consumption of milk drops. The children are getting less milk, not more. The next measure to which the government now resorts is rationing. But rationing only means that certain people are privileged and are getting milk, while other people are not getting any at all. Who gets milk and who does not, of course, is always very arbitrarily determined. One order may determine, for example, that children under four years old should get milk, and that children over four years or between the ages of four and six should get only half the ration which children under four years receive. Whatever the government does, the fact remains, there is only a smaller amount of milk available. Thus, people are still more dissatisfied than they were before. Now the government asks the milk producers, because the government does not have enough imagination to find out for itself, why do you not produce the same amount of milk you produced before? The government gets the answer, we cannot do it since the costs of production are higher than the maximum price which the government has established. Now the government studies the costs of the various items of production, and it discovers one of the items is fodder. Oh, says the government, the same control we apply to milk, we will now apply to fodder. We will determine a maximum price for fodder, and then you will be able to feed your cows at a lower price, at a lower expenditure. Then everything will be all right. You will be able to produce more milk, and you will sell more milk. But what happens now? The same story repeats itself with fodder, and as you can understand, for the same reasons. The production of fodder drops and the government is again faced with a dilemma. So the government arranges new hearings to find out what is wrong with fodder production. And it gets an explanation from the producers of fodder precisely like the one it got from the milk producers. 
So the government must go a step farther since it does not want to abandon the principle of price control. It determines maximum prices for producers' goods, which are necessary for the production of fodder. And the same story happens again. The government at the same time starts controlling not only milk, but also eggs, meat, and other necessities. And every time the government gets the same result, everywhere the consequence is the same. Once the government fixes a maximum price for consumer goods, it has to go farther back to producers' goods and limit the prices of the producers' goods required for the production of the price-controlled consumer goods. And so the government, having started with only a few price controls, goes farther and farther back in the process of production, fixing maximum prices for all kinds of producers' goods, including, of course, the price of labor, because without wage control, the government's cost control would be meaningless. Moreover, the government cannot limit its interference into the market to only those things which it views as vital necessities, like milk, butter, eggs, and meat. It must necessarily include luxury goods, because if it did not limit their prices, capital and labor would abandon the production of vital necessities and would turn to producing those things which the government considers unnecessary luxury goods. Thus, the isolated interference with one or a few prices of consumer goods always brings about effects, and this is important to realize, which are even less satisfactory than the conditions that prevailed before. Before the government interfered, milk and eggs were expensive. After the government interfered, they began to disappear from the market. The government considered those items to be so important that it interfered. It wanted to increase the quantity and improve the supply. The result was the opposite. The isolated interference brought about a condition which, from the point of view of the government, is even more undesirable than the previous state of affairs which the government wanted to alter. And as the government goes farther and farther, it will finally arrive at a point where all prices, all wage rates, all interest rates, in short, everything in the whole economic system, is determined by the government. And this, clearly, is socialism. What I have told you here, this schematic and theoretical explanation, is precisely what happened in those countries which tried to enforce a maximum price control, where governments were stubborn enough to go step by step until they came to the end. This happened in the First World War in Germany and England. Let us analyze the situation in both countries. Both countries experienced inflation. Prices went up and the two governments imposed price controls. Starting with a few prices, starting with only milk and eggs, they had to go farther and farther. The longer the war went on, the more inflation was generated. And after three years of war, the Germans, systematically as always, elaborated a great plan. They called it the Hindenburg Plan. Everything in Germany considered to be good by the government at that time was named after Hindenburg. The Hindenburg Plan meant that the whole German economic system should be controlled by the government. Prices, wages, profits, everything. And the bureaucracy immediately began to put this into effect. But before they had finished, the debacle came. The German Empire broke down. The entire bureaucratic apparatus disappeared. The revolution brought its bloody results. Things came to an end. In England, they started in the same way. But after a time in the spring of 1917, the United States entered the war and supplied the British with sufficient quantities of everything. Therefore, the road to socialism, the road to serfdom, was interrupted. Before Hitler came to power, Chancellor Brüning again introduced price control in Germany for the usual reasons. 
Hitler enforced it even before the war started. For in Hitler's Germany, there was no private enterprise or private initiative. In Hitler's Germany, there was a system of socialism which differed from the Russian system only to the extent that the terminology and labels of the free economic system were still retained. There still existed private enterprises as they were called. But the owner was no longer an entrepreneur. The owner was called a shop manager. Beitriebsführer. The whole of Germany was organized in a hierarchy of Führers. There was the highest Führer, Hitler, of course. And then there were Führers down to the many hierarchies of smaller Führers. And the head of an enterprise was the Betriebsführer. And the workers of the enterprise were named by a word that in the Middle Ages had signified the retinue of a feudal lord, the Gefolgschaft. And all of these people had to obey the orders issued by an institution which had a terribly long name, Reichsführer Wirtschaftsministerium, at the head of which was the well-known fat man named Goering, adorned with jewelry and medals. And from this body of ministers with the long name came all the orders to every enterprise what to produce, in what quantity, where to get the raw materials and what to pay for them, to whom to sell the products, and at what prices to sell them. The workers got the order to work in a definite factory, and they received wages which the government decreed. The whole economic system was now regulated in every detail by the government. The Betriebsführer did not have the right to take the profits for himself. He received what amounted to a salary. And if he wanted to get more, he would, for example, say, I am very sick, I need an operation immediately, and the operation will cost 500 marks. Then he had to ask the Führer of the district, the Gaufführer or Galeiter, whether he had the right to take out more than the salary which was given to him. The prices were no longer prices, the wages were no longer wages. They were all quantitative terms in a system of socialism. Now let me tell you how that system broke down. One day, after years of fighting, the foreign armies arrived in Germany. They tried to preserve this government-directed economic system, but the brutality of Hitler would have been necessary to preserve it, and without this it did not work. And while this was going on in Germany, Great Britain, during the Second World War, did precisely what Germany did. Starting with the price control of some commodities only, the British government began step-by-step, in the same way Hitler had done in peacetime even before the start of the war, to control more and more of the economy until by the time the war ended, they had reached something that was almost pure socialism. Great Britain was not brought to socialism by the Labour government which was established in 1945. Great Britain became socialist during the war, through the government of which Sir Winston Churchill was the Prime Minister. The Labour government simply retained the system of socialism which the government of Sir Winston Churchill had already introduced, and this in spite of great resistance by the people. The nationalizations in Great Britain did not mean very much. The nationalization of the Bank of England was merely nominal, because the Bank of England was already under the complete control of the government. And it was the same with the nationalization of the railroads and the steel industry. The war socialism, as it was called, meaning the system of interventionism proceeding step by step, had already virtually nationalized the system. The difference between the German and British systems was not important since the people who operated them had been appointed by the government, and in both cases they had to obey the government's orders in every respect. As I said before, the system of the German Nazis retained the labels and terms of the capitalistic free market economy. But they meant something very different. 
there were now only government decrees. This was also true for the British system. When the Conservative Party in Britain was returned to power, some of those controls were removed. In Great Britain, we now have attempts from one side to retain controls and from the other side to abolish them. But one must not forget that in England, conditions are very different from conditions in Russia. The same is true for other countries which depend on the importation of food and raw materials and therefore have to export manufactured goods. For countries depending heavily on export trade, a system of government control simply does not work. Thus, as far as there is economic freedom left, and there is still substantial freedom in some countries such as Norway, England, Sweden, it exists because of the necessity to retain export trade. Earlier, I chose the example of milk, not because I have a special preference for milk, but because practically all governments, or most of them, in recent decades, have regulated milk, egg, or butter prices. I want to refer in a few words to another example, and that is rent control. If the government controls rents, one result is that people who would otherwise have moved from bigger apartments to smaller ones when their family conditions changed will no longer do so. For example, consider parents whose children left home when they came into their 20s, married, or went into other cities to work. Such parents used to change their apartments and take smaller and cheaper ones. This necessity disappeared when rent controls were imposed. In Vienna, Austria, in the early 20s where rent control was well established, the amount of money that the landlord received for an average apartment under rent control was not more than twice the price of a ticket for a ride on the city-owned streetcars. You can imagine that people did not have any incentive to change their apartments. And on the other hand, there was no construction of new houses. Similar conditions prevailed in the United States after the Second World War and are continuing in many cities to this day. One of the main reasons why many cities in the United States are in such great financial difficulty is that they have rent control and a resulting shortage of housing. So the government has spent billions for the building of new houses. But why was there such a housing shortage? The housing shortage developed for the same reasons that brought milk shortages when there was milk price control. That means, when the government interferes with the market, it is more and more driven towards socialism. And this is the answer to those people who say, we are not socialists, we do not want the government to control everything. We realize this is bad. But why should not the government interfere a little bit with the market? Why shouldn't the government do away with some things which we do not like? These people talk of a middle-of-the-road policy. What they do not see is that the isolated interference, which means the interference with only one small part of the economic system, brings about a situation which the government itself and the people who are asking for government interference find worse than the conditions they want to abolish. The people who are asking for rent control are very angry when they discover there is a shortage of apartments and a shortage of housing. But this shortage of housing was created precisely by government interference by the establishment of rents below the level people would have had to pay in a free market. The idea that there is a third system between socialism and capitalism, as its supporters say, a system as far away from socialism as it is from capitalism, but that retains the advantages and avoids the disadvantages of each, is pure nonsense. People who believe there is such a mythical system can become really poetic when they praise the glories of interventionism. One can only say they are mistaken. The government interference which they praise brings about conditions which they themselves do not like.
One of the problems I will deal with later is protectionism. The government tries to isolate the domestic market from the world market. It introduces tariffs which raise the domestic price of a commodity above the world market price, making it possible for domestic producers to form cartels. The cartels are then attacked by the government declaring, under these conditions, anti-cartel legislation is necessary. This is precisely the situation with most of the European governments. In the United States, there are yet other reasons for antitrust legislation and the government's campaign against the specter of monopoly. It is absurd to see the government, which creates by its own intervention the conditions making possible the emergence of domestic cartels, point its finger at business saying, there are cartels, therefore government interference with business is necessary. It would be much simpler to avoid cartels by ending the government's interference with the market an interference which makes these cartels possible. The idea of government interference as a solution to economic problems leads, in every country, to conditions which, at the least, are very unsatisfactory and often quite chaotic. If the government does not stop in time, it will bring on socialism. Nevertheless, government interference with business is still very popular. As soon as someone does not like something that happens in the world, he says, the government ought to do something about it. What do we have a government for? The government should do it. And this is a characteristic remnant of thought from past ages, of ages preceding modern freedom, modern constitutional government, before representative government or modern republicanism. For centuries, there was the doctrine, maintained and accepted by everyone, that a king, an anointed king, was the messenger of God. He had more wisdom than his subjects and he had supernatural powers. As recently as the beginning of the 19th century, people suffering from certain diseases expected to be cured by the royal touch, by the hand of the king. Doctors were usually better nevertheless. They had their patients try the king. This doctrine of the superiority of a paternal government, of the supernatural and superhuman powers of the hereditary kings gradually disappeared, or at least we thought so. But it came back again. There was a German professor named Werner Sombart, I knew him very well, who was known the world over, who was an honorary doctor of many universities and an honorary member of the American Economic Association. That professor wrote a book, which is available in an English translation, published by the Princeton University Press. It is available also in a French translation and probably also in Spanish. At least I hope it is available because then you can check what I am saying. In this book, published in our century, not in the Dark Ages, Werner Sombart, a professor of economics, simply says, the Führer, our Führer, he means, of course, Hitler, gets his orders directly from God, the Führer of the universe. I spoke of this hierarchy of the Führers earlier, and in this hierarchy, I mentioned Hitler as the Supreme Führer. But there is, according to Werner Sombart, a still higher Führer, God, the Führer of the universe. And God, he wrote, gives his orders directly to Hitler. Of course, Professor Sombart said very modestly, We do not know how God communicates with a Führer, but the fact cannot be denied. Now, if you hear that such a book can be published in the German language, the language of a nation which was once hailed as the nation of philosophers and poets, and if you see it translated into English and French, then you will not be astonished at the fact that even a little bureaucrat, 
considers himself wiser and better than the citizens, and wants to interfere with everything, even though he is only a poor little bureaucrat and not the famous professor Werner Sombart, honorary member of everything. Is there a remedy against such happenings? I would say, yes, there is a remedy. And this remedy is the power of the citizens. They have to prevent the establishment of such an autocratic regime that arrogates to itself a higher wisdom than that of the average citizen. This is the fundamental difference between freedom and serfdom. The socialist nations have arrogated to themselves the term democracy. The Russians call their own system a people's democracy. They probably maintain that the people are represented in the person of the dictator. I think that one dictator, Juan Perón, here in Argentina, was given a good answer when he was forced into exile in 1955. Let us hope that all other dictators in other nations will be accorded a similar response. Chapter 17, Keynes and Keynesianism Planning for Freedom and 16 Other Essays and Addresses Lord Keynes and Say's Law Number 1 Lord Keynes's main contribution did not lie in the development of new ideas, but in escaping from the old ones, as he himself declared at the end of the preface to his general theory. The Keynesians tell us that his immortal achievement consists in the entire refutation of what has come to be known as Say's Law of Markets. The rejection of this law, they declare, is the gist of all Keynes's teaching. All other propositions of his doctrine follow with logical necessity from this fundamental insight and must collapse if the futility of his attack on Say's Law can be demonstrated. Now it is important to realize that what is called Say's Law was in the first instance designed as a refutation of doctrines popularly held in the ages preceding the development of economics as a branch of human knowledge. It was not an integral part of the new science of economics as taught by the classical economists. It was rather a preliminary, the exposure and removal of garbled and untenable ideas which dimmed people's minds and were a serious obstacle to a reasonable analysis of conditions. Whenever business turned bad, the average merchant had two explanations at hand. The evil was caused by a scarcity of money and by general overproduction. Adam Smith, in a famous passage in The Wealth of Nations, exploded the first of these myths. Say devoted himself predominantly to a thorough refutation of the second. As long as a definite thing is still an economic good and not a free good, its supply is not, of course, absolutely abundant. There are still unsatisfied needs which a larger supply of the good concerned could satisfy. There are still people who would be glad to get more of this good than they are really getting. With regard to economic goods, there can never be absolute overproduction. And economics deals only with economic goods, not with free goods such as air, which are no object of purposive human action, are therefore not produced, and with regard to which the employment of terms like underproduction and overproduction is simply nonsensical. With regard to economic goods, there can be only relative overproduction. While the consumers are asking for definite quantities of shirts and of shoes, Business has produced, say, a larger quantity of shoes and a smaller quantity of shirts. This is not general overproduction of all commodities. To the overproduction of shoes corresponds an underproduction of shirts. Consequently, the result cannot be a general depression of all branches of business. The outcome is a change in the exchange ratio between shoes and shirts. If, for instance, previously one pair of shoes could buy four shirts, it now buys only three shirts. 
While business is bad for the shoemakers, it is good for the shirt makers. The attempt to explain the general depression of trade by referring to an allegedly general overproduction are therefore fallacious. Commodities, says Say, are ultimately paid for not by money, but by other commodities. Money is merely the commonly used medium of exchange. It plays only an intermediary role. What the seller wants ultimately to receive in exchange for the commodity sold is other commodities. Every commodity produced is therefore a price, as it were, for other commodities produced. The situation of the producer of any commodity is improved by any increase in the production of other commodities. What may hurt the interests of the producer of a definite commodity is his failure to anticipate correctly the state of the market. He has overrated the public's demand for his commodity and underrated its demand for other commodities. Consumers have no use for such a bungling entrepreneur. They buy his products only at prices which make him incur losses, and they force him, if he does not in time correct his mistakes, to go out of business. On the other hand, those entrepreneurs who have better succeeded in anticipating the public demand earn profits and are in a position to expand their business activities. This, says Say, is the truth behind the confused assertions of businessmen, that the main difficulty is not in producing but in selling. It would be more appropriate to declare that the first and main problem of business is to produce in the best and cheapest way those commodities which will satisfy the most urgent of the not-yet-satisfied needs of the public. Thus, Smith and Say demolished the oldest and most naive explanation of the trade cycle, as provided by the popular effusions of inefficient traders. True, their achievement was merely negative. They exploded the belief that the recurrence of periods of bad business was caused by a scarcity of money and by a general overproduction. But they did not give us an elaborated theory of the trade cycle. The first explanation of this phenomenon was provided much later by the British Currency School. The important contributions of Smith and Say were not entirely new and original. The history of economic thought can trace back some essential points of their reasoning to older authors. This in no way detracts from the merits of Smith and Say. They were the first to deal with the issue in a systematic way and to apply their conclusions to the problem of economic depressions. They were, therefore, also the first against whom the supporters of the spurious popular doctrine directed their violent attacks. Sismondi and Malthus chose Say as the target of passionate volleys when they tried, in vain, to salvage the discredited popular prejudices. Number 2. Say emerged victoriously from his polemics with Malthus and Sismondi. He proved his case while his adversaries could not prove theirs. Henceforth, during the whole rest of the 19th century, the acknowledgement of the truth contained in Say's law was the distinctive mark of an economist. Those authors and politicians who made the alleged scarcity of money responsible for all ills and advocated inflation as the panacea were no longer considered economists but monetary cranks. The struggle between the champions of sound money and the inflationists went on for many decades. But it was no longer considered a controversy between various schools of economists. It was viewed as a conflict between economists and anti-economists, between reasonable men and ignorant zealots. When all civilized countries had adopted the gold standard or the gold exchange standard, the cause of inflation seemed to be lost forever. Economics did not content itself with what Smith and Say had taught about the problems involved. It developed an integrated system of theorems which cogently demonstrated the absurdity of the inflationist sophisms.
It depicted in detail the inevitable consequences of an increase in the quantity of money in circulation and of credit expansion. It elaborated the monetary or circulation credit theory of the business cycle, which clearly showed how the recurrence of depressions of trade is caused by the repeated attempts to stimulate business through credit expansion. Thus, it conclusively proved that the slump, whose appearance the inflationists attributed to an insufficiency of the supply of money, is on the contrary the necessary outcome of attempts to remove such an alleged scarcity of money through credit expansion. The economists did not contest the fact that a credit expansion in its initial stage makes business boom. But they pointed out how such a contrived boom must inevitably collapse after a while and produce a general depression. This demonstration could appeal to statesmen intent on promoting the enduring well-being of their nation. It could not influence demagogues who care for nothing but success in the impending election campaign and are not in the least troubled about what will happen the day after tomorrow. But it is precisely such people who have become supreme in the political life of this age of wars and revolutions. In defiance of all the teaching of the economists, inflation and credit expansion have been elevated to the dignity of the first principle of economic policy. Nearly all governments are now committed to reckless spending and finance their deficits by issuing additional quantities of unredeemable paper money and by boundless credit expansion. The great economists were harbingers of new ideas. The economic policies they recommended were at variance with the policies practiced by contemporary governments and political parties. As a rule, many years, even decades passed before public opinion accepted the new ideas as propagated by the economists and before the required corresponding changes in policies were effected. It was different with the new economics of Lord Keynes. The policies he advocated were precisely those which almost all governments, including the British, had already adopted many years before his general theory was published. Keynes was not an innovator and champion of new methods of managing economic affairs. His contribution consisted rather in providing an apparent justification for the policies which were popular with those in power, in spite of the fact that all economists viewed them as disastrous. His achievement was a rationalization of the policies already practiced. He was not a revolutionary, as some of his adepts called him. The Keynesian revolution took place long before Keynes approved of it and fabricated a pseudoscientific justification for it. What he really did was to write an apology for the prevailing policies of governments. This explains the quick success of his book. It was greeted enthusiastically by the governments and the ruling political parties. Especially enraptured were a new type of intellectuals, the government economists. They had had a bad conscience. They were aware of the fact that they were carrying out policies which all economists condemned as contrary to purpose and disastrous. Now they felt relieved. The new economics re-established their moral equilibrium. Today, they are no longer ashamed of being the handymen of bad policies. They glorify themselves. They are the prophets of the new creed. Number 3. The exuberant epithets which these admirers have bestowed upon this work cannot obscure the fact that Keynes did not refute Say's law. He rejected it emotionally, but he did not advance a single tenable argument to invalidate its rationale. Neither did Keynes try to refute by discursive reasoning the teachings of modern economics. He chose to ignore them, that was all. He never found any word of serious criticism against the theorem that increasing the quantity of money cannot affect anything else than, on the one hand, 
to favor some groups at the expense of other groups, and on the other hand, to foster capital malinvestment and capital decumulation. He was at a complete loss when it came to advancing any sound argument to demolish the monetary theory of the trade cycle. All he did was to revive the self-contradictory dogmas of the various sects of inflationism. He did not add anything to the empty presumptions of his predecessors, from the old Birmingham school of little shilling men down to Silvio Gesell. He merely translated their sophisms, a hundred times refuted, into the questionable language of mathematical economics. He passed over in silence all the objections which such men as Jevons, Valross, and Wicksell, to name only a few, opposed to the effusions of the inflationists. It is the same with his disciples. They think that calling those who fail to be moved to admiration of Keynes's genius, such names as dullard or narrow-minded fanatic, is a substitute for sound economic reasoning. They believe that they have proved their case by dismissing their adversaries as orthodox or neoclassical. They reveal the utmost ignorance in thinking that their doctrine is correct because it is new. In fact, inflationism is the oldest of all fallacies. It was very popular long before the days of Smith, Say, and Ricardo, against whose teaching the Keynesians cannot advance any other objection than that they are old. Number 4. The unprecedented success of Keynesianism is due to the fact that it provides an apparent justification for the deficit-spending policies of contemporary governments. It is the pseudo-philosophy of those who can think of nothing else than to dissipate the capital accumulated by previous generations. Yet no effusions of authors, however brilliant and sophisticated, can alter the perennial economic laws. They are and work and take care of themselves. Notwithstanding all the passionate fulminations of the spokesmen of governments, the inevitable consequences of inflationism and expansionism, as depicted by the orthodox economists, are coming to pass. And then, very late indeed, even simple people will discover that Keynes did not teach us how to perform the miracle of turning a stone into bread, but the not-all-miraculous procedure of eating the seed corn. Stones into Bread, the Keynesian Miracle Number 1. The stock-in-trade of all socialist authors is the idea that there is potential plenty and that the substitution of socialism for capitalism would make it possible to give to everybody according to his needs. Other authors want to bring about this paradise by a reform of the monetary and credit system. As they see it, all that is lacking is more money and credit. They consider that the rate of interest is a phenomenon artificially created by the man-made scarcity of the means of payment. In hundreds, even thousands of books and pamphlets, they passionately blame the orthodox economists for their reluctance to admit that inflationist and expansionist doctrines are sound. All evils, they repeat again and again, are caused by the erroneous teachings of the dismal science of economics and the credit monopoly of the bankers and usurers. To unchain money from the fetters of restrictionism, to create free money, Freigeld in the terminology of Silvio Gassel, and to grant cheap or even gratuitous credit, is the main plank in their political platform. Such ideas appeal to the uninformed masses, and they are very popular with governments committed to a policy of increasing the quantity both of money in circulation and of deposits subject to check. However, the inflationist governments and parties have not been ready to admit openly their endorsement of the tenets of the inflationists. While most countries embarked upon inflation and on a policy of easy money, 
the literary champions of inflationism were still spurned as monetary cranks. Their doctrines were not taught at the universities. John Maynard Keynes, late economic advisor to the British government, is the new prophet of inflationism. The Keynesian revolution consisted in the fact that he openly espoused the doctrines of Silvio Gesell. As the foremost of the British Gesellians, Lord Keynes adopted also the peculiar messianic jargon of inflationist literature and introduced it into official documents. Credit expansion, says the paper of the British experts of April 8, 1943, performs the miracle of turning a stone into bread. The author of this document was, of course, Keynes. Great Britain has indeed traveled a long way to the statement from Hume's and Mill's views on miracles. Number 2. Keynes entered the political scene in 1920 with his book, The Economic Consequences of the Peace. He tried to prove that the sums demanded for reparations were far in excess of what Germany could afford to pay and to transfer. The success of the book was overwhelming. The propaganda machine of the German nationalists, well entrenched in every country, was busily representing Keynes as the world's most eminent economist and Great Britain's wisest statesman. Yet it would be a mistake to blame Keynes for the suicidal foreign policy that Great Britain followed in the interwar period. Other forces, especially the adoption of the Marxian doctrine of imperialism and capitalist warmongering, were of incomparably greater importance in the rise of appeasements. With the exception of a small number of keen-sighted men, all Britons supported the policy which finally made it possible for the Nazis to start the Second World War. A highly gifted French economist, Etienne Manteau, has analyzed Keynes's famous book point for point. The result of his very careful and conscientious study is devastating for Keynes the economist and statistician, as well as Keynes the statesman. The friends of Keynes are at a loss to find any substantial rejoinder. The only argument that his friend and biographer, Professor E.A.G. Robinson, could advance is that this powerful indictment of Keynes's position came, as might have been expected, from a Frenchman. As if the disastrous effects of appeasement and defeatism had not affected Great Britain also. Etienne Mentou, son of the famous historian Paul Mentou, was the most distinguished of the younger French economists. He had already made valuable contributions to economic theory, among them a keen critique of Keynes's general theory, published in 1937 in the Revue d'Economie Politique, before he began his The Carthaginian Peace or The Economic Consequences of Mr. Keynes. He did not live to see his book published. As an officer in the French forces, he was killed on active service during the last days of the war. His premature death was a heavy blow to France, which is today badly in need of sound and courageous economists. Number 3. It would be a mistake also to blame Keynes for the faults and failures of contemporary British economic and financial policies. When he began to write, Britain had long since abandoned the principle of laissez-faire. That was the achievement of such men as Thomas Carlyle and John Ruskin, and especially of the Fabians. Those born in the 80s of the 19th century and later were merely epigons of the university and parlor socialists of the late Victorian period. They were no critics of the ruling system, as their predecessors had been, but apologists of government and pressure group policies whose inadequacy, futility, and perniciousness became more and more evident. 
Professor Seymour E. Harris has just published a stout volume of collected essays by various academic and bureaucratic authors dealing with Keynes's doctrines as developed in his General Theory of Employment, Interest, and Money, published in 1936. The title of the volume is The New Economics, Keynes's Influence on Theory and Public Policy. Whether Keynesianism has a fair claim to the appellation New Economics, or whether it is not, rather a rehash of often refuted mercantilist fallacies, and of the syllogisms of the innumerable authors who wanted to make everybody prosperous by fiat money, is unimportant. What matters is not whether a doctrine is new, but whether it is sound. The remarkable thing about the symposium is that it does not even attempt to refute the substantiated objections raised against Keynes by serious economists. The editor seems to be unable to conceive that any honest and uncorrupted man could disagree with Keynes. As he sees it, opposition to Keynes comes from the vested interests of scholars in the older theory and the preponderant influence of press, radio, finance, and subsidized research. In his eyes, non-Keynesians are just a bunch of bribed sycophants unworthy of attention. Professor Harris thus adopts the methods of the Marxians and the Nazis, who prefer to smear their critics and to question their motives instead of refuting their theses. A few of the contributions are written in dignified language and are reserved, even critical, in their appraisal of Keynes's achievements. Others are simply dithyrambic outbursts. Thus, Professor Paul A. Samuelson tells us, To have been born as an economist before 1936 was a boon, yes, but not to have been born too long before. And he proceeds to quote Wordsworth, Bliss was it in that dawn to be alive, but to be young was very heaven. Descending from the lofty heights of Parnassus into the prosaic valleys of quantitative science, Professor Samuelson provides us with exact information about the susceptibility of economists to the Keynesian Gospel of 1936. Those under the age of 35 fully grasped its meaning after some time. Those beyond 50 turned out to be quite immune, while economists in between were divided. After thus serving us a warmed-over version of Mussolini's Giovanezza theme, he offers more of the outworn slogans of fascism. Example, the wave of the future. However, on this point, another contributor, Mr. Paul M. Sweezy, disagrees. In his eyes, Keynes, tainted by the shortcomings of bourgeois thought, as he was, is not the savior of mankind but only the forerunner whose historical mission it is to prepare the British mind for the acceptance of pure Marxism and to make Great Britain ideologically ripe for full socialism. Number 4. In resorting to the method of innuendo and trying to make their adversary suspect by referring to them in ambiguous terms, allowing of various interpretations, the camp followers of Lord Keynes are imitating their idol's own procedures for what many people have admiringly called Keynes's brilliance of style and mastery of language were in fact cheap rhetorical tricks. Ricardo, says Keynes, conquered England as completely as the Holy Inquisition conquered Spain. This is as vicious as any comparison could be. The Inquisition, aided by armed constables and executioners, beat the Spanish people into submission. Ricardo's theories were accepted as correct by British intellectuals, without any pressure or compulsion being exercised in their favor. But in comparing the two entirely different things, Keynes obliquely hints that there was something shameful in the success of Ricardo's teachings, and that those who disapprove of them are as heroic, noble, and fearless champions of freedom 
as were those who fought the horrors of the Inquisition. The most famous of Keynes's apersis is two pyramids, two masses for the dead, are twice as good as one, but not so two railways from London to York. It is obvious that this Sally worth of a character in a play by Oscar Wilde or Bernard Shaw does not in any way prove the thesis that digging holes in the ground and paying for them out of savings will increase the real national dividend of useful goods and services. But it puts the adversary in the awkward position of either leaving an apparent argument unanswered or of employing the tools of logic and discursive reasoning against sparkling wit. Another instance of Keynes's techniques is provided by his malicious description of the Paris Peace Conference. Keynes disagreed with Clemenceau's ideas. Thus, he tried to ridicule his adversary by broadly expatriating upon his clothing and appearance, which it seems did not meet with the standards set by London outfitters. It is hard to discover any connection with the German reparations problem in the fact that Clemenceau's boots were of thick black leather, very good but of a country style, and sometimes fastened in front, curiously, by a buckle instead of laces. After 15 million human beings had perished in the war, the foremost statesmen of the world were assembled to give mankind a new international order and lasting peace. And the British Empire's financial expert was amused by the rustic style of the French Prime Minister's footwear. Fourteen years later, there was another international conference. This time, Keynes was not a subordinate advisor, as in 1999, but one of the main figures. Concerning this London World Economic Conference of 1933, Professor Robinson observes, Many economists the world over will remember the performance in 1933 at Covent Garden in honor of the delegates of the World Economic Conference, which owed its conception and organization very much to Maynard Keynes. Those economists who were not in the service of one of the lamentably inept governments of 1933 and therefore were not delegates, and did not attend the delightful ballet evening, will remember the London Conference for other reasons. It marked the most spectacular failure in the history of international affairs of those policies of neo-mercantilism, which Keynes backed. Compared with this fiasco of 1933, the Paris Conference of 1919 appears to have been a highly successful affair. But Keynes did not publish any sarcastic comments on the coats, boots, and gloves of the delegates of 1933. Number 5. Although Keynes looked upon the strange, unduly neglected prophet Silvio Gesell as a forerunner, his own teachings differ considerably from those of Gesell. What Keynes borrowed from Gesell, as well as from the host of other pro-inflation propagandists, was not the content of their doctrine but their practical conclusions and the tactics they applied to undermine their opponent's prestige. These stratagems are A. All adversaries, that is, all those who do not consider credit expansion as the panacea, are lumped together and called orthodox. It is implied that there are no differences between them. B. It is assumed that the evolution of economic science culminated in Alfred Marshall and ended with him. The findings of modern subjective economics are disregarded. C. All that economists from David Hume on down to our time have done to clarify the results of changes in the quantity of money and money substitutes is simply ignored. Keynes never embarked upon the hopeless task of refuting these teachings by ratiocination. In all these respects, the contributors to the symposium adopt their master's technique. 
Their critique aims at a body of doctrine created by their own illusions, which has no resemblance to the theories expounded by serious economists. They pass over in silence all that economists have said about the inevitable outcome of credit expansion. It seems as if they have never heard anything about the monetary theory of the trade cycle. For a correct appraisal of the success which Keynes's general theory found in academic circles, one must consider the conditions prevailing in university economics during the period between the two world wars. Among the men who occupied chairs of economics in the last few decades, there have been only a few genuine economists, i.e. men fully conversant with the theories developed by modern subjective economics. The ideas of the old classical economists, as well as those of the modern economists, were caricatured in the textbooks and in the classrooms. They were called such names as old-fashioned, orthodox, reactionary, bourgeois, or Wall Street economics. The teachers prided themselves on having refuted for all time the abstract doctrines of Manchesterism and laissez-faire. The antagonism between the two schools of thought had its practical focus in the treatment of the labor union problem. Those economists, disparaged as orthodox, taught that a permanent rise in wage rates for all people eager to earn wages is possible only to the extent that the per capita quota of capital invested and the productivity of labor increases. If, whether by government decree or by labor union pressure, minimum wage rates are fixed at a higher level than that at which the unhampered market would have fixed them, unemployment results as a permanent mass phenomenon. Almost all professors of the fashionable universities sharply attacked this theory. As these self-styled unorthodox doctrinaires interpreted the economic history of the last 200 years, the unprecedented rise in real wage rates and standards of living was caused by labor unionism and government pro-labor legislation. Labor unionism was, in their opinion, highly beneficial to the true interests of all wage earners and of the whole nation. Only dishonest apologists of the manifestly unfair interests of callous exploiters could find fault with the violent acts of the unions they maintained. The foremost concern of popular government, they said, should be to encourage the unions as much as possible and to give them all the assistance they needed to combat the intrigues of the employers and to fix wage rates higher and higher. But as soon as the governments and legislatures had vested the unions with all the powers they needed to enforce their minimum wage rates, the consequences appeared which the orthodox economists had predicted. Unemployment of a considerable part of the potential labor force was prolonged year after year. The unorthodox doctrinaires were perplexed. The only argument they had advanced against the orthodox theory was the appeal to their own fallacious interpretation of experience. But now events developed precisely as the abstract school had predicted. There was confusion among the unorthodox. It was at this moment that Keynes published his general theory. What a comfort for the embarrassed progressives. Here, at last, they had something to oppose to the orthodox view. The cause of unemployment was not the inappropriate labor policies, but the shortcomings of the monetary and credit system. No need to worry any longer about the insufficiency of savings and capital accumulation and about deficits in the public household. On the contrary, the only method to do away with unemployment was to increase effective demand through public spending financed by credit expansion and inflation. The policies which the general theory recommended were precisely those which the monetary cranks had advanced long before and which most governments had espoused in the Depression of 1929 and the following years. 
Some people believe that Keynes's earlier writings played an important part in the process which converted the world's most powerful governments to the doctrines of reckless spending, credit expansion, and inflation. We may leave this minor issue undecided. At any rate, it cannot be denied that the governments and peoples did not wait for the general theory to embark upon these Keynesian, or more correctly, Gesellian policies. Number 6. Keynes's general theory of 1936 did not inaugurate a new age of economic policies. Rather, it marked the end of a period. The policies which Keynes recommended were already then very close to the time when their inevitable consequences would be apparent and their continuation would be impossible. Even the most fanatical Keynesians do not dare to say that present-day England's distress is an effect of too much saving and insufficient spending. The essence of the much-glorified progressive economic policies of the last decade was to expropriate ever-increasing parts of the higher incomes and to employ the funds thus raised for financial public waste and for subsidizing the members of the most powerful pressure groups. In the eyes of the unorthodox, every kind of policy, however manifest its inadequacy may have been, was justified as a means of bringing about more equality. Now this process has reached its end. With the present tax rate and the methods applied in the control of prices, profits, and interest rates, the system has liquidated itself. Even the confiscation of every penny earned above £1,000 a year will not provide any perceptible increase to Great Britain's public revenue. The most bigoted Fabians cannot fail to realize that henceforth, funds for public spending must be taken from the same people who are supposed to profit from it. Great Britain has reached the limit both of monetary expansionism and of spending. Conditions in this country are not essentially different. The Keynesian recipe to make wage rates soar no longer works. Credit expansion on an unprecedented scale engineered by the New Deal for a short time delayed the consequences of inappropriate labor policies. During this interval, the administration and the union bosses could boast of the social gains they had secured for the common men. But now, the inevitable consequences of the increase in the quantity of money and deposits has become visible. Prices are rising higher and higher. What is going on today in the United States is the final failure of Keynesianism. There is no doubt that the American public is moving away from the Keynesian notions and slogans. Their prestige is dwindling. Only a few years ago, politicians were naively discussing the extent of national income in dollars without taking into account the changes which government-made inflation had brought about in the dollar's purchasing power. Demagogues specified the level to which they wanted to bring the national dollar income. Today, this form of reasoning is no longer popular. At last, the common man has learned that increasing the quantity of dollars does not make America richer. Professor Harris still praises the Roosevelt administration for having raised dollar incomes. But such Keynesian consistency is found today only in classrooms. There are still teachers who tell their students that an economy can lift itself by its own bootstraps and that we can spend our way into prosperity. But the Keynesian miracle fails to materialize. The stones do not turn into bread. The panegyrics of the learned authors who cooperated in the production of the present volume merely confirm the editor's introductory statement that Keynes could awaken in his disciples an almost religious fervor for his economics, 
which could be effectively harnessed for the dissemination of the new economics. And Professor Harris goes on to say, Keynes indeed had the revelation. There is no use in arguing with people who are driven by an almost religious fervor and believe that their master had the revelation. It is one of the tasks of economics to analyze carefully each of the inflationist plans, those of Keynes and Gesell, no less than those of their innumerable predecessors from John Law down to Major Douglas. Yet no one should expect that any logical argument or any experience could ever shake the almost religious fervor of those who believe in salvation through spending and credit expansion. Human Action The Chimera of Contracyclical Policies An essential element of the unorthodox doctrines, advanced both by all socialists and by all interventionists, is that the recurrence of depressions is a phenomenon inherent in the very operation of the market economy. But while the socialists contend that only the substitution of socialism for capitalism can eradicate the evil, the interventionists ascribe to the government the power to correct the operation of the market economy in such a way as to bring about what they call economic stability. These interventionists would be right if their anti-depression plans were to aim at a radical abandonment of credit expansion policies. However, they reject this idea in advance. What they want is to expand credit more and more and to prevent depressions by the adoption of special contracyclical measures. In the context of these plans, the government appears as a deity that stands and works outside the orbit of human affairs, that is independent of the actions of its subjects, and has the power to interfere with these actions from without. It has, at its disposal, means and funds that are not provided by the people, and can be freely used for whatever purposes the rulers are prepared to employ them for. What is needed to make the most beneficent use of this power is merely to follow the advice given by the experts. The most advertised among these suggested remedies is contracyclical timing of public works and expenditure on public enterprises. The idea is not so new as its champions would have us believe. When depression came, in the past, public opinion always asked the government to embark upon public works in order to create jobs and to stop the drop in prices. But the problem is how to finance these public works. If the government taxes the citizens or borrows from them, it does not add anything to what the Keynesians call the aggregate amount of spending. It restricts the private citizen's power to consume or to invest to the same extent that it increases its own. If, however, the government resorts to the cherished inflationary methods of financing, it makes things worse, not better. It may thus delay for a short time the outbreak of the slump. But when the unavoidable payoff does come, the crisis is the heavier the longer the government has postponed it. The interventionist experts are at a loss to grasp the real problems involved. As they see it, the main thing is to plan public capital expenditure well in advance and to accumulate a shelf of fully worked out capital projects, which can be put into operation at short notice. This, they say, is the right policy and one which we recommend all countries should adopt. However, the problem is not to elaborate projects, but to provide the material means for their execution. The interventionists believe that this could be easily achieved by holding back government expenditure in the boom and increasing when the depression comes. Now, restriction of government expenditure may certainly be a good thing, but it does not provide the funds a government needs for a later expansion of its expenditure.
An individual may conduct his affairs in this way. He may accumulate savings when his income is high and spend them later when his income drops. But it is different with a nation or all nations together. The treasury may hoard a considerable part of the lavish revenue from taxes, which flows into the public exchequer as a result of the boom. As far and as long as it withholds these funds from circulation, its policy is really deflationary and contracyclical, and may to this extent weaken the boom created by credit expansion. But when these funds are spent again, they alter the money relation and create a cash-induced tendency toward a drop in the monetary unit's purchasing power. By no means can these funds provide the capital goods required for the execution of the shelved public works. The fundamental error of the interventionists consists in the fact that they ignore the shortage of capital goods. In their eyes, the depression is merely caused by a mysterious lack of the people's propensity, both to consume and to invest. While the only real problem is to produce more and to consume less in order to increase the stock of capital goods available, the interventionists want to increase both consumption and investment. They want the government to embark upon projects which are unprofitable precisely because the factors of production needed for their execution must be withdrawn from other lines of employment in which they would fulfill once the satisfaction of which the consumers consider more urgent. They do not realize that such public works must considerably intensify the real evil, the shortage of capital goods. One could, of course, think of another mode for the employment of the savings the government makes in the boom period. The Treasury could invest its surplus in buying large stocks of all those materials, which it will later, when the Depression comes, need for the execution of the public works planned and of the consumer's goods, which those occupied in these public works will ask for. But if the authorities were to act in this way, they would considerably intensify the boom, accelerate the outbreak of the crisis, and make its consequences more serious. All this talk about contracyclical government activities aims at one goal only, namely to divert the public's attention from cognizance of the real cause of the cyclical fluctuations of business. All governments are firmly committed to the policy of low interest rates, credit expansion, and inflation. When the unavoidable aftermath of these short-term policies appears, they know only of one remedy, to go on in inflationary ventures. Chapter 18, Economic Progress Economic Policy, Thoughts for Tomorrow and Today Foreign Investment Some people call the programs of economic freedom a negative program. They say, what do you liberals really want? You are against socialism, government intervention, inflation, labor union violence, protective tariffs. You say no to everything. I would call this statement a one-sided and shallow formulation of the problem for it is possible to formulate a liberal program in a positive way. If a man says, I am against censorship, he is not negative. He is in favor of authors having the right to determine what they want to publish without the interference of government. This is not negativism, this is precisely freedom. Of course, when I use the term liberal with respect to the conditions of the economic system, I mean liberal in the old classical sense of the word. Today, most people regard the considerable differences in the standard of living between many countries as unsatisfactory. 200 years ago, conditions in Great Britain were much worse than they are today in India. But the British in 1750 did not call themselves undeveloped or backward. 
because they were not in a position to compare the conditions of their country with those of countries in which economic conditions were more satisfactory. Today, all people who have not attained the average standard of living of the United States believe that there is something wrong with their own economic situation. Many of these countries call themselves developing countries, and as such are asking for aid from the so-called developed or even overdeveloped countries. Let me explain the reality of this situation. The standard of living is lower in the so-called developing countries because the average earnings for the same type of labor is lower in those countries than it is in some countries of Western Europe, Canada, Japan, and especially in the United States. If we try to find the reasons for this difference, we must realize that it is not due to an inferiority of the workers or other employees. There prevails among some groups of North American workers a tendency to believe that they themselves are better than other people that it is through their own merit that they are getting higher wages than other people. It would only be necessary for an American worker to visit another country, let us say Italy, where many American workers came from, in order to discover that it is not his personal qualities, but the conditions in the country that made it possible for him to earn higher wages. If a man from Sicily immigrates to the United States, he can very soon earn the wage rates that are customary in the United States. And if the same man returns to Sicily, he will discover that his visit to the United States did not give him qualities which would permit him to earn higher wages in Sicily than his fellow countrymen. Nor can one explain this economic situation by assuming any inferiority on the part of the entrepreneurs outside the United States. It is a fact that outside of the United States, Canada, Western Europe, and certain parts of Asia, the equipment of the factories and the technological methods employed are by and large inferior to those within the United States. But this is not due to the ignorance of the entrepreneurs in those undeveloped countries. They know very well that the factories in the United States and Canada are much better equipped. They themselves know everything they must know about technology, and if they do not, they have the opportunity to learn what they must know from textbooks and technical magazines which disseminate this knowledge. Once again, the difference is not personal inferiority or ignorance. The difference is the supply of capital, the quantity of capital goods available. In other words, the amount of capital invested per unit of the population is greater in the so-called advanced nations than in the developing nations. A businessman cannot pay a worker more than the amount added by the work of this employee to the value of the product. He cannot pay him more than the customers are prepared to pay for the additional work of this individual worker. If he pays him more, he will not recover his expenditures from the customers. He incurs losses, and as I have pointed out again and again, and as everybody knows, a businessman who suffers losses must change his methods of business or go bankrupt. The economists describe this state of affairs by saying, wages are determined by the marginal productivity of labor. This is only another expression for what I have just said before. It is a fact that the scale of wages is determined by the amount a man's work increases the value of the product. If a man works with better and more efficient tools, then he can perform in one hour much more than a man who works one hour with less efficient instruments. It is obvious that 100 men working in an American shoe factory equipped with the most modern tools and machines produce much more in the same length of time than 100 shoemakers in India who have to work with old-fashioned tools in a less sophisticated way. 
The employers in all of these developing nations know very well that better tools would make their own enterprises more profitable. They would like to build more and better factories. The only thing that prevents them from doing it is the shortage of capital. The difference between the less developed and the more developed nations is a function of time. The British started to save sooner than all other nations. They also started sooner to accumulate capital and to invest it in business. Because they started sooner, there was a higher standard of living in Great Britain, when in all other European countries there was still a lower standard of living. Gradually, all the other nations began to study British conditions, and it was not difficult for them to discover the reason for Great Britain's wealth. So they began to imitate the methods of British business. Since other nations started later, and since the British did not stop investing capital, there remained a large difference between conditions in England and conditions in those other countries. But something happened which caused the head start of Great Britain to disappear. What happened was the greatest event in the history of the 19th century, and this means not only in the history of an individual country. This great event was the development in the 19th century of foreign investment. In 1817, the great British economist Ricardo still took it for granted that capital could be invested only within the borders of a country. He took it for granted that capitalists would not try to invest abroad. But a few decades later, capital investment abroad began to play a most important role in world affairs. Without capital investment, it would have been necessary for nations less developed than Great Britain to start with the methods and the technology with which the British had started in the beginning and middle of the 18th century, and slowly, step by step, always far below the technological level of the British economy, try to imitate what the British had done. It would have taken many, many decades for these countries to attain the standard of technological development which Great Britain had reached a hundred years or more before them. But the great event that helped all these countries was foreign investment. Foreign investment meant that British capitalists invested British capital in other parts of the world. They first invested it in those European countries, which, from the point of view of Great Britain, were short of capital and backward in their development. It is a well-known fact that the railroads of most European countries, and also of the United States, were built with the aid of British capital. You know that the same happened in this country, in Argentina. The gas companies in all the cities of Europe were also British. In the mid-1870s, a British author and poet criticized his countrymen. He said, The British have lost their old vigor, and they have no longer any new ideas. They are no longer an important or leading nation in the world. To which Herbert Spencer, the great sociologist, answered, Look at the European continent. All European capitals have light because a British gas company provides them with gas. This was, of course, in what seems to us the remote age of gaslighting. Further answering this British critic, Herbert Spencer added, You say that the Germans are far ahead of Great Britain. But look at Germany. Even Berlin, the capital of the German Reich, the capital of Geist, would be in the dark if a British gas company had not invaded the country and lighted the streets. In the same way, British capital developed the railroads and many branches of industry in the United States. And of course, as long as a country imports capital, its balance of trade is what the non-economists call unfavorable. That means that it has an excess of imports over exports. The reason for the favorable balance of trade of Great Britain was that the British factories sent many types of equipment to the United States, and this equipment was not paid for by anything other than shares of American corporations. 
This period in the history of the United States lasted, by and large, until the 1890s. But when the United States, with the aid of British capital, and later with the aid of its own pro-capitalistic policies, developed its own economic system in an unprecedented way, the Americans began to buy back the capital stocks they had once sold to foreigners. Then, the United States had a surplus of exports over imports. The difference was paid by the importation, by the repatriation, as one called it, of American common stock. This period lasted until the First World War. What happened later is another story. It is the story of the American subsidies for the belligerent countries in between and after two world wars. The loans, the investments the United States made in Europe, in addition to Lend-Lease, foreign aid, the Marshall Plan, food that was sent overseas, and other subsidies. I emphasize this because people sometimes believe that it is shameful or degrading to have foreign capital working in their country. You have to realize that, in all countries except England, foreign capital investment played a considerable part in the development of modern industries. If I say that foreign investment was the greatest historical event of the 19th century, you must think of all those things that would not have come into being if there had not been any foreign investment. All the railroads, the harbors, the factories and mines in Asia, and the Suez Canal, and many other things in the Western Hemisphere, would not have been constructed had there been no foreign investment. Foreign investment is made in the expectation that it will not be expropriated. Nobody would invest anything if he knew in advance that somebody would expropriate his investments. At the time when these foreign investments were made in the 19th century and at the beginning of the 20th century, there was no question of expropriation. From the beginning, some countries showed a certain hostility toward foreign capital. But for the most part, they realized very well that they derived an enormous advantage from these foreign investments. In some cases, these foreign investments were not made directly to foreign capitalists, but indirectly by loans to the foreign government. Then it was the government that used the money for investments. Such was, for instance, the case in Russia. For purely political reasons, the French invested in Russia, in the two decades preceding the First World War, about 20 billion gold francs, lending them chiefly to the Russian government. All the great enterprises of the Russian government, for instance the railroad that connects Russia from the Ural Mountains through the ice and snow of Siberia to the Pacific, were built mostly with foreign capital lent to the Russian government. You will realize that the French did not assume that one day there would be a communist Russian government that would simply declare it would not pay the debts incurred by its predecessor, the Tsarist government. Starting with the First World War, there began a period of worldwide open warfare against foreign investments. Since there is no remedy to prevent a government from expropriating invested capital, there is practically no legal protection for foreign investments in the world today. The capitalists did not foresee this. If the capitalists of the capital-exporting countries had realized it, all foreign investments would have come to an end 40 or 50 years ago. But the capitalists did not believe that any country would be so unethical as to renege on a debt, to expropriate and confiscate foreign capital. With these acts, a new chapter began in the economic history of the world. With the end of the Great Period in the 19th century when foreign capital helped to develop in all parts of the world, modern methods of transportation, manufacturing, mining, and agriculture, 
There came a new era in which the governments and the political parties considered the foreign investor as an exploiter who should be expelled from the country. In this anti-capitalist attitude, the Russians were not the only sinners. Remember, for example, that expropriation of the American oil fields in Mexico and all the things that have happened in this country, Argentina, which I have no need to discuss. The situation in the world today, created by the system of expropriation of foreign capital, consists either of direct expropriation or of indirect expropriation through foreign exchange control or tax discrimination. This is mainly a problem of developing nations. Take, for instance, the biggest of these nations, India. Under the British system, British capital, predominantly British capital, but also capital of other European countries, was invested in India. And the British exported to India something else which also has to be mentioned in this connection. They exported into India modern methods of fighting contagious diseases. The result was a tremendous increase in the Indian population and a corresponding increase in the country's troubles. Facing such a worsening situation, India turned to expropriation as a means of dealing with its problems. But it was not always direct expropriation. The government harassed foreign capitalists, hampering them in their investments in such a way that these foreign investors were forced to sell out. India could, of course, accumulate capital by another method, the domestic accumulation of capital. However, India is as hostile to the domestic accumulation of capital as it is to foreign capitalists. The Indian government says it wants to industrialize India, but what it really has in mind is to have socialist enterprises. A few years ago, the famous statesman Jawaharlal Nehru published a collection of his speeches. The book was published with the intention of making foreign investment in India more attractive. The Indian government is not opposed to foreign investment before it is invested. The hostility begins only when it is already invested. In this book, I am quoting literally from the book, Mr. Nehru said, Of course, we want to socialize, but we are not opposed to private enterprise. We want to encourage in every way private enterprise. We want to promise the entrepreneurs who invest in our country that we will not expropriate them nor socialize them for 10 years, perhaps even for a longer time. And he thought this was an invitation to come to India. The problem, as you know, is domestic capital accumulation. In all countries today, there are very heavy taxes on corporations. In fact, there is double taxation on corporations. First, the profits of corporations are taxed very heavily and the dividends which corporations pay to their shareholders are taxed again. And this is done in a progressive way. Progressive taxation of income and profits means that precisely those parts of the income which people would have saved and invested are taxed away. Take the example of the United States. A few years ago, there was an excess profit tax, which meant that out of $1 earned, a corporation retained only 18 cents. When these 18 cents were paid out to the shareholders, those who had a great number of shares had to pay another 60 or 80 or even greater percent of it in taxes. Out of the dollar of profit, they retained about 7 cents, and 93 cents went to the government. Of this 93%, the greater part would have been saved and invested. Instead, the government used it for current expenditure. This is the policy of the United States. I think I have made it clear that the policy of the United States is not an example to be imitated by other countries. 
This policy of the United States is worse than bad. It is insane. The only thing I would add is that a rich country can afford more bad policies than a poor country. In the United States, in spite of all these methods of taxation, there is still some additional accumulation of capital and investment every year. And therefore, there is still a trend toward an improvement of the standard of living. But in many other countries, the problem is very critical. There is no, or not sufficient, domestic saving, and capital investment from abroad is seriously reduced by the fact that these countries are openly hostile to foreign investment. How can they talk about industrialization, about the necessity to develop new plants, to improve conditions, to raise the standard of living, to have higher wage rates, better means of transportation, if they are doing things that will have precisely the opposite effect? What their policies actually accomplish is to prevent or to slow down the accumulation of domestic capital and to put obstacles in the way of foreign capital. The end result is certainly very bad. Such a situation must bring about a loss of confidence, and there is now more and more distrust of foreign investment in the world. Even if the countries concerned were to change their policies immediately and were to make all possible promises, it is very doubtful that they could once more inspire foreign capitalists to invest. There are, of course, some methods to avoid this consequence. One could establish some international statutes, not only agreements, that would withdraw the foreign investments from national jurisdiction. This is something the United Nations could do. But the United Nations is simply a meeting place for useless discussions. Realizing the enormous importance of foreign investment, realizing that foreign investment alone can bring about an improvement in political and economic world conditions, one could try to do something from the point of view of international legislation. This is a technical legal problem which I only mention because the situation is not hopeless. If the world really wanted to make it possible for the developing countries to raise their standard of living to the level of the American way of life, then it could be done. It is only necessary to realize how it could be done. What is lacking in order to make the developing countries as prosperous as the United States is only one thing. Capital and, of course, the freedom to employ it under the discipline of the market and not the discipline of the government. These nations must accumulate domestic capital, and they must make it possible for foreign capital to come into their countries. For the development of domestic savings, it is necessary to mention again that domestic saving by the masses of the population presupposes a stable monetary unit. This implies the absence of any kind of inflation. A great part of the capital at work in American enterprises is owned by the workers themselves and by other people with modest means. Billions and billions of saving deposits, of bonds, and of insurance policies are operating in these enterprises. On the American money market today, it is no longer the banks. It is the insurance companies that are the greatest money lenders. And the money of the insurance company is, not legally but economically, the property of the insured. And practically, everybody in the United States is insured in one way or another. The prerequisite for more economic equality in the world is industrialization. And this is possible only through increased capital investment, increased capital accumulation. You may be astonished that I have not mentioned a measure which is considered a prime method to industrialize a country. I mean protectionism. But tariffs and foreign exchange controls are exactly the means to prevent the importation of capital and industrialization into the country. 
The only way to increase industrialization is to have more capital. Protectionism can only divert investments from one branch of business to another branch. Protectionism in itself does not add anything to the capital of a country. To start a new factory, one needs capital. To improve an already existing factory, one needs capital and not a tariff. I do not want to discuss the whole problem of free trade or protectionism. I hope that most of your textbooks on economics represent it in a proper way. Protection does not change the economic situation in a country for the better. And what certainly does not change it for the better is labor unionism. If conditions are unsatisfactory, if wages are low, if the wage earner in a country looks to the United States and reads about what is going on there, if he sees in the movies how the home of an average American is equipped with all modern comforts, he may be envious. He is perfectly right in saying, we ought to have the same thing. But the only way to obtain it is through an increase in capital. Labor unions use violence against entrepreneurs and against people they call strikebreakers. Despite their power and their violence, however, unions cannot raise wage rates continually for all wage earners. Equally ineffective are government decrees fixing minimum wage rates. What the unions do bring about, if they succeed in raising wage rates, is permanent lasting unemployment. But unions cannot industrialize the country. They cannot raise the standard of living of the workers. And this is the decisive point. One must realize that all the policies of a country that wants to improve its standard of living must be directed toward an increase in the capital invested per capital. This per capita investment of capital is still increasing in the United States in spite of all of the bad policies there. And the same is true in Canada and in some of the Western European countries. But it is unfortunately decreasing in countries like India. We read every day in the newspapers that the population of the world is becoming greater by perhaps 45 million people or even more per year. And how will this end? What will the results and the consequences be? Remember what I said about Great Britain. In 1750, the British people believed that 6 million constituted a tremendous overpopulation of the British Isles and that they were headed for famines and plagues. But on the eve of the last world war in 1939, 50 million people were living in the British Isles, and the standard of living was incomparably higher than it had been in 1750. This was the effect of what is called industrialization, a rather inadequate term. Britain's progress was brought about by increasing the per capita investment of capital. As I said before, there is only one way a nation can achieve prosperity. If you increase capital, you increase the marginal productivity of labor and the effect will be that real wages will rise. In a world without migration barriers, there would be a tendency all over the world toward an equalization of wage rates. If there were no migration barriers today, probably 20 million people would try to reach the United States every year in order to get higher wages. The inflow would reduce wages in the United States and raise them in other countries. I do not have time to deal with this problem of migration barriers. But I do want to say that there is another method toward the equalization of wage rates all over the world. This other method, which operates in the absence of the freedom to migrate, is the migration of capital. Capitalists have the tendency to move towards those countries in which there is plenty of labor available and in which labor is reasonable. And by the fact that they bring capital into these countries, they bring about a trend toward higher wage rates. This has worked in the past, and it will work in the future in the same way. 
When British capital was first invested in, let us say, Austria or Bolivia, wage rates there were much, much lower than they were in Great Britain. But this additional investment brought about a trend toward higher wage rates in those countries. And such a tendency prevailed all over the world. It is a very well-known fact that as soon as, for instance, the United Fruit Company moved into Guatemala, the result was a general tendency toward higher wage rates, beginning with the wages which United Fruit Company paid, which then made it necessary for other employers to pay higher wages also. Therefore, there is no reason at all to be pessimistic in regard to the future of undeveloped countries. I fully agree with the communists and the labor unions when they say, what is needed is to raise the standard of living. A short time ago, in a book published in the United States, a professor said, We now have enough of everything. Why should people in the world still work so hard? We have everything already. I do not doubt that this professor has everything. But there are other people in other countries, also many people in the United States, who want and should have a better standard of living. Outside of the United States, in Latin America, and still more in Asia and Africa, everyone wishes to see conditions improved in his own country. A higher standard of living also brings about a higher standard of culture and civilization. So I fully agree with the ultimate goal of raising the standard of living everywhere. But I disagree about the measures to be adopted in attaining this goal. What measures will attain this end? Not protection, not government interference, not socialism, and certainly not the violence of the labor unions, euphemistically called collective bargaining, which in fact is bargaining at the point of a gun. To attain the end as I see it, there is only one way. It is a slow method. Some people may say it is too slow. But there are no shortcuts to an earthly paradise. It takes time and one has to work. But it does not take as much time as people believe, and finally an equalization will come. Around 1840, in the western part of Germany, in Swabia and Württemberg, which was one of the most industrialized areas in the world, it was said, We can never attain the level of the British. The English have a head start, and they will forever be ahead of us. Thirty years later, the British said, This German competition we cannot stand. We have to do something against it. At that time, of course, the German standard was rapidly rising and was even then approaching the British standard. And today, the German income per capita is not behind that of Great Britain at all. In the center of Europe, there is a small country, Switzerland, which nature has endowed very poorly. It has no coal mines, no minerals, and no natural resources. But its people over the centuries have continually pursued a capitalistic policy. They have developed the highest standard of living in continental Europe, and their country ranks as one of the world's great centers of civilization. I do not see why a country such as Argentina, which is much larger than Switzerland both in population and in size, should not attain the same high standard of living after some years of good policies. But, as I pointed out, the policies must be good. Human Action Number 9. Entrepreneurial Profits and Losses in a Progressing Economy In the imaginary construction of a stationary economy, the total sum of all entrepreneurs' profits equals the total sum of all entrepreneurs' losses. What one entrepreneur profits is, in the total economic system, counterbalanced by another entrepreneur's loss. The surplus, which all the consumers together expend for the acquisition of a certain commodity, 
is counterbalanced by the reduction in their expenditure for the acquisition of other commodities. It is different in a progressing economy. We call a progressing economy an economy in which the per capita quota of capital invested is increasing. In using this term, we do not imply value judgments. We adopt neither the materialistic view that such a progression is good, nor the idealistic view that it is bad or at least irrelevant from a higher point of view. Of course, it is a well-known fact that the immense majority of people consider the consequences of progress in this sense as the most desirable state of affairs and yearn for conditions which can be realized only in a progressing economy. In the stationary economy, the entrepreneurs, in the pursuit of their specific functions, cannot achieve anything other than to withdraw factors of production, provided that they are still convertible from one line of business in order to employ them in another line or to direct the restoration of the equivalent of capital goods used up in the course of production processes toward the expansion of certain branches of industry at the expense of other branches. In the progressing economy, the range of entrepreneurial activities includes, moreover, the determination of the employment of the additional capital goods accumulated by new savings. The injection of these additional capital goods is bound to increase the total sum of the income produced i.e. of that supply of consumers' goods, which can be consumed without diminishing the capital equipment used in its production, thereby without impairing the output of future production. The increase of income is effected either by an expansion of production without altering the technological methods of production, or by an improvement in technological methods, which would not have been feasible under the previous conditions of a less ample supply of capital goods. It is out of this additional wealth that the surplus of the total sum of entrepreneurial profits over the total sum of entrepreneurial losses flows. But it can be easily demonstrated that this surplus can never exhaust the total increase in wealth brought about by economic progress. The laws of the market divide this additional wealth between the entrepreneurs and the suppliers of labor and those of certain material factors of production in such a way that the lion's share goes to the non-entrepreneurial groups. First of all, we must realize that entrepreneurial profits are not a lasting phenomenon, but only temporary. There prevails an inherent tendency for profits and losses to disappear. The market is always moving toward the emergence of the final prices and the final state of rest. If new changes in the data were not to interrupt this movement and not to create the need for a new adjustment of production to the altered conditions, the prices of all complementary factors of production would, due allowance being made for time preference, finally equal the price of the product and nothing would be left for profits or losses. In the long run, every increase in productivity benefits exclusively the workers and some groups of the owners of land and of capital goods. In the groups of the owners of capital goods, there are benefited. Number one, those whose savings has increased the quantity of capital goods available. They own this additional wealth, the outcome of their restraint in consuming. Number two, the owners of those capital goods already previously existing, which, thanks to the improvement in technological methods of production, are now better utilized than before. Such gains are, of course, temporary only. They are bound to disappear as they cause a tendency toward an intensified production of the capital goods concerned. On the other hand, the increase in the quantity of capital goods available lowers the marginal productivity of capital. 
It thus brings about a fall in the prices of the capital goods, and thereby hurts the interests of all those capitalists who did not share at all, or not sufficiently in the process of saving, and the accumulation of the additional supply of capital goods. In the group of the landowners, all those are benefited for whom the new state of affairs results in a higher productivity of their farms, forests, fisheries, mines, and so on. On the other hand, all those are hurt whose property may become submarginal on account of the higher return yielded by the land owned by those benefited. In the group of labor, all derive a lasting gain from the increase in the marginal productivity of labor. But, on the other hand, in the short run, some may suffer disadvantages. These are people who are specialized in the performance of work, which becomes obsolete as a result of technological improvement, and are fitted only for jobs in which, in spite of the general rise in wage rates, they earn less than before. All these changes in the prices of the factors of production begin immediately with the initiation of the entrepreneurial actions designed to adjust the processes of production to the new state of affairs. In dealing with this problem, as with the other problems of changes in the market data, we must guard ourselves against the popular fallacy of drawing a sharp line between short-run and long-run effects. What happens in the short run is precisely the first stages of the chain of successive transformations, which tend to bring about the long-run effects. The long-run effect is, in our case, the disappearance of entrepreneurial profits and losses. The short-run effects are the preliminary stages of this process of elimination, which, finally, if not interrupted by a further change in the data, would result in the emergence of the evenly rotating economy. It is necessary to comprehend that the very appearance of an excess in the total amount of entrepreneurial profits over the total amount of entrepreneurial losses depends upon the fact that this process of the elimination of entrepreneurial profit and loss begins at the same time as the entrepreneurs begin to adjust the complex of production activities to the changed data. There is never, in the whole sequence of events, an instant in which the advantage is derived from the increase in the amount of capital available, and from technical improvements, benefit the entrepreneurs only. If the wealth and the income of the other strata were to remain unaffected, these people could buy the additional products only by restricting their purchases of other products accordingly. Then the profits of one group of entrepreneurs would exactly equal the losses incurred by other groups. What happens is this. The entrepreneurs embarking upon the utilization of the newly accumulated capital goods and the improved technological methods of production are in need of complementary factors of production. Their demand for these factors is a new additional demand which must raise their prices. Only as far as this rise in prices and wage rates occurs are the consumers in a position to buy the new products without curtailing the purchase of other goods. Only so far can a surplus of the total sum of all entrepreneurial profits over all entrepreneurial losses come into existence. The vehicle of economic progress is the accumulation of additional capital goods by means of saving and improvement in technological methods of production, the execution of which is almost always conditioned by the availability of such new capital. The agents of progress are the promoting entrepreneurs intent upon profiting by means of adjusting the conduct of affairs to the best possible satisfaction of the consumers. In the performance of their projects for the realization of progress, 
they are bound to share the benefits derived from progress with the workers and also with a part of the capitalists and landowners and to increase the portion allotted to these people step by step until their own share melts away entirely. From this it becomes evident that it is absurd to speak of a rate of profit or a normal rate of profit or an average rate of profit. Profit is not related to or dependent on the amount of capital employed by the entrepreneur. Capital does not beget profit. Profit and loss are entirely determined by the success or failure of the entrepreneur to adjust production to the demand of the consumers. There is nothing normal in profits, and there can never be an equilibrium with regard to them. Profit and loss are, on the contrary, always a phenomenon of a deviation from normalcy, of changes unforeseen by the majority, and of a disequilibrium. They have no place in an imaginary world of normalcy and equilibrium. In a changing economy, there prevails always an inherent tendency for profits and losses to disappear. It is only the emergence of new changes which revives them again. Under stationary conditions, the average rate of profits and losses is zero. An excess of the total amount of profits over that of losses is a proof of the fact that there is economic progress and an improvement in the standard of living of all strata of the population. The greater this excess is, the greater is the increment in general prosperity. Many people are utterly unfit to deal with a phenomenon of entrepreneurial profit without indulging in envious resentment. In their eyes, the source of profit is exploitation of the wage earners and the consumers, i.e. an unfair reduction in wage rates and a no less unfair increase in the prices of the products. By rights, there should not be any profits at all. Economics is indifferent with regard to such arbitrary value judgments. It is not interested in the problem of whether profits are to be approved or condemned from the point of view of an alleged natural law and of an alleged eternal and immutable code of morality about which personal intuition or divine revelation are supposed to convey precise information. Economics merely establishes the fact that entrepreneurial profits and losses are essential phenomena of the market economy. There cannot be a market economy without them. It is certainly possible for the police to confiscate all profits. But such a policy would by necessity convert the market economy into a senseless chaos. Man has, there is no doubt, the power to destroy many things. And he has made in the course of history ample use of this faculty. He could destroy the market economy too. If those self-styled moralists were not blinded by their envy, they would not deal with profit without dealing simultaneously with its corollary, loss. They would not pass over in silence the fact that the preliminary conditions of economic improvement are an achievement of those whose saving accumulates the additional capital goods and of the inventors and that the utilization of these conditions for the realization of economic improvement is affected by the entrepreneurs. The rest of the people do not contribute to progress, but they are benefited by the horn of plenty which other people's activities pour upon them. Chapter 19. The Importance of Liberty Liberty and Property Number 1. At the end of the 18th century, there prevailed two notions of liberty, each of them very different from what we have in mind today, referring to liberty and freedom. The first of these conceptions was purely academic and without any application to the conduct of political affairs. It was an idea derived from the books of the ancient authors, the study of which was then the sum and substance of higher education. 
In the eyes of these Greek and Roman writers, freedom was not something that had to be granted to all men. It was a privilege of the minority to be withheld from the majority. What the Greeks called democracy was, in the light of present-day terminology, not what Lincoln called government by the people, but oligarchy, the sovereignty of full-right citizens in a community in which the masses were metags or slaves. Even this rather limited freedom after the 4th century before Christ was not dealt with by the philosophers, historians, and orators as a practical constitutional institution. As they saw it, it was a feature of the past irretrievably lost. They bemoaned the passing of this golden age, but they did not know any method of returning to it. The second notion of liberty was no less oligarchic, although it was not inspired by any literary reminiscences. It was the ambition of the landed aristocracy, and sometimes also of urban patricians, to preserve their privileges against the rising power of royal absolutism. In most parts of continental Europe, the princes remained victorious in these conflicts. Only in England and in the Netherlands did the gentry and the urban patricians succeed in defeating the dynasties. But what they won was not freedom for all, but only freedom for an elite, for a minority of the people. We must not condemn as hypocrites the men who in those ages praised liberty, while they preserved the legal disabilities of the many, even serfdom and slavery. They were faced with a problem which they did not know how to solve satisfactorily. The traditional system of production was too narrow for a continually rising population. The number of people for whom there was, in a full sense of the term, no room left by the pre-capitalistic methods of agriculture and artisanship was increasing. These supernumeraries were starving paupers. They were a menace to the preservation of the existing order of society, and for a long time, nobody could think of another order, a state of affairs, that would feed all of these poor wretches. There could not be any question of granting them full civil rights, still less of giving them a share of the conduct of affairs of state. The only expedient the rulers knew was to keep them quiet by resorting to force. Number 2. The pre-capitalistic system of product was restrictive. Its historical basis was military conquest. The victorious kings had given the land to their paladins. These aristocrats were lords in the literal meaning of the word, as they did not depend on the patronage of consumers buying or abstaining from buying on a market. On the other hand, they themselves were the main customers of the processing industries, which, under the guild system, were organized on a corporative scheme. This scheme was opposed to innovation. It forbade deviation from the traditional methods of production. The number of people for whom there were jobs even in agriculture or in the arts and crafts was limited. Under these conditions, many a man, to use the words of Malthus, had to discover that, at nature's mighty feast, there is no vacant cover for him, and that she tells him to be gone. But some of these outcasts nevertheless managed to survive, begot children, and made the number of destitute grow hopelessly more and more. But then came capitalism. It is customary to see the radical innovations that capitalism brought about in the substitution of the mechanical factory for the more primitive and less efficient methods of the artisan's shops. This is a rather superficial view. The characteristic feature of capitalism that distinguishes it from pre-capitalist methods of production was its new principle of marketing. Capitalism is not simply mass production, 
but mass production to satisfy the needs of the masses. The arts and crafts of the good old days had catered almost exclusively to the wants of the well-to-do. But the factories produced cheap goods for the many. All the early factories turned out was designed to serve the masses, the same strata that worked in the factories. They served them either by supplying them directly or indirectly by exporting, and thus providing for them foreign food and raw materials. This principle of marketing was the signature of early capitalism as it is of present-day capitalism. The employees themselves are the customers consuming the much greater part of all goods produced. They are the sovereign customers who are always right. Their buying or abstention from buying determines what has to be produced, in what quantity, and of what quality. In buying what suits them best, they make some enterprises profit and expand, and make other enterprises lose money and shrink. Thereby, they are continually shifting control of the factors of production into the hands of those businessmen who are most successful in filling their wants. Under capitalism, private property of the factors of production is a social function. The entrepreneurs, capitalists, and landowners are mandatories, as it were, of the consumers and their mandate is revocable. In order to be rich, it is not sufficient to have once saved and accumulated capital. It is necessary to invest it again and again in those lines in which it best fills the wants of the consumers. The market process is a daily repeated plebiscite, and it ejects inevitably from the ranks of profitable people, those who do not employ their property according to the orders given by the public. But business, the target of fanatical hatred on the part of all contemporary governments and self-styled intellectuals, acquires and preserves bigness only because it works for the masses. The plants that cater to the luxuries of the few never attain big size. The shortcoming of 19th century historians and politicians was that they failed to realize that the workers were the main consumers of the products of industry. In their view, the wage earner was a man toiling for the sole benefit of a parasitic leisure class. They labored under the delusion that the factories had impaired the lot of the manual workers. If they had paid any attention to statistics, they would easily have discovered the fallaciousness of their opinion. Infant mortality dropped. The average length of life was prolonged. The population multiplied and the average common man enjoyed amenities of which even the well-to-do of earlier ages did not dream. However, this unprecedented enrichment of the masses were merely a byproduct of the Industrial Revolution. Its main achievement was the transfer of economic supremacy from the owners of land to the totality of the population. The common man was no longer a drudge who had to be satisfied with the crumbs that fell from the tables of the rich. The three pariah castes, which were characteristic of the pre-capitalistic ages, the slaves, the serfs, and those people whom patristic and scholastic authors, as well as British legislation from the 16th to the 19th centuries, refer to as the poor, disappeared. Their scions became, in this new setting of business, not only free workers, but also customers. This radical change was reflected in the emphasis laid by business on markets. What business needs first of all is markets, and again markets. This was the watchword of capitalistic enterprise. Markets, that means patrons, buyers, consumers. There is under capitalism one way to wealth, to serve the consumer better and cheaper than other people do. 
Within the shop and factory, the owner, or in the corporations, the representative of the shareholders, the president, is the boss. But this mastership is merely apparent and conditional. It is subject to the supremacy of the consumers. The consumer is king, is the real boss, and the manufacturer is done for if he does not outstrip his competitors in best-serving consumers. It was this great economic transformation that changed the face of the world. It very soon transferred political power from the hands of a privileged minority into the hands of the people. Adult franchise followed in the wake of industrial enfranchisement. The common man to whom the market process had given the power to choose the entrepreneur and capitalists acquired the analogous power in the field of government. He became a voter. It has been observed by eminent economists, I think first by the late Frank A. Fetter, that the market is a democracy in which every penny gives a right to vote. It would be more correct to say that representative government by the people is an attempt to arrange constitutional affairs according to the model of the market, but this design can never be fully achieved. In the political field, it is always the will of the majority that prevails, and the minorities must yield to it. It serves also minorities, provided they are not so insignificant in number as to become negligible. The garment industry produces clothes not only for normal people, but also for the stout, and the publishing trade publishes not only westerns and detective stories for the crowd, but also books for discriminating readers. There is a second important difference. In the political sphere, there is no means for an individual or a small group of individuals to disobey the will of the majority. But in the intellectual field, private property makes rebellion possible. The rebel has to pay a price for his independence. There are in this universe no prizes that can be won without sacrifices. But if a man is willing to pay the price, he is free to deviate from the ruling orthodoxy or neo-orthodoxy. What would conditions have been in the socialist commonwealth for heretics like Kierkegaard, Schopenhauer, Veblen, or Freud? For Monet, Corbet, Walt Whitman, Rilke, or Kafka? In all ages, pioneers of new ways of thinking and acting could work only because private property made contempt of the majority's ways possible. Only a few of these separatists were themselves economically independent enough to defy the government into the opinions of the majority. But they found in the climate of the free economy among the public people prepared to aid and support them. What would Marx have done without his patron, the manufacturer Friedrich Engels? Number 3. What vitiates entirely the socialists' economic critique of capitalism is their failure to grasp the sovereignty of the consumers in the market economy. They see only hierarchical organization of the various enterprises and plans, and are at a loss to realize that the profit system forces business to serve the consumers. In their dealing with their employers, the unions proceed as if only malice and greed were to prevent what they call management from paying higher wage rates. Their short-sightedness does not see anything beyond the doors of the factory. They and their henchmen talk about the concentration of economic power and do not realize that economic power is ultimately vested in the hands of the buying public, of which the employees themselves form the immense majority. Their inability to comprehend things as they are is reflected in such inappropriate metaphors as industrial kingdom and dukedoms. 
They are too dull to see the difference between a sovereign king or duke, who could be dispossessed only by a more powerful conqueror, and a chocolate king, who forfeits his kingdom as soon as the customers prefer to patronize another supplier. This distortion is at the bottom of all socialist plans. If any of the socialist chiefs had tried to earn his living by selling hot dogs, he would have learned something about the sovereignty of the customers. But they were professional revolutionaries, and their only job was to kindle civil war. Lenin's ideal was to build a nation's production effort according to the model of the post office an outfit that does not depend on the consumers because its deficits are covered by compulsory collection of taxes. The whole of society, he said, was to become one office and one factory. He did not see that the very character of the office and the factory is entirely changed when it is alone in the world and no longer grants to people the opportunity to choose among the products and services of various enterprises. Because his blindness made it impossible for him to see the role the market and the consumers play under capitalism, he could not see the difference between freedom and slavery. Because in his eyes the workers were only workers and not also customers, he believed they were already slaves under capitalism, and that one did not change their status when nationalizing all plants and shops. Socialism substitutes the sovereignty of a dictator or committee of dictators for the sovereignty of the consumers. Along with the economic sovereignty of the citizens disappears also their political sovereignty. To the unique production plan that annuls any planning on the part of the consumers corresponds in the constitutional sphere the one-party principle that deprives the citizens of any opportunity to plan the course of public affairs. Freedom is indivisible. He who has not the faculty to choose among various brands of canned food or soap is also deprived of the power to choose between various political parties and programs and to elect the office holders. He is no longer a man. He becomes a pawn in the hands of the supreme social engineer. Even his freedom to rear progeny will be taken away by eugenics. Of course, the socialist leaders occasionally assure us that dictatorial tyranny is to last only for the period of transition from capitalism and representative government to the socialist millennium in which everybody's wants and wishes will be fully satisfied. Once the socialist regime is sufficiently secure to risk criticism, Miss Joan Robinson, the eminent representative of the British Neo-Cambridge School, is kind enough to promise us even independent philharmonic societies will be allowed to exist. Thus, the liquidation of all dissenters is the condition that will bring us what the communists call freedom. From this point of view, we may also understand what another distinguished Englishman, Mr. J.G. Crowther, had in mind when he praised Inquisition as beneficial to science when it protects a rising class. The meaning of all this is clear. When all people meekly bow to a dictator, there will no longer be any dissenters left for liquidation. Caligula, Torquemada, Robespierre would have agreed with this solution. The socialists have engineered a semantic revolution in converting their meaning of terms into their opposite. In the vocabulary of their newspeak, as George Orwell called it, there is a term, the one-party principle. Now, etymologically, Party is derived from the noun part. The brotherless part is no longer different from its antonym, the whole. It is identical with it. 
A brotherless party is not a party, and the one-party principle is in fact a no-party principle. It is a suppression of any kind of opposition. Freedom implies the right to choose between assent and dissent. But in Newspeak, it means the duty to assent unconditionally and strict interdiction of dissent. This reversal of the traditional connotation of all words of the political terminology is not merely a peculiarity of the language of the Russian communists and their fascist and Nazi disciples. The social order that, in abolishing private property, deprives the consumers of their autonomy and independence, and thereby subjects every man to the arbitrary discretion of the central planning board, could not win the support of the masses if they were not to camouflage its main character. The socialists would have never duped the voters if they had openly told them that their ultimate end is to cast them into bondage. For exoteric use, they were forced to pay lip service to the traditional appreciation of liberty. Number 4. It was different in the esoteric discussions among the inner circles of the Great Conspiracy. There, the initiated did not dissemble their intentions concerning liberty. Liberty was, in their opinion, certainly a good feature in the past in the frame of bourgeois society, because it provided them with the opportunity to embark on their schemes. But once socialism has triumphed, there is no longer any need for free thought and autonomous action on the part of individuals. Any further change can only be a deviation from the perfect state that mankind has attained in reaching the bliss of socialism. Under such conditions, it would be simply lunacy to tolerate dissent. Liberty, says the Bolshevist, is a bourgeois prejudice. The common man does not have any ideas of his own. He does not write books, does not hatch heresies, and does not invent new methods of production. He just wants to enjoy life. He has no use for the class interests of the intellectuals who make a living as professional dissenters and innovators. This is certainly the most arrogant disdain of the plain citizen ever devised. There is no need to argue this point. For the question is not whether or not the common man can himself take advantage of the liberty to think, to speak, and to write books. The question is whether or not the sluggish routinist profits from the freedom granted to those who eclipse him in intelligence and willpower. The common man may look with indifference and even contempt upon the dealings of better people but he is delighted to enjoy all the benefits which the endeavors of his innovators put at his disposal. He has no comprehension of what in his eyes is merely inane hair-splitting. But as soon as these thoughts and theories are utilized by enterprising businessmen for satisfying some of his latent wishes, he hurries to acquire the new products. The common man is without doubt the main beneficiary of all the accomplishments of modern science and technology. It is true a man of average intellectual abilities has no chance to rise to the rank of a captain of industry. But the sovereignty that the market assigns to him in economic affairs stimulates technologists and promoters to convert to his use all the achievements of scientific research. Only people whose intellectual horizon does not extend beyond the internal organization of the factory and who do not realize what makes the businessmen run fail to notice this fact. The admirers of the Soviet system tell us again and again that freedom is not the supreme good. It is not worth having if it implies poverty. 
To sacrifice it in order to attain wealth for the masses is in their eyes fully justified. But for a few unruly individualists who cannot adjust themselves to the ways of regular fellows, all people in Russia are perfectly happy. We may leave it undecided whether this happiness was also shared by the millions of Ukrainian peasants who died from starvation, by the inmates of the forced labor camps, and by the Marxian leaders who were purged. But we cannot pass over the fact that the standard of living was incomparably higher in the free countries of the West than in the communist East. In giving away liberty as the price to be paid for the acquisition of prosperity, the Russians made a poor bargain. They now have neither the one nor the other. Number 5. Romantic philosophy labored under the illusion that in the early ages of history, the individual was free and that the course of historical evolution deprived him of his primordial liberty. As Jean-Jacques Rousseau saw it, nature accorded men freedom and society enslaved him. In fact, primeval man was at the mercy of every fellow who was stronger and therefore could snatch away from him the scarce means of subsistence. There is in nature nothing to which the name of liberty could be given. The concept of freedom always refers to social relations between men. True, society cannot realize the illusory concept of the individual's absolute independence. Within society, everyone depends on what other people are prepared to contribute to his well-being in return for his own contribution to their well-being. Society is essentially the mutual exchange of services. As far as individuals have the opportunity to choose, they are free. If they are forced by violence or threat of violence to surrender to the terms of an exchange, no matter how they feel about it, they lack freedom. This slave is unfree precisely because the master assigns him his tasks and determines what he has to receive if he fulfills it. As regards the social apparatus of repression and coercion, the government, there cannot be any question of freedom. Government is essentially the negation of liberty. It is the recourse to violence or threat of violence in order to make all people obey the orders of the government, whether they like it or not. As far as the government's jurisdiction extends, there is coercion, not freedom. Government is a necessary institution, the means to make the social system of cooperation work smoothly without being disturbed by violent acts on the part of gangsters, whether of domestic or of foreign origin. Government is not, as some people like to say, a necessary evil. It is not an evil, but a means the only means available to make peaceful human coexistence possible. But it is the opposite of liberty. It is beating, imprisoning, hanging. Whatever a government does, it is ultimately supported by the actions of armed constables. If the government operates a school or a hospital, the funds required are collected by taxes, i.e. by payments extracted from the citizens. If we take into account the fact that, as human nature is, there can neither be civilization nor peace without the functioning of the government apparatus of violent action, we may call government the most beneficial human institution. But the fact remains that government is repression, not freedom. Freedom is to be found only in the sphere in which government does not interfere. Liberty is always freedom from the government. It is the restriction of the government's interference. 
It prevails only in the fields in which the citizens have the opportunity to choose the way in which they want to proceed. Civil rights are the statutes that precisely circumscribe the sphere in which the men conducting the affairs of state are permitted to restrict the individual's freedom to act. The ultimate end that men aim at by establishing government is to make possible the operation of a definite system of social cooperation under the principle of the division of labor. If the social system which people want to have is socialism, communism, planning, there is no sphere of freedom left. All citizens are in every regard subject to orders of the government. The state is a total state. The regime is totalitarian. The government alone plans and forces everybody to behave according with this unique plan. In the market economy, the individuals are free to choose the way in which they want to integrate themselves into the frame of social cooperation. As far as the sphere of market exchange extends, there is spontaneous action on the part of individuals. Under this system that is called laissez-faire, and which Ferdinand LaSalle dubbed as the night watchman state, there is freedom because there is a field in which individuals are free to plan for themselves. The socialists must admit there cannot be any freedom under a socialist system, but they try to obliterate the difference between the servile state and economic freedom by denying that there is any freedom in the mutual exchange of commodities and services on the market. Every market exchange is, in the words of a school of pro-socialist lawyers, a coercion over other people's liberty. There is, in their eyes, no difference worth mentioning between a man's paying a tax or a fine imposed by a magistrate, or his buying a newspaper or admission to a movie. In each of these cases, the man is subject to governing power. He's not free, for as Professor Hale says, a man's freedom means the absence of any obstacle to his use of material goods. This means, I am not free because a woman who has knitted a sweater, perhaps as a birthday present for her husband, puts an obstacle to my using it. I myself am restricting all other people's freedom because I object to their using my toothbrush. In doing this, I am, according to this doctrine, exercising private governing power, which is analogous to public government power, the powers that the government exercises in imprisoning a man in Sing Sing. Those expounding this amazing doctrine consistently conclude that liberty is nowhere to be found. They assert that what they call economic pressures do not essentially differ from the pressures the masters practice with regard to their slaves. They reject what they call private governmental power, but they don't object to the restriction of liberty by public government power. They want to concentrate all what they call restrictions of liberty in the hands of the government. They attack the institution of private property and the laws that, as they say, stand ready to enforce property rights. That is, to deny liberty to anyone to act in a way which violates them. A generation ago, all housewives prepared soup by proceeding in accordance with the recipes that they had got from their mothers or from a cookbook. Today, many housewives prefer to buy a canned soup to warm it and to serve it to their family. But, say our learned doctors, the canning corporation is in a position to restrict the housewife's freedom because in asking a price for the tin can, it puts an obstacle to her use of it. 
people who did not enjoy the privilege of being tutored by these eminent teachers, would say that the canned product was turned out by the cannery, and that the corporation in producing it removed the greatest obstacle to a consumer's getting and using a can, vis-à-vis its non-existence. The mere essence of a product cannot gratify anybody without its existence. But they are wrong, says the doctors. The corporation dominates the housewife. It destroys by its excessive concentrated power over her individual freedom. And it is the duty of the government to prevent such a gross offense. Corporations say, under the auspices of the Ford Foundation, another of this group, Professor Burl, must be subjected to the control of the government. Why does our housewife buy the canned product rather than cling to the methods of her mother and grandmother? No doubt because she thinks this way of acting is more advantageous for her than the traditional custom. Nobody forced her. There were people, they are called jobbers, promoters, capitalists, speculators, stock exchange gamblers, who had the idea of satisfying a latent wish of millions of housewives by investing in the cannery industry. And there are other equally selfish capitalists who in many hundreds of other corporations provide consumers with many hundreds of other things. The better a corporation serves the public, the more customers it gets, the bigger it grows. Go into the home of the average American family and you will see for whom the wheels of the machines are turning. In a free country, nobody is prevented from acquiring riches by serving the consumers better than they are served already. What he needs is only brains and hard work. Modern civilization, nearly all civilization, said Edwin Canaan, the last in a long line of eminent British economists, is based on the principle of making things pleasant for those who please the market and unpleasant for those who fail to do so. All this talk about the concentration of economic power is vain. The bigger a corporation is, the more people it serves the more does it depend on pleasing the consumers, the many, the masses. Economic power in the market economy is in the hands of the consumers. Capitalistic business is not perseverance in the once-attained state of production. It is rather ceaseless innovation, daily repeated attempts to improve the provision of the consumers by new, better, and cheaper products. Any actual state of production activities is merely transitory. There prevails incessantly the tendency to supplant what is already achieved by something that serves the consumers better. There is consequently under capitalism a continuous circulation of elites. What characterizes the men whom one calls the captains of industry is the ability to contribute new ideas and to put them to work. However big a corporation must be, it is doomed as soon as it does not succeed in adjusting itself daily anew to the best possible methods of serving the consumers. But the politicians and other would-be reformers see only the structure of industry as it exists today. They think that they are clever enough to snatch from business control of the plants as they are today and to manage them by sticking to already established routines. While the ambitious newcomer who will be the tycoon of tomorrow is already preparing plans for things unheard of before, all they have in mind is to conduct affairs along tracks already beaten. There is no record of an industrial innovation contrived and put into practice by bureaucrats. If one does not want to plunge into stagnation, a free hand must be left to those today unknown men 
who have the ingenuity to lead mankind forward on the way to more and more satisfactory conditions. This is the main problem of a nation's economic organization. Private property of the material factors of production is not a restriction of the freedom of all other people to choose what suits them best. It is, on the contrary, the means that assigns to the common man, in his capacity as a buyer, supremacy in all economic affairs. It is the means to stimulate a nation's most enterprising men to exert themselves to the best of their abilities in the service of all of the people. Number 6. However, one does not exhaustively describe the sweeping changes that capitalism brought about in the conditions of the common man if one merely deals with a supremacy he enjoys on the market as a consumer and in the affairs of state as a voter and with the unprecedented improvement of his standard of living. No less important is the fact that capitalism has made it possible for him to save, to accumulate capital and to invest it. The gulf that in pre-capitalistic status and caste society separated the owners of property from the penniless poor has been narrowed down. In older ages, the journeyman had such a low pay that he could hardly lay by something and, if he nevertheless did so, he could only keep his savings by hoarding and hiding a few coins. Under capitalism, his competence makes saving possible, and there are institutions that enable him to invest his funds in business. A not inconsiderable amount of capital employed in American industries is the counterpart of the savings of employees. In acquiring savings deposits, insurance policies, bonds, and also common stock, wage earners and salaried people are themselves earning interest and dividends, and thereby, in the terminology of Marxism, are exploiters. The common man is directly interested in the flowering of business, not only as a consumer and as an employee, but also as an investor. There prevails a tendency to efface, to some extent, the once sharp difference between those who own factors of production and those who do not. But of course, this trend can only develop where the market economy is not sabotaged by allegedly social policies. The welfare state, with its methods of easy money, credit expansion, and undisguised inflation, continually takes bites out of all claims payable in units of the nation's legal tender. The self-styled champions of the common man are still guided by the obsolete idea that a policy that favors the debtors at the expense of the creditors is very beneficial to the majority of the people. Their inability to comprehend the essential characteristics of the market economy manifests itself also in their failure to see the obvious fact that those whom they feign to aid are creditors in their capacity as savers, policyholders, and owners of bonds. Number 7. The distinctive principle of Western social philosophy is individualism. It aims at the creation of a sphere in which the individual is free to think, to choose, and to act without being restrained by the interference of the social apparatus of coercion and oppression, the state. All the spiritual and material achievements of Western civilization were the result of the operation of this idea of liberty. This doctrine and the policies of individualism and of capitalism, its application to economic matters, do not need any apologists or propagandists. The achievements speak for themselves. The case for capitalism and private property rests, apart from other considerations, 
also upon the incomparable efficiency of its productive effort. It is this efficiency that makes it possible for capitalistic business to support a rapidly increasing population at a continually improving standard of living. The resulting progressive prosperity of the masses creates a social environment in which the exceptionally gifted individuals are free to give to their fellow citizens all they are able to give. The social system of private property and limited government is the only system that tends to debarbarize all those who have the innate capacity to acquire personal culture. It is a gratuitous pastime to belittle the material achievements of capitalism by observing that there are things that are more essential for mankind than bigger and speedier motor cars and homes equipped with central heating, air conditioning, refrigerators, washing machines, and television sets. There certainly are such higher and nobler pursuits. But they are higher and nobler precisely because they cannot be aspired to by any external effort, but require the individual's personal determination and exertion. Those leveling this reproach against capitalism display a rather crude and materialistic view in assuming that moral and spiritual culture could be built either by the government or by the organization of production activities. All that these external factors can achieve in this regard is to bring about an environment and a competence which offers the individuals the opportunity to work at their own personal perfection and edification. It is not the fault of capitalism that the masses prefer a boxing match to a performance of Sophocles' Antigone, jazz music to Beethoven's symphonies, and comics to poetry. But it is certain that while pre-capitalistic conditions, as they still prevail in the much greater part of the world, makes these good things accessible only to a small minority of people, capitalism gives to the many a favorable chance of striving after them. From whatever angle one may look at capitalism, there is no reason to lament the passing of the allegedly good old days. Still less is it justified to long for the totalitarian utopias, whether of the Nazi or of the Soviet type. We are inaugurating tonight the ninth meeting of the Mont Pelerin Society. It is fitting to remember on this occasion that meetings of this kind in which opinions opposed to those of the majority of our contemporaries and to those of their governments are advanced and are possible only in the climate of liberty and freedom. That is the most precious mark of Western civilization. Let us hope that this right to dissent will never disappear. Money, Method, and the Market Process The Idea of Liberty is Western The history of civilization is the record of a ceaseless struggle for liberty. Social cooperation under the division of labor is the ultimate and sole source of man's success in his struggle for survival and his endeavors to improve as much as possible the material conditions of his well-being. But as human nature is, society cannot exist if there is no provision for preventing unruly people from actions incompatible with community life. In order to preserve peaceful cooperation, one must be ready to resort to violent suppression of those disturbing the peace. Society cannot do without a social apparatus of coercion and compulsion, i.e. without state and government. Then a further problem emerges to restrain the men who are in charge of the governmental functions, lest they abuse their power and convert all other people into virtual slaves. 
The aim of all struggles for liberty is to keep in bounds the armed defenders of peace, the governors and their constables. Freedom always means freedom from arbitrary action on the part of the police power. The idea of liberty is and has always been peculiar to the West. What separates East and West is first of all the fact that the peoples of the East never conceived the idea of liberty. The imperishable glory of the ancient Greeks was that they were the first to grasp the meaning and significance of institutions warranting liberty. Recent historical research has traced back to Oriental sources the origin of some of the scientific achievements previously credited to the Hellenes. But nobody has ever contested that the idea of liberty was created in the cities of ancient Greece. The writings of Greek philosophers and historians transmitted it to the Romans and later to modern Europe and America. It became the essential concern of all Western plans for the establishment of the good society. It begot the laissez-faire philosophy, to which mankind owes all the unprecedented achievements of the age of capitalism. The meaning of all modern political and judicial institutions is to safeguard the individual's freedom against encroachments on the part of the government. Representative government and the rule of law, the independence of courts and tribunals from interference on the part of administrative agencies, habeas corpus, judicial examination and redress of acts of the administration, freedom of speech and the press, separation of state and church, and many other institutions aimed at one end only, to restrain the discretion of the officeholders and to render the individuals free from their arbitrariness. The age of capitalism has abolished all vestiges of slavery and serfdom. It has put an end to cruel punishments and has reduced the penalty for crimes to the minimum indispensable for discouraging offenders. It has done away with torture and other objectionable methods of dealing with suspects and lawbreakers. It has repealed all privileges and promulgated equality of all men under the law. It has transformed the subjects of tyranny into free citizens. The material improvements were the fruit of these reforms and innovations in the conduct of government affairs. As all privileges disappeared and everybody was granted the right to challenge the vested interests of all other people, a free hand was given to those who had the ingenuity to develop all the new industries, which today render the material conditions of people more satisfactory. Population figures multiplied and yet the increased population could enjoy a better life than their ancestors. Also in the countries of Western civilization, there have always been advocates of tyranny. The absolute arbitrary rule of an autocrat or an aristocracy on the one hand, and the subjection of all other people, on the other hand. But in the Age of Enlightenment, the voices of these opponents became thinner and thinner. The cause of liberty prevailed. In the first part of the 19th century, the victorious advance of the principle of freedom seemed to be irresistible. The most eminent philosophers and historians got the conviction that historical evolution tends toward the establishment of institutions warranting freedom and that no intrigues and machinations on the part of the champions could stop the trend toward liberalism. Number 2. In dealing with the preponderance of the liberal social philosophy, there is a disposition to overlook the power of an important factor that worked in favor of the idea of liberty, vis-a-vis -vis the eminent role assigned to the literature of ancient Greece in the education of the elite. 
There were among the Greek authors also champions of government omnipotence, such as Plato. But the essential tenor of Greek ideology was the pursuit of liberty. Judged by the standards of modern liberal and democratic institutions, the Greek city-states must be called oligarchies. The liberty which the Greek statesmen, philosophers, and historians glorified as the most precious good of man was a privilege reserved to a minority. In denying it to metics and slaves, they virtually advocated the despotic rule of an hereditary caste of oligarchs. Yet it would be a grave error to dismiss their hymns to liberty as mendacious. They were no less sincere in their praise and quest of freedom than were, 2,000 years later, the slaveholders George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. It was the political literature of the ancient Greeks that begot the ideas of the monarchomachs, the philosophy of the Whigs, the doctrines of Althusius, Grotius, and John Locke, and the ideology of the fathers of modern constitutions and bills of rights. It was the classical studies, the essential feature of a liberal education, that kept awake the spirit of freedom in England of the Stuarts and George III, in France of the Bourbons, and in Italy, subject to the despotism of a galaxy of princes. No less a man than Bismarck, among the 19th century statesmen, the foremost foe of liberty, bears witness to the fact that even in the Prussia of Frederick William III, the gymnasium was a stronghold of republicanism. The passionate endeavors to eliminate the classical studies from the curriculum of the liberal education, and thus virtually to destroy its very character, were one of the major manifestations of the revival of the servile ideology. It is a fact that a hundred years ago, only a few people anticipated the overpowering momentum which the anti-liberal ideas were destined to acquire in a very short time. The ideal of liberty seemed to be so firmly rooted that everybody thought that no reactionary movement could ever succeed in eradicating it. It is true it would have been a hopeless venture to attack freedom openly and to advocate unfeignedly a return to subjection and bondage. But anti-liberalism got a hold of people's minds, camouflaged as super-liberalism, as the fulfillment and consummation of the very ideas of freedom and liberty. It came disguised as socialism, communism, and planning. No intelligent man could fail to recognize that what the socialists, communists, and planners were aiming at was the most radical abolition of the individual's freedom and the establishment of government omnipotence. Yet the immense majority of the socialist intellectuals were convinced that in fighting for socialism, they were fighting for freedom. They called themselves left-wingers and Democrats, and nowadays they are even claiming for themselves the epithet liberals. These intellectuals and the masses who followed their lead were in their subconsciousness fully aware of the fact that their failure to attain the far-flung goals which their ambition impelled them to aim at was due to deficiencies of their own. They were either not bright enough or not industrious enough, but they were eager not to avow their inferiority both to themselves and to their fellow men, and to search for a scapegoat. They consoled themselves and tried to convince other people that the cause of their failure was not their own inferiority, but the injustice of society's economic organization. Under capitalism, they declared, self-realization is only possible for the few. Liberty in a laissez-faire society 
is attainable only by those who have the wealth or opportunity to purchase it. Hence, they concluded, the state must interfere in order to realize social justice. What they really meant is, in order to give to the frustrated mediocrity according to his needs. Number 3. As long as the problems of socialism were merely a matter of debates, people who lack clear judgment and understanding could fall prey to the illusion that freedom could be preserved even under a socialist regime. Such self-deceit can no longer be nurtured since the Soviet experience has shown to everybody what conditions are in a socialist commonwealth. Today, the apologists of socialism are forced to distort facts and to misrepresent the manifest meaning of words when they want to make people believe in the compatibility of socialism and freedom. The late Professor Lasky, a self-styled non-communist or even anti-communist, told us that, no doubt in Soviet Russia a communist has a full sense of liberty. No doubt also he has a keen sense that liberty is denied him in fascist Italy. The truth is that a Russian is free to obey all the orders issued by the great dictator. But as soon as he deviates a hundredth of an inch from the correct way of thinking as laid down by the authorities, he is mercilessly liquidated. All those politicians, office holders, authors, musicians, and scientists who were purged were, to be sure, not anti-communists. They were, on the contrary, fanatical communists, party members in good standing, whom the supreme authorities, in due recognition of their loyalty to the Soviet creed, had promoted to high positions. The only offense they had committed was that they were not quick enough in adjusting their ideas, policies, books, or compositions to the latest changes in the ideas and tastes of Stalin. It is difficult to believe that these people had a full sense of liberty, if one does not attach to the word liberty a sense which is precisely the contrary of the sense which all people always used to attach to it. Fascist Italy was certainly a country in which there was no liberty. It had adopted the notorious Soviet pattern of the one-party principle, and accordingly suppressed all dissenting views. Yet, there was still a conspicuous difference between the Bolshevik and the fascist application of this principle. For instance, there lived in fascist Italy a former member of the parliamentary group of communist deputies who remained loyal unto his death to his communist tenets, Professor Antonio Graziade. He regularly received the pension which he was entitled to claim as Professor Emeritus, and he was free to write and to publish with the most eminent Italian publishing firms, books which were Orthodox Marxian. His lack of liberty was certainly less rigid than that of the Russian communists, who, as Professor Lasky chose to say, no doubt, have a full sense of liberty. Professor Lasky took pleasure in repeating the truism that liberty in practice always means liberty within law. He went on saying that the law always aims at the conference of security upon a way of life which is deemed satisfactory by those who dominate the machinery of state. This is a correct description of the laws of a free country, if it means that the law aims at protecting society against conspiracies intent upon kindling civil war and upon overthrowing the government by violence. But it is a serious misstatement when Professor Lasky adds that in a capitalistic society, 
an effort on the part of the poor to alter in a radical way the property rights of the rich at once throws the whole scheme of liberties into jeopardy. Take the case of the great idol of Professor Lasky and all his friends, Karl Marx. When in 1848 and 1849, he took an active part in the organization and the conduct of the revolution, first in Prussia and later also in other German states. He was, being legally an alien, expelled and moved with his wife, his children, and his maid, first to Paris and then to London. Later, when peace returned and the abettors of the abortive revolution were amnestied, he was free to return to all parts of Germany and often made use of this opportunity. He was no longer in exile and he chose of his own account to make his home in London. Nobody molested him when he founded in 1864 the International Working Men's Association, a body whose avowed sole purpose it was to prepare the Great World Revolution. He was not stopped when, on behalf of this association, he visited various continental countries. He was free to write and to publish books and articles, which, to use the words of Professor Lasky, were certainly an effort to alter in a radical way the property rights of the rich. And he died quietly in his home, 41, Maitland Park Road, on March 14, 1883. Or take the case of the British Labour Party. Their effort to alter in a radical way the property rights of the rich was, as Professor Lasky knew very well, not hindered by any action incompatible with the principle of liberty. Marx, the dissenter, could at ease live, write, and advocate revolution in Victorian England, just as the Labour Party could at ease engage in all political activities in post-Victorian England. In Soviet Russia, not the slightest opposition is tolerated. This is what the difference between liberty and slavery means. Number 4. The critics of the legal and constitutional concept of liberty and the institutions devised for its practical realization are right in their assertion that freedom from arbitrary action on the part of the officeholders is in itself not yet sufficient to make an individual free. But in emphasizing this indisputable truth, they are running against open doors. For no advocate of liberty ever contended that to restrain the arbitrariness of officialdom is all that is needed to make the citizens free. What gives to the individuals as much freedom as is compatible with life in society is the operation of the market system. The constitutions and bills of rights do not create freedom. They merely protect the freedom that the competitive economic system grants to the individuals against encroachments on the part of the police power. In the market economy, people have the opportunity to strive after the station they want to attain in the structure of the social division of labor. They are free to choose the vocation in which they plan to serve their fellow men. In a planned economy, they lack this right. Here the authorities determine each man's occupation. The discretion of the superiors promotes a man to a better position or denies him such promotion. The individual entirely depends on the good graces of those in power. But under capitalism, everybody is free to challenge the vested interests of everybody else. If he thinks that he has the ability to supply the public better or more cheaply than other people do, he may try to demonstrate his efficiency. Lack of funds cannot frustrate his projects. 
For the capitalists are always in search of men who can utilize their funds in the most profitable way. The outcome of his business activities depends alone on the conduct of the consumers who buy what fits them best. Neither does the wage earner depend on the employer's arbitrariness. An entrepreneur who fails to hire those workers who are best fitted for the job concerned and to pay them enough to prevent them from taking another job is penalized by a reduction of net revenue. The employer does not grant to his employees a favor. He hires them as an indispensable means for the success of his business in the same way in which he buys raw materials and factory equipment. The worker is free to find the employment which suits him best. The process of social selection that determines each individual's position and income is continuously going on in the capitalist society. Great fortunes are shrinking and finally melting away completely, while other people born in poverty ascend to eminent positions and considerable incomes. Where there are no privileges and governments do not grant protection to vested interests threatened by the superior efficiency of newcomers, those who have acquired wealth in the past are forced to acquire it every day anew in competition with all other people. Within the framework of social cooperation under the division of labor, everybody depends on the recognition of his services on the part of the buying public, of which he himself is a member. Everybody in buying or abstaining from buying is a member of the Supreme Court, which assigns to all people, and thereby also to himself, a definite place in society. Everybody is instrumental in the process that assigns to some people a higher and to others a smaller income. Everybody is free to make a contribution which his fellow men are prepared to reward by the allocation of a higher income. Freedom under capitalism means not to depend more on other people's discretion than these others depend on one's own. No other freedom is conceivable where production is performed under the division of labor and there is no perfect economic autarky of everybody. There is need to stress the point that the essential argument advanced in favor of capitalism and against socialism is not the fact that socialism must necessarily abolish all vestiges of freedom and convert all people into slaves of those in power. Socialism is unrealizable as an economic system because a socialist society would not have any possibility of resorting to economic calculation. This is why it cannot be considered as a system of society's economic organization. It is a means to disintegrate social cooperation and to bring about poverty and chaos. Number 5. In dealing with the liberty issue, one does not refer to the essential economic problem of the antagonism between capitalism and socialism. One rather points out that Western man, as different from the Asiatics, is entirely a being adjusted to life in freedom and formed by life in freedom. The civilizations of China, Japan, India, and the Mohammedan countries of the Near East, as they existed before these nations became acquainted with Western ways of life, certainly cannot be dismissed as barbarism. These peoples, already many hundreds, even thousands of years ago, brought about marvelous achievements in the industrial arts, in architecture, in literature and philosophy, and in the development of educational institutions. They founded and organized powerful empires. But then their effort was arrested. Their cultures became numb and torpid. 
and they lost the ability to cope successfully with economic problems. Their intellectual and artistic genius withered away. Their artists and authors bluntly copied traditional patterns. Their theologians, philosophers, and lawyers indulged in unvarying exegesis of old works. The monuments erected by their ancestors crumbled. Their empires disintegrated. Their citizens lost vigor and energy and became apathetic in the face of progressing decay and impoverishment. The ancient works of Oriental philosophy and poetry can compare with the most valuable works of the West. But for many centuries, the East has not generated any book of importance. The intellectual and literary history of modern ages hardly records any name of an Oriental author. The East has no longer contributed anything to the intellectual effort of mankind. The problems and controversies that agitated the West remained unknown to the East. In Europe, there was commotion. In the East, there was stagnation, indolence, and indifference. The reason is obvious. The East lacked the primordial thing, the idea of freedom from the state. The East never raised the banner of freedom. It never tried to stress the rights of the individual against the power of the rulers. It never called into question the arbitrariness of the despots. And first of all, it never established the legal framework that would protect the private citizen's wealth against confiscation on the part of the tyrants. On the contrary, deluded by the idea that the wealth of the rich is the cause of the poverty of the poor, all people approved of the practice of the governors of expropriating successful businessmen. Thus, big-scale capital accumulation was prevented, and the nations had to miss all those improvements that require considerable investment of capital. No bourgeoisie could develop, and consequently there was no public to encourage and to patronize authors, artists, and inventors. To the sons of the people, all roads toward personal distinction were closed but one. They could try to make their way in serving the princes. Western society was a community of individuals who could compete for the highest prizes. Eastern society was an agglomeration of subjects entirely depending on the good graces of the sovereigns. The alert youth of the West looks upon the world as a field of action in which he can win fame, eminence, honors, and wealth. Nothing appears too difficult for his ambition. The meek progeny of Eastern parents know of nothing else than to follow the routine of their environment. The noble self-reliance of Western men found triumphant expression in such dithyrams as Sophocles' choric Antigone Hymn Upon Men and his enterprising effort, and Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Nothing of the kind has ever been heard in the Orient. Is it possible that the scions of the builders of the white man's civilization should renounce their freedom and voluntarily surrender to the suzerainty of omnipotent government? that they should seek contentment in a system in which their only task will be to serve as cogs in a vast machine designed and operated by an almighty plan-maker. Should the mentality of the arrested civilizations sweep the ideals for the ascendancy of which thousands and thousands have sacrificed their lives? Ruer in servitium, they plunged into slavery. Tacitus sadly observed in speaking of the Romans of the age of Tiberius. Chapter 20, Economic Method Money, Method, and the Market Process Social Science and Natural Science Number 1 
The foundations of the modern social sciences were laid in the 18th century. Up to this time, we find history only. Of course, the writings of the historians are full of implications which purport to be valid for all human action, irrespective of time and milieu. And even when they do not explicitly set forth such theses, they necessarily base their grasp of the facts and their interpretation on assumptions of this type. But no attempt was made to clarify these tacit suppositions by special analysis. On the other hand, the belief prevailed that in the field of human action, no other criterion could be used than that of good and bad. If a policy did not attain its end, its failure was ascribed to the moral insufficiency of man or to the weakness of the government. With good men and strong governments, everything was considered feasible. Then in the 18th century came a radical change. The founders of political economy discovered regularity in the operation of the market. They discovered that to every state of the market a certain state of prices corresponded, and that a tendency to restore this state made itself manifest whenever anything tried to alter it. This insight opened a new chapter in science. People came to realize with astonishment that human actions were open to investigation from other points of view than that of moral judgment. They were compelled to recognize a regularity which they compared to that which they were already familiar in the field of the natural sciences. Since the days of Cantillon, Hume, the physiocrats, and Adam Smith, economic theory has made continuous, although not steady, progress. In the course of this development, it has become much more than a theory of market operations within the frame of a society based on private ownership of the means of production. It has for some time been a general theory of human action of human choice and preference. Number two. The elements of social cognition are abstract and not reducible to any concrete images that might be apprehended by the senses. To make them easier to visualize, one likes to have recourse to metaphorical language. For some time, the biological metaphors were very popular. There were writers who overworked this metaphor to ridiculous extremes. It will suffice to cite the name of Lilienfeld. Today, the mechanistic metaphor is much more in use. The theoretical basis for its application is to be found in the positivist view of social science. Positivism blithely waved aside everything which history and economics taught. History, in its eyes, is simply no science. Economics, a special kind of metaphysics. In place of both, positivism postulates a social science which has to be built up by the experimental method as ideally applied in Newtonian physics. Economics has to be experimental, mathematical, and quantitative. Its task is to measure, because science is measurement. Every statement must be open to verification by facts. Every proposition of this positivist epistemology is wrong. The social sciences in general, and economics in particular, cannot be based on experience in the sense in which this term is used by the natural sciences. Social experience is historical experience. Of course, every experience is the experience of something past. But what distinguishes social experience from that which forms the basis of the natural sciences is that it is always the experience of a complexity of phenomena. The experience to which the natural sciences owe all their success is the experience of the experiment. In the experiments, the different elements of change are observed in isolation. The control of the conditions of change provides the experimenter with the means of assigning to each effect its sufficient cause. Without regard to the philosophical problem involved, he proceeds to amass facts. 
These facts are the bricks which the scientist uses in constructing his theories. They constitute the only material at his disposal. His theory must not be in contradiction with these facts. They are the ultimate things. The social sciences cannot make use of experiments. The experience with which they have to deal is the experience of complex phenomena. They are in the same position as acoustics would be if the only material of the scientist were the hearing of a concerto or the noise of a waterfall. It is nowadays fashionable to style the statistical bureau's laboratories. This is misleading. The material which statistics provides is historical. That means the outcome of a complexity of forces. The social sciences never enjoy the advantage of observing the consequences of a change in one element only, other conditions being equal. It follows that the social sciences can never use experience to verify their statements. Every fact and every experience with which they have to deal is open to various interpretations. Of course, the experience of a complexity of phenomena can never prove or disprove a statement in the way in which an experiment proves or disproves. We do not have any historical experience whose import is judged identically by all people. There is no doubt that up to now in history, only nations which have based their social order on private ownership of the means of production have reached a somewhat high stage of welfare and civilization. Nevertheless, nobody would consider this as an incontestable refutation of socialist theories. In the field of the natural sciences, there are also differences of opinion concerning the interpretation of complex facts. But here, freedom of explanation is limited by the necessity of not contradicting statements satisfactorily verified by experiments. In the interpretation of social facts, no such limits exist. Everything could be asserted about them provided that we are not confined within the bounds of principles of whose logical nature we intend to speak later. Here, however, we already have to mention that every discussion concerning the meaning of historical experience imperceptibly passes over into a discussion of these principles without any further reference to experience. People may begin by discussing the lesson to be learned from an import duty or from the Russian Soviet system. They will very quickly be discussing the general theory of interregional trade or the no less pure theory of socialism and capitalism. The impossibility of experimenting means concomitantly the impossibility of measurement. The physicist has to deal with magnitudes and numerical relations because he has the right to assume that certain invariable relationships between physical properties subsist. The experiment provides him with the numerical value to be assigned to them. In human behavior, there are no such constant relations. There is no standard which could be used as a measure, and there are no experiments which could establish uniformities of this type. What the statistician establishes in studying the relations between prices and supply, or between supply and demand, is of historical importance only. If he determines that a rise of 10% in the supply of potatoes in Atlantis in the years between 1920 and 1930 was followed by a fall in the price of potatoes by 8%, he does not say anything about what happened or may happen with a change in the supply of potatoes in another country or at another time. Such measurements as that of elasticity of demand cannot be compared with a physicist's measurement. Example, specific density or weight of atoms. Of course, everybody realizes that the behavior of men concerning potatoes and every other commodity is variable. Different individuals value the same things in a different way, and the valuation changes even with the same individual with changing conditions. 
We cannot categorize individuals in classes which react in the same way, and we cannot determine the conditions which evoke the same reaction. Under these circumstances, we have to realize that the statistical economist is an historian and not an experimenter. For the social sciences, statistics constitutes a method of historical research. In every science, the considerations which result in the formulation of an equation are of a non-mathematical character. The formulation of the equation has a practical importance because the constant relations which it includes are experimentally established and because it is possible to introduce specific known values in the function to determine those unknown. These equations thus lie at the basis of technological designing. They are not only the consummation of the theoretical analysis, but also the starting point of practical work. But in economics, where there are no constant relations between magnitudes, the equations are void of practical application. Even if we could dispose of all qualms concerning their formulation, we would still have to realize that they are without any practical use. But the chief objection which must be raised to the mathematical treatment of economic problems comes from another ground. It really does not deal with the actual operations of human action, but with a fictitious concept that the economist builds up for instrumental purposes. This is the concept of static equilibrium. For the sake of grasping the consequences of change and the nature of profit in a market economy, the economist constructs a fictitious system in which there is no change. Today is like yesterday and tomorrow will be like today. There is no uncertainty about the future and activity therefore does not involve risk. But for the allowance to be made of interest, the sum of the prices of the complementary factors of production exactly equals the price of the product, which means there is no room left for profit. But this fictitious concept is not only unrealizable in actual life, it cannot even be consistently carried to its ultimate conclusions. The individuals in this fictitious world would not act, they would not have to make choices, they would just vegetate. It is true that economics, exactly because it cannot make experiments, is bound to apply this and other fictitious concepts of a similar type. But its use should be restricted to the purposes which it is designed to serve. The purpose of the concept of static equilibrium is the study of the nature of the relations between costs and prices, and thereby of profits. Outside of this, it is inapplicable and occupation with it vain. Now, all that mathematics can do in the field of economic studies is to describe static equilibrium. The equations and the indifference curves deal with a fictitious state of things, which never exists anywhere. What they afford is a mathematical expression of the definition of static equilibrium. Because mathematical economists start from the prejudice that economics has to be treated in mathematical terms, they consider the study of static equilibrium as the whole of economics. The purely instrumental character of this concept has been overshadowed by this preoccupation. Of course, mathematics cannot tell us anything about the way by which the static equilibrium could be reached. The mathematical determination of the difference between any actual state and the equilibrium state is not a substitute for the method by which the logical or non-mathematical economists let us conceive the nature of those human actions which necessarily would bring about equilibrium provided that no further change occurs in the data. Occupation with static equilibrium is a misguided evasion of the study of the main economic problems. The pragmatic value of this equilibrium concept should not be underrated, but it is an instrument for the solution of one problem only. 
In any case, the mathematical elaboration of static equilibrium is mere byplay in economics. The case is similar with the use of curves. We may represent the price of a commodity as the point of intersection of two curves, the curve of demand and the curve of supply. But we have to realize that we do not know anything about the shape of these curves. We know a posteriori the prices which we assume to be the points of intersection. But we do not know the form of the curve either in advance or for the past. The representation of the curves is therefore nothing more than a didactic means of rendering the theory graphic and hence more easily comprehensible. The mathematical economist is prone to consider the price either as a measurement of value or as equivalent to the commodity. To this we have to say that prices are not measured in money, but that they are the amount of money exchanged for a commodity. The price is not equivalent to the commodity. A purchase takes place only when the buyer values the commodity higher than the price, and the seller values it lower than the price. Nobody has the right to abstract from this fact and to assume an equivalence where there is a difference in valuation. When either one of the parties considers the price as the equivalent of the commodity, no transaction takes place. In this sense, we may say every transaction is for both parties a bargain. Number three. Physicists consider the objects of their study from without. They have no knowledge of what is going on in the interior, in the soul, of a falling stone. But they have the opportunity to observe the falling of the stone in experiments, and thereby to discover what they call the laws of falling. From the results of such experimental knowledge, they build up their theories proceeding from the special to the more general, from concrete to the more abstract. Economics deals with human actions, not as it is sometimes said, with commodities, economic quantities, or prices. We do not have the power to experiment with human actions, but we have, being human ourselves, a knowledge of what goes on within acting men. We know something about the meaning which acting men attach to their actions. We know why men wish to change the conditions of their lives. We know something about that uneasiness which is the ultimate incentive of the changes which they bring about. A perfectly satisfied man or a man who, although unsatisfied, did not see any means of improvement, would not act at all. Thus, the economist is, as Cairn says, at the outset of his researches, already in possession of the ultimate principles governing the phenomena which form the subject of his study, whereas mankind has no direct knowledge of ultimate physical principles. Herein lies the radical difference between the social sciences. Moral Sciences, Geste Wissenschaften, and the Natural Sciences. What makes natural science possible is the power to experiment. What makes social science possible is the power to grasp or to comprehend the meaning of human action. We have to distinguish two quite different kinds of this comprehension of the meaning of action. We conceive and we understand. We conceive the meaning of an action. That is to say, we take an action to be such. We see in the action the endeavor to reach a goal by the use of means. In conceiving the meaning of an action, we consider it as a purposeful endeavor to reach some goal. But we do not regard the quality of the ends proposed and of the means applied. We conceive activity as such, its logical, praxeological qualities and categories. All that we do in this conceiving is by deductive analysis to bring to light everything which is contained in the first principle of action, and to apply it to different kinds of thinkable conditions. This study is the object of the theoretical science of human action or praxeology, and in particular of its hitherto most developed branch, 
economics, or economic theory. Economics, therefore, is not based on or derived, abstracted from, experience. It is a deductive system starting from the insight into the principles of human reason and conduct. As a matter of fact, all our experience in the field of human action is based on and conditioned by the circumstance that we have this insight in our mind. Without this a priori knowledge and the theorems derived from it, we could not at all realize what is going on in human activity. Our experience of human action and social life is predicated on praxeological and economic theory. It is important to be aware of the fact that this procedure and method are not peculiar only to scientific investigation, but are the mode of ordinary daily apprehension of social facts. These a prioristic principles and the deductions from them are applied not only by the professional economist, but by everybody who deals with economic facts or problems. The layman does not proceed in a way significantly different from that of the scientist. Only he sometimes is less critical, less scrupulous in examining every step in the chain of his deductions, and therefore sometimes more subject to error. One need only observe any discussion on current economic problems to realize that its course turns very soon towards a consideration of abstract principles, without any reference to experience. You cannot, for instance, discuss the Soviet system without falling back on the general principles, both of capitalism and socialism. You cannot discuss a wage and hours bill without falling back on the theory of wages, profits, interest, and prices. That means the general theory of a market society. The pure fact, let us set aside the epistemological question whether there is such a thing, is open to different interpretations. These interpretations require elucidation by theoretical insight. Economics is not only derived from experience, it is even impossible to verify its theorems by appeal to experience. Every experience of a complex phenomenon, we must repeat, can be and is explained in different ways. The same facts, the same statistical figures, are claimed as confirmations of contradictory theories. It is instructive to compare the technique of dealing with experience in the social sciences with that in the natural sciences. We have many books on economics which, after having developed a theory, annex chapters in which an attempt is made to verify the theory developed by an appeal to the facts. This is not the way which the natural scientist takes. He starts from facts experimentally established and builds up his theory in using them. If his theory allows a deduction that predicts a state of affairs not yet discovered in experiments, he describes what kind of experiment would be crucial for his theory. The theory seems to be verified if the result conforms to the prediction. This is something radically and significantly different from the approach taken by the social sciences. To confront economic theory with reality, we do not have to try to explain in a superficial way facts interpreted differently by other people so that they seem to verify our theory. This dubious procedure is not the way in which reasonable discussion can take place. What we have to do is this. We have to inquire whether the special conditions of action which we have implied in our reasoning correspond to those we find in the segment of reality under consideration. A theory of money, or rather of indirect exchange, is correct or not without reference to the question of whether the actual economic system under examination employs indirect exchange or only barter. The method applied in these theoretical a prioristic considerations is the method of speculative constructions. The economist, and likewise the layman in his economic reasoning, builds up an image of a non-existent state of things.
The material for this construction is drawn from an insight into the conditions of human action. Whether the state of affairs which these speculative constructions depict corresponds or could correspond to reality is irrelevant for their instrumental efficiency. Even unrealizable constructions can render valuable service in giving us the opportunity to conceive what makes them unrealizable and in what respect they differ from reality. The speculative construction of a socialist community is indispensable for economic reasoning, notwithstanding the question of whether such a society could or could not be realized. One of the best-known and most frequently applied speculative constructions is that of a state of static equilibrium mentioned above. We are fully aware that this state can never be realized, but we cannot study the implications of changes without considering a changeless world. No modern economist will deny that the application of the speculative concept has rendered invaluable service in elucidating the character of entrepreneurs' profits and losses and the relation between costs and prices. All our economic reasoning operates with these speculative concepts. It is true that the method has its dangers. It easily lends itself to errors. But we have to use it because it is the only method available. Of course, we have to be very careful in using it. To the obvious question, how a purely logical deduction from a prioristic principles can tell us anything about reality, we have to reply that both human thought and human action stem from the same root in that they are both products of the human mind. Correct results from our a prioristic reasoning are therefore not only logically irrefutable, but at the same time applicable with all their apodictic certainty to reality, provided that the assumptions involved are given in reality. The only way to refuse a conclusion of economics is to demonstrate that it contains a logical fallacy. It is another question whether the results obtained apply to reality. This again can be decided only by the demonstration that the assumptions involved have or do not have any counterpart in the reality which we wish to explain. The relation between historical experience, for every economic experience is historical in the sense that it is the experience of something past, and economic theory is therefore different from that generally assumed. Economic theory is not derived from experience. It is, on the contrary, the indispensable tool for the grasp of economic history. Economic history can neither prove nor disprove the teachings of economic theory. It is, on the contrary, economic theory which makes it possible for us to conceive the economic facts of the past. Number 4. But to orient ourselves in the world of human actions, we need to do more than merely conceive the meaning of human action. Both the acting men and the purely observing historian have not only to conceive the categories of action as economic theory does. They have, besides to understand, Verstechen, the meaning of human choice. This understanding of the meaning of action is the specific method of historical research. The historian has to establish the facts as far as possible by the use of all the means provided, both by the theoretical sciences of human action, praxeology and its hitherto most developed part, economics, and by the natural sciences. But then he has to go farther. He has to study the individual and unique conditions of the case in question. Individuum est ineffabile. Individuality is given to the historian. It is exactly that which cannot be exhaustively explained or traced back to other entities. In this sense, individuality is irrational. 
The purpose of specific understanding as applied by the historical disciplines is to grasp the meaning of individuality by a psychological process. It establishes the fact that we face something individual. It fixes the valuations, the aims, the theories, the beliefs, and the errors. In a word, the total philosophy of the acting individuals and the way in which they envisaged the conditions under which they had to act. It puts us into the milieu of the action. Of course, this specific understanding cannot be separated from the philosophy of the interpreter. That degree of scientific objectivity which can be reached in the natural sciences and in the a prioristic sciences of logic and praxeology can never be attained by the moral or historical sciences. Geist, Swiss, and Schaften, in the field of the specific understanding. You can understand in different ways. History can be written from different points of view. The historians may agree in everything that can be established in a rational way, and nevertheless widely disagree in their interpretations. History, therefore, has always to be rewritten. New philosophies demand a new representation of the past. The specific understanding of the historical sciences is not an act of pure rationality. It is the recognition that reason has exhausted all its resources, and that we can do nothing more than to try as well as we may to give an explanation of something irrational, which is resistant to exhaustive and unique description. These are the tasks which the understanding has to fulfill. It is, notwithstanding, a logical tool and should be used as such. It should never be abused for the purpose of smuggling into the historical work obscurantism, mysticism, and similar elements. It is not a free charter for nonsense. It is necessary to emphasize this point because it sometimes happens that the abuses of a certain type of historicism are justified by an appeal to a wrongly interpreted understanding. The reason of logic, praxeology, and of the natural sciences can under no circumstances be invalidated by the understanding. However strong the evidence supplied by the historical sources may be, and however understandable, a fact may be from the point of view of theories contemporaneous with it. If it does not fit into our rationale, we cannot accept it. The existence of witches and the practice of witchcraft are abundantly attested by legal proceedings, yet we will not accept it. Judgments of many tribunals are on record asserting that people have depreciated a country's currency by upsetting the balance of payments, yet we will not believe that such actions have such effects. It is not the task of history to reproduce the past. An attempt to do so would be vain and would require a duplication not humanly possible. History is a representation of the past in terms of concepts. The specific concepts of historical research are type concepts. These types of the historical method can be built up only by the use of the specific understanding, and they are meaningful only in the frame of the understanding to which they owe their existence. Therefore, not every type concept which is logically valid can be considered as useful for the purpose of understanding. A classification is valid in a logical sense if all the elements united in one class are characterized by a common feature. Classes do not exist in actuality. They are always a product of the mind which, in observing things, discovers likenesses and differences. It is another question whether a classification which is logically valid and based on sound considerations can be used for the explanation of given data. There is, for instance, no doubt that a type or class fascism, which includes not only Italian fascism but also German Nazism, the Spanish system of General Franco, the Hungarian system of Admiral Horthy, and some other systems, can be constructed in a logically valid way 
and that it can be contrasted to a type called Bolshevism, which includes the Russian Bolshevism and the system of Bela Kun in Hungary, and of the short Soviet episode of Munich. But whether this classification and the inference from it, which sees the world of the last 20 years divided into two parties, fascists and Bolsheviks, is the right way to understand present-day political conditions, is open to question. You can understand this period of history in a quite different way by using other types. You may distinguish democracy and totalitarianism, and then let the type democracy include the Western capitalist system, and the type totalitarianism include both Bolshevism and what the other classification terms fascism. Whether you apply the first or the second typification depends on the whole mode in which you see things. The understanding decides upon the classification to be used, and not the classification upon the understanding. The type concepts of the historical or moral sciences, Gestiswissenschaften, are not statistical averages. Most of the features used for classification are not subject to numerical determination, and this alone renders it impossible to construct them as statistical averages. These type concepts, in German one uses the term ideal typus, in order to distinguish them from the type concepts of other sciences, especially of the biological ones, ought not to be confused with the praxeological concepts used for the conceiving of the categories of human action. For instance, the concept entrepreneur is used in economic theory to signify a specific function, that is, the provision for an uncertain future. In this respect, everybody has to some extent to be considered as an entrepreneur. Of course, it is not the task of this classification in economic theory to distinguish men, but to distinguish functions and to explain sources of profit or loss. Entrepreneur, in this sense, is the personification of the function which results in profit or loss. In economic history and in dealing with current economic problems, the term entrepreneur signifies a class of men who are engaged in business, but who may, in many other respects, differ so much that the general term entrepreneur seems to be meaningless and is used only with a special qualification. For instance, big, medium-sized, small business. Wall Street, armaments business, German business, etc. The type entrepreneur as used in history and politics can never have the conceptual exactitude which the praxeological concept entrepreneur has. You never meet in life men who are nothing else than the personification of one function only. Number 5. The preceding remarks justify the conclusion that there is a radical difference between the methods of the social sciences and those of the natural sciences. The social sciences owe their progress to the use of their particular methods and have to go further along the lines which the special character of their object require. They do not have to adopt the methods of the natural sciences. It is a fallacy to recommend to the social sciences the use of mathematics and to believe that they could in this way be made more exact. The application of mathematics does not render physics more exact or more certain. Let us quote Einstein's remark. As far as mathematical propositions refer to reality, they are not certain, and as far as they are certain, they do not refer to reality. It is different with praxeological propositions. These refer with all their exactitude and certainty to the reality of human action. The explanation of this phenomenon lies in the fact that both, the science of human action and human action itself, have a common root, i.e. human reason. It would be a mistake to assume that the quantitative approach could render them more exact. 
Every numerical expression is inexact because of the inherent limitations of human powers of measurement. For the rest, we have to refer to what has been said above on the purely historical character of quantitative expressions in the field of social sciences. The reformers who wish to improve the social sciences by adopting the methods of the natural sciences sometimes try to justify their efforts by pointing to the backward state of the former. Nobody will deny that the social sciences and especially economics are far from being perfect. Every economist knows how much remains to be done, but two considerations must be kept in mind. First, the present unsatisfactory state of social and economic conditions has nothing to do with an alleged inadequacy in economic theory. If people do not use the teachings of economics as a guide for their policies, they cannot blame the discipline for their own failure. Second, if it may someday be necessary to reform economic theory radically, this change will not take its direction along the lines suggested by the present critics. The objections of these are thoroughly refuted forever. The Ultimate Foundation of Economic Science Number 3 on Economics The study of economics has been again and again led astray by the vain idea that economics must proceed according to the pattern of other sciences. The mischief done by such misconstructions cannot be avoided by admonishing the economist to stop casting longing glances upon other fields of knowledge or even to ignore them entirely. Ignorance, whatever subject it may concern, is in no case a quality that could be useful in the search for truth. What is needed to prevent a scholar from garbling economic studies by resorting to the methods of mathematics, physics, biology, history, or jurisprudence is not slighting and neglecting these sciences, but on the contrary trying to comprehend and to master them. He who wants to achieve anything in praxeology must be conversant with mathematics, physics, biology, history, and jurisprudence, lest he confuse the tasks and the methods of the theory of human action with the tasks and the methods of any of these other branches of knowledge. What was wrong with the various historical schools of economics was first of all that their adepts were merely dilettantes in the field of history. No competent mathematician can fail to see through the fundamental fallacies of all varieties of what is called mathematical economics, and especially of econometrics. No biologist was ever fooled by the rather amateurish organicism of such authors as Paul D. Lilienfeld. When I once expressed this opinion in a lecture, a young man in the audience objected. You are asking too much of an economist, he observed. Nobody can force me to employ my time in studying all these sciences. My answer was, nobody asks or forces you to become an economist. Number 4. The Starting Point of Praxeological Thinking The a priori knowledge of praxeology is entirely different, categorically different, from the a priori knowledge of mathematics, or more precisely, from mathematical a priori knowledge as interpreted by logical positivism. The starting point of all praxeological thinking is not arbitrarily chosen axioms but a self-evident proposition, fully, clearly, and necessarily present in every human mind. An unabridgeable gulf separates those animals in whose minds this cognition is present from those in whose minds it is not fully and clearly present. Only to the former is the appellation man accorded. The characteristic feature of man is precisely that he consciously acts. Man is homo agents, the acting animal. All, apart from zoology, 
that has ever been scientifically stated to distinguish men from non-human mammals is implied in the proposition, man acts. To act means to strive after ends, that is, to choose a goal and to resort to means in order to attain the goal sought. The essence of logical positivism is to deny the cognitive value of a priori knowledge by pointing out that all a priori propositions are merely analytic. They do not provide new information, but are merely verbal or tautological, asserting what has already been implied in the definitions and premises. Only experience can lead to synthetic propositions. There is an obvious objection against this doctrine vis-a-vis that this proposition that there are no synthetic a priori propositions is in itself a, as the present writer thinks false, synthetic a priori proposition, for it can manifestly not be established by experience. The whole controversy is, however, meaningless when applied to praxeology. It refers essentially to geometry. Its present state, especially its treatment by logical positivism, has been deeply influenced by the shock that Western philosophy received from the discovery of non-Euclidean geometries. Before Bolyai and Lobachevsky, geometry was, in the eyes of the philosophers, the paragon of perfect science. It was assumed that it provided unshakable certainty forever and for everybody. To proceed also in other branches of knowledge, more geometrico, was the great ideal of truth-seekers. All traditional epistemological concepts began to totter when the attempts to construct non-Euclidean geometry succeeded. Yet, praxeology is not geometry. It is the worst of all superstitions to assume that the epistemological characteristics of one brand of knowledge must necessarily be applicable to any other branch. In dealing with the epistemology of the sciences of human action, one must not take one's cue from geometry, mechanics, or any other science. The assumptions of Euclid were once considered as self-evidently true. Present-day epistemology looks upon them as freely chosen postulates, the starting point of a hypothetical chain of reasoning. Whatever this may mean, it has no reference at all to the problems of praxeology. The starting point of praxeology is a self-evident truth the cognition of action, that is, the cognition of the fact that there is such a thing as consciously aiming at ends. There is no use cavilling about these words by referring to philosophical problems that have no bearing upon our problem. The truth of this cognition is as self-evident and as indispensable for the human mind, as is the distinction between A and non-A. Number 5. The Two Branches of the Sciences of Human Action There are two branches of the sciences of human action, praxeology on the one hand, history on the other. Praxeology is a priori. It starts from the a priori category of action and develops out of it all that it contains. For practical reasons, praxeology does not as a rule pay much attention to those problems that are of no use for the study of the reality of man's action, but restricts its work to those problems that are necessary for the elucidation of what is going on in reality. Its intent is to deal with action taking place under conditions that acting men has to face. This does not alter the purely a prioristic character of praxeology. It merely circumscribes the field that the individual praxeologists customarily choose for their work. They refer to experience only in order to separate those problems that are of interest for the study of men, as he really is, and acts from other problems that offer a merely academic interest. The answer to the question whether or not definite theorems of praxeology apply to a definite problem of action 
depends on the establishment of the fact, whether or not the special assumptions that characterize this theorem are of any value for the cognition of reality. To be sure, it does not depend on the answer to the question whether or not these assumptions correspond to the real state of affairs that the praxeologists want to investigate. The imaginary constructions that are the main, or as some people would rather say, the only, mental tool of praxeology describe conditions that can never be present in the reality of action. Yet they are indispensable for conceiving what is going on in this reality. Even the most bigoted advocates of an empiricist interpretation of the methods of economics employ the imaginary construction of an evenly rotating economy, static equilibrium, although such a state of human affairs can never be realized. Following in the wake of Kant's analysis, philosophers raise the question, how can the human mind by a prioristic thinking deal with the reality of the external world? As far as praxeology is concerned, the answer is obvious. Both a priori thinking and reasoning on the one hand, and human action on the other, are manifestations of the human mind. The logical structure of the human mind creates the reality of action. Reason and action are congeneric and homogeneous, two aspects of the same phenomena. In this sense, we may apply to praxeology the dictum of Empedocles. Some authors have raised the rather shallow question how a praxeologist would react to an experience contradicting theorems of his a prioristic doctrine. The answer is, in the same way in which a mathematician will react to the experience that there is no difference between two apples and seven apples, or a logician to the experience that a and non-a are identical. Experience concerning human action presupposes the category of human action and all that derives from it. If one does not refer to the system of the praxeological a priori, one must not and cannot talk of action, but merely of events that are to be described in terms of the natural sciences. Awareness of the problems with which the sciences of human action are concerned is conditioned by familiarity with the a priori categories of praxeology. Incidentally, we may also remark that any experience in the field of human action is specifically historical experience i.e. the experience of complex phenomena, which can never falsify any theorem in the way a laboratory experiment can do with regard to the statements of the natural sciences. Up to now, the only part of praxeology that has been developed into a scientific system is economics. A Polish philosopher, Tadeusz Kotorbinski, is trying to develop a new branch of praxeology, the praxeological theory of conflict and war, as opposed to the theory of cooperation or economics. The other branch of the sciences of human action is history. It comprehends the totality of what is experienced about human action. It is the methodically arranged record of human action, the description of the phenomena as they happened, vis-a-vis -vis in the past. What distinguishes the descriptions of history from those of the natural sciences is that they are not interpreted in the light of the category of regularity. When the physicist says, if A encounters B, C results. He wants, whatever philosophers may say, to assert that C will emerge whenever or wherever A will encounter B under analogous conditions. When the historian refers to the Battle of Cannae, he knows that he is talking about the past, and that this particular battle will never be fought again. Experience is a uniform mental activity. There are not two different branches of experience, one resorted to in the natural sciences, the other in historical research. Every act of experience is a description of what happened in terms of the observer's logical and praxeological equipment 
and his knowledge of the natural sciences. It is the observer's attitude that interprets the experience by adding it to his own already previously accumulated store of experienced facts. What distinguishes the experience of the historian from that of the naturalist and the physicist is that he searches for the meaning that the event had or has for those who were either instrumental in bringing it about or were affected by its happening. The natural sciences do not know anything about final causes. For praxeology, finality is the fundamental category. But praxeology abstracts from the concrete content of the ends men are aiming at. It is history that deals with the concrete ends. For history, the main question is, what was the meaning the actors attached to the situation in which they found themselves, and what was the meaning of their reaction? And finally, what was the result of these actions? The autonomy of history, or as we may say, of the various historical disciplines, consists in their dedication to the study of meaning. It is perhaps not superfluous to emphasize again and again that when historians say meaning, they refer to the meaning individual men. The actors themselves and those affected by their actions, or the historians, saw in the actions. History as such has nothing in common with the point of view of philosophies of history that pretend to know the meaning that God, or a quasi-God, such as the material productive forces in the scheme of Marx, attaches to the various events. Number 6. The Logical Character of Praxeology Praxeology is a priori. All its theorems are products of deductive reasoning that starts from the category of action. The questions whether the judgments of praxeology are to be called analytic or synthetic, and whether or not its procedure is to be qualified as merely tautological, are of verbal interest only. What praxeology asserts with regard to human action in general is strictly valid without any exception for every action. There is action and there is the absence of action, but there is nothing in between. Every action is an attempt to exchange one state of affairs for another, and everything that praxeology affirms with regard to exchange refers strictly to it. In dealing with every action, we encounter the fundamental concepts end and means, success or failure, profit or loss, costs. An exchange can be either direct or indirect, i.e. affected through the interposition of an intermediary stage. Whether a definite action was indirect exchange has to be determined by experience. But if it was indirect exchange, then all that praxeology says about indirect exchange in general strictly applies to it. Every theorem of praxeology is deducted by logical reasoning from the category of action. It partakes of the apodictic certainty provided by logical reasoning that starts from an a priori category. Into the chain of praxeological reasoning, the praxeologist introduces certain assumptions concerning the conditions of the environment in which an action takes place. Then he tries to find out how these special conditions affect the result to which his reasoning must lead. The question whether or not the real conditions of the external world correspond to these assumptions is to be answered by experience. But if the answer is in the affirmative, all the conclusions drawn by logically correct praxeological reasoning strictly describe what is going on in reality. Number 1. The Problem of Quantitative Definiteness Laboratory experiments and observation of external phenomena enable the natural sciences to proceed with measurement and the quantification of knowledge. Referring to this fact, one used to style these sciences as the exact sciences and to belittle the lack of exactitude in the sciences of human action. 
Today, nobody any longer denies that on account of the insufficiency of our senses, measurement is never perfect and precise in the full sense of these terms. It is only more or less approximate. Besides, the Heisenberg principle shows that there are relations that man cannot measure at all. There is no such thing as quantitative exactitude in our description of natural phenomena. However, the approximations that measurement of physical and chemical objects can provide are by and large sufficient for practical purposes. The orbit of technology is an orbit of approximate measurement and approximate quantitative definiteness. In the sphere of human action, there are no constant relations between any factors. There is consequently no measurement and no quantification possible. All measurable magnitudes that the sciences of human action encounter are quantities of the environment in which man lives and acts. They are historical facts, example facts of economic or of military history, and are to be clearly distinguished from the problems with which the theoretical science of action, praxeology and especially also its most developed part, economics, deals. Deluded by the idea that the sciences of human action must ape the technique of the natural sciences, hosts of authors are intent upon a quantification of economics. They think that economics ought to imitate chemistry, which progressed from a qualitative to a quantitative state. Their motto is the positivistic maxim, science is measurement. Supported by rich funds, they are busy reprinting and rearranging statistical data provided by governments, by trade associations, and by corporations and other enterprises. They try to compute the arithmetical relations among various of these data, and thus to determine what they call, by analogy with the natural sciences, correlations and functions. They fail to realize that in the field of human action, statistics is always history, and that the alleged correlations and functions do not describe anything else than what happened at a definite instant of time in a definite geographical area as the outcome of the actions of a definite number of people. As a method of economic analysis, econometrics is a childish play with figures that does not contribute anything to the elucidation of the problems of economic reality. Number 9. The Examination of Praxeological Theorems the epistemologist who starts his lucubrations from the analysis of the method of the natural sciences and whom blinders prevent from perceiving anything beyond this field tells us merely that the natural sciences are the natural sciences and that what is not natural science is not natural science. About the sciences of human action he does not know anything and therefore all that he utters about them is of no consequence. It is not a discovery made by these authors that the theories of praxeology cannot be refuted by experiments, nor confirmed by their successful employment in the construction of various gadgets. These facts are precisely one aspect of our problem. The positivist doctrine implies that nature and reality, in providing the sense data that the protocol sentences register, write their own story upon the white sheet of the human mind. The kind of experience to which they refer in speaking of verifiability and irrefutability is, as they think, something that does not depend in any way on the logical structure of the human mind. It provides a faithful image of reality. On the other hand, they suppose reason is arbitrary and therefore liable to error and misinterpretation. The doctrine not only fails to make allowance for the fallibility of our apprehension of sense objects, it does not realize that perception is more than just sensuous apprehension, that it is an intellectual act performed by the mind. In this regard, both associationism and gestalt psychology agree. 
There is no reason to ascribe to the operation the mind performs in the act of becoming aware of an external object a higher epistemological dignity than to the operation the mind performs in describing its own ways of procedure. In fact, nothing is more certain for the human mind than what the category of human action brings into relief. There is no human being to whom the intent is foreign to substitute by appropriate conduct one state of affairs for another state of affairs that would prevail if he did not interfere. Only where there is action are there men. What we know about our own actions and about those of other people is conditioned by our familiarity with the category of action that we owe to a process of self-examination and introspection, as well as of understanding of other people's conduct. To question this insight is no less impossible than to question the fact that we are alive. He who wants to attack a praxeological theorem has to trace it back step by step until he reaches a point in which, in the chain of reasoning that resulted in the theorem concerned, a logical error can be unmasked. But if this regressive process of deduction ends at the category of action without having discovered a vicious link in the chain of reasoning, the theorem is fully confirmed. Those positivists who reject such a theorem without having subjected it to this examination are no less foolish than those 17th century astronomers were who refused to look through the telescope that would have shown them that Galileo was right and they were wrong. Number four, the case of the sciences of human action. However, this essay does not deal with theology or metaphysics and the rejection of their doctrines by positivism. It deals with positivism's attack upon the sciences of human action. The fundamental doctrine of positivism is the thesis that the experimental procedures of the natural sciences are the only method to be applied in the search for knowledge. As the positivists see it, the natural sciences, entirely absorbed by the more urgent task of elucidating the problems of physics and chemistry, have in the past neglected, and may also in the near future neglect, to pay attention to the problems of human action. But they add, there cannot be any doubt that once the men imbued with a scientific outlook and trained in the exact methods of laboratory work, have the leisure to turn toward the study of such minor issues as human behavior they will substitute authentic knowledge of all these matters for the worthless palaver that is now in vogue. Unified science will solve all the problems involved and will inaugurate a blissful age of social engineering in which all human affairs will be handled in the same satisfactory way in which modern technology supplies electric current. Some rather significant steps on the way to this result, pretend the less cautious harbingers of this creed, have already been made by behaviorism or, as Neuroth preferred to call it, behavioristics. They point to the discovery of tropisms and to that of conditioned reflexes. Progressing further with the aid of the methods that brought about these achievements, science will one day be able to make good all the promises of positivism. It is a vain conceit of man to presume that his conduct is not entirely determined by the same impulses that determine the behavior of plants and of dogs. Against all this impassioned talk, we have to stress the hard fact that the natural sciences have no intellectual tool to deal with ideas and with finality. An assured positivist may hope that one day physiologists may succeed in describing in terms of physics and chemistry all the events that resulted in the production of definite individuals and in modifying their inborn substance during their lives. We may neglect raising the question whether such knowledge would be sufficient to explain fully the behavior of animals in any situation they may have to face. 
But it cannot be doubted that it would not enable the students to deal with the way in which a man reacts to external stimuli. For this human reaction is determined by ideas, a phenomenon the description of which is beyond the reach of physics, chemistry, and physiology. There is no explanation in terms of the natural sciences of what causes hosts of people to remain faithful to the religious creed in which they were brought up, and others to change their faith, why people join or desert political parties, why there are different schools of philosophy and different opinions concerning a multiplicity of problems. Number 5. The Fallacies of Positivism Consistently aiming at an improvement of the conditions under which men have to live, the nations of Western and Central Europe and their scions, settled in overseas territories, have succeeded in developing what is called, and more often smeared as, Western bourgeois civilization. Its foundation is the economic system of capitalism, the political corollary of which is representative government and freedom of thought and interpersonal communication. Although continually sabotaged by the folly and the malice of the masses and the ideological remnants of the pre-capitalistic methods of thinking and acting, free enterprise has radically changed the fate of men. It has reduced mortality rates and prolonged the average length of life, thus multiplying population figures. It has, in an unprecedented way, raised the standard of living of the average man in those nations that did not too severely impede the acquisitive spirit of enterprising individuals. All people, however fanatical they may be in their zeal to disparage and to fight capitalism, implicitly pay homage to it by passionately clamoring for the products it turns out. The wealth capitalism has brought to mankind is not an achievement of a mythical force called progress. Neither is it an achievement of the natural sciences and of the application of their teachings for the perfection of technology and therapeutics. No technological and therapeutical improvements can be practically utilized if the material means for its utilization have not been previously made available by saving and capital accumulation. The reason why not everything about the production and the use of which technology provides information can be made accessible to everybody is the insufficiency of the supply of capital accumulated. What transformed the stagnant conditions of the good old days into the activism of capitalism was not changes in the natural sciences and in technology, but the adoption of the free enterprise principle. The great ideological movement that started with the Renaissance, continued in the Enlightenment, and in the 19th century culminated in liberalism, produced both capitalism, the free market economy, and its political corollary, or as the Marxians have to say, its political superstructure, representative government and the individual civic rights, freedom of conscience, of thought, of speech, and of all other methods of communication. It was in the climate created by this capitalistic system of individualism that all the modern intellectual achievements thrived. Never before had mankind lived under conditions like those of the second part of the 19th century, when, in the civilized countries, the most momentous problems of philosophy, religion, and science could be freely discussed without any fear of reprisals on the part of the powers that be. It was an age of productive and salutary dissent. A counter-movement evolved, but not from a regeneration of the discredited sinister forces that in the past had made for conformity. It sprouted from the authoritarian and dictatorial complex deeply inwrought in the souls of the many who were benefited by the fruits of freedom and individualism without having contributed anything to their growing and ripening. The masses do not like those who surpass them in any regard. The average man envies and hates those who are different. 
What pushes the masses into the camp of socialism is, even more than the illusion that socialism will make them richer, the expectation that it will curb all those who are better than they themselves are. The characteristic feature of all utopian plans from that of Plato down to that of Marx is the rigid petrification of all human conditions. Once the perfect state of social affairs is attained, no further changes ought to be tolerated. There will no longer be any room left for innovators and reformers. In the intellectual sphere, the advocacy of this intolerant tyranny is represented by positivism. Its champion, August Comte, did not contribute anything to the advancement of knowledge. He merely drafted the scheme of a social order, under which, in the name of progress, science and humanity, any deviation from his own ideas was to be prohibited. The intellectual heirs of Comte are the contemporary positivists. Like Comte himself, these advocates of unified science, of panphysicalism, of logical or empirical positivism, and of scientific philosophy, did not themselves contribute to the advancement of the natural sciences. The future historians of physics, chemistry, biology, and physiology will not have to mention their names and their work. All that unified science brought forward was to recommend the proscription of the methods applied by the sciences of human action and their replacement by the methods of the experimental natural sciences. It is not remarkable for that which it contributed, but only for that which it wants to see prohibited. Its protagonists are the champions of intolerance and of a narrow-minded dogmatism. Historians have to understand the political, economic, and intellectual conditions that brought about positivism old and new. But the specific historical understanding of the milieu out of which definite ideas developed can neither justify nor reject the teachings of any school of thought. It is the task of epistemology to unmask the fallacies of positivism and to refute them. Number 1. The Misinterpretation of the Universe The way in which the philosophy of logical positivism depicts the universe is defective. It comprehends only what can be recognized by the experimental methods of the natural sciences. It ignores the human mind as well as human action. It is usual to justify this procedure by pointing out that man is only a tiny speck in the infinite vastness of the universe, and that the whole history of mankind is but a fleeting episode in the endless flux of eternity. Yet the importance and significance of a phenomenon defies such a merely quantitative appraisal. Man's place in that part of the universe about which we can learn something is certainly modest only. But as far as we can see, the fundamental fact about the universe is that it is divided into two parts, which, employing terms suggested by some philosophers, but without their metaphysical connotation, we may call res extensa, the hard facts of the external world, and res cogitans, man's power to think. We do not know how the mutual relations of these two spheres may appear in the vista of a superhuman intelligence. For man, their distinction is peremptory. Perhaps it is only the inadequacy of our mental powers that prevents us from recognizing the substantial homogeneousness of what appears to us as mind and as matter. But certainly, no palaver about unified science can convert the metaphysical character of monism into an unassailable theorem of experiential knowledge. The human mind cannot help distinguishing two realms of reality, its own sphere and that of external events. And it must not relegate the manifestations of the mind to an inferior rank, as it is only the mind that enables man to cognize and to produce a mental representation of what it is. Positivism's worldview distorts the fundamental experience of mankind. 
for which the power to perceive, to think, and to act is an ultimate fact clearly distinguishable from all that happens without the interference of purposive human action. It is vain to talk about experience without reference to the factor that enables man to have experience. Number two, the misinterpretation of the human condition. As all brands of positivism see it, the eminent role man plays on the earth is the effect of his progress in the cognition of the interconnectedness of natural, i.e. not specifically mental and volitional, phenomena and its utilization for technological and therapeutical behavior. Modern industrial civilization, the spectacular affluence it has produced, and the unprecedented increase in population figures it has made possible are the fruits of the progressive advancement of the experimental natural sciences. The main factor in improving the lot of mankind is science, i.e., in the positivistic terminology, the natural sciences. In the context of this philosophy, society appears as a gigantic factory and all social problems as technological problems to be solved by social engineering. What, for example, is lacking to the so-called underdeveloped countries is, in the light of this doctrine, the know-how, sufficient familiarity with scientific technology. It is hardly possible to misinterpret mankind's history more thoroughly. The fundamental fact that enabled man to elevate his species above the level of the beasts and the horrors of biological competition was the discovery of the principle of the higher productivity of cooperation under a system of the division of labor, that great cosmic principle of becoming. What improved and still improves the fecundity of human efforts is the progressive accumulation of capital goods, without which no technological innovation could ever be practically utilized. No technological computation and calculation would be possible in an environment that would not employ a generally used medium of exchange, money. Modern industrialization, the practical employment of the discoveries of the natural sciences, is intellectually conditioned by the operation of a market economy in which prices, in terms of money, for the factors of production are established, and thus the opportunity is given to the engineer to contrast the costs and the proceeds to be expected from alternative projects. The quantification of physics and chemistry would be useless for technological planning if there were no economic calculation. What is lacking to the underdeveloped nations is not knowledge, but capital. The popularity and the prestige that the experimental methods of the natural sciences enjoy in our age and the dedication of ample funds for the conduct of laboratory research are attendant phenomena of capitalism's progressive accumulation of capital. What transformed the world of horse-drawn carriages, sailing ships and windmills step-by-step into a world of airplanes and electronics was the laissez-faire principle of Manchesterism. Large savings, continuously in search of the most profitable investment opportunities, are providing the resources needed for rendering the accomplishments of the physicists and chemists utilizable for the improvement of business activities. What is called economic progress is the joint effort of the activities of the three progressive groups, or classes, of the savers, the scientist inventors, and the entrepreneurs, operating in a market economy as far as it is not sabotaged by the endeavors of the non-progressive majority of the routinists and the public policies supported by them. What begot all those technological and therapeutical achievements that characterize our age was not science, but the social and political system of capitalism. Only in the climate of huge capital accumulation could experimentalism develop from a pastime of geniuses like Archimedes and Leonardo da Vinci into a well-organized, systematic pursuit of knowledge. 
The much decried acquisitiveness of the promoters and speculators was intent upon applying the accomplishments of scientific research to the improvement of the masses' standard of living. In the ideological environment of our age, which, driven by a fanatical hatred of the bourgeois, is anxious to substitute the service principle for the profit principle, technological innovation is more and more directed toward the fabrication of efficient instruments of war and destruction. The research activities of the experimental natural sciences are in themselves neutral with regard to any philosophical and political issue. But they can thrive and become beneficial for mankind only where there prevails a social philosophy of individualism and freedom. In stressing the fact that the natural sciences owe all their achievements to experience, positivism merely repeated a truism which, since the demise of natural philosophy, nobody any longer disputed. In disparaging the methods of the sciences of human action, it paved the way for the forces that are sapping the foundations of Western civilization. Chapter 21 Appreciations Economic Freedom and Interventionism Man, Economy, and State Most of what goes today under the label of the social sciences is poorly disguised apologetics for the policies of governments. What the philosopher George Santayana, 1863-1952, once said about a teacher of philosophy of the then Royal Prussian University of Berlin, that it seemed to this man that a professor's business was to trudge along a government towpath with a legal cargo, is today everywhere true for the majority of those appointed to teach economics. As these doctors see it, all the evils that plague mankind are caused by the acquisitiveness of greedy exploiters, speculators, and monopolists, who are supreme in the conduct of affairs in the market economy. The foremost task of good government is to curb these scoundrels by suppressing their economic freedom and subjecting all affairs to the decisions of the central authority. Full government control of everybody's activities, whether called planning, socialism, communism, or any other name, is praised as the panacea. To make these ideas plausible, one had to proscribe as orthodox, classical, neoclassical, and reactionary all that economics had brought forward before the emergence of the New Deal, the Fair Deal, and the New Frontier. Any acquaintance with pre-Keynesian economics is considered as rather unsuitable and unseemly for an up-to-date economist. It could easily raise in his mind some critical thoughts. It could encourage him to reflect instead of meekly endorsing the empty slogans of governments and powerful pressure groups. There is, in fact, in the writings and teachings of those who nowadays call themselves economists, no longer any comprehension of the operation of the economic system as such. Their books and articles do not describe, analyze, or explain the economic phenomena. They do not pay attention to the interdependence and mutuality of the various individuals' and groups' activities. In their view, there exist different economic spheres that have to be treated by and large as isolated domains. They dissolve economics into a number of special fields, such as economics of labor, agriculture, insurance, foreign trade, domestic trade, and so on. These books and articles deal with the height of wage rates, for example, as if it were possible to treat the subject independently of the problems of commodity prices, interest, profit, and loss, and all the other issues of economics. They assemble without any idea for what purpose they are doing it, a vast array of statistical and other historical data about the recent past, which they choose to style the present. They entirely fail to comprehend the interconnectedness and mutual determination of the actions of the various individuals whose behavior results in the emergence of the market economy. 
The economic writings of the last decades provide a pitiful story of progressing deterioration and degradation. Even a comparison of the recent publications of many older authors with their previous writings shows an advancing decline. The few, very few good contributions that came out in our age were smeared as old-fashioned and reactionary by the government economists, boycotted by the universities, the academic magazines, and the newspapers, and ignored by the public. Let us hope that the fate of Murray N. Rothbard's book *Man, Economy, and State*, Princeton, D. Van Nostra, 1962, will be different. Dr. Rothbard is already well known as the author of several excellent monographs. Now, as the result of many years of sagacious and discerning meditation, he joins the ranks of eminent economists by publishing a voluminous work, a systematic treatise on economics. The main virtue of this book is that it is a comprehensive and methodical analysis of all activities commonly called economic. It looks upon these activities as human action, i.e., as conscious striving after chosen ends by resorting to appropriate means. This cognition exposes the fateful effort of the mathematical treatment of economic problems. The mathematical economist attempts to ignore the difference between physical phenomena on the one hand, the emergence and consummation of which man is unable to see the operation of any final causes, and which can be studied scientifically only because there prevails a perceptible regularity in their concatenation and succession, and praxeological phenomena on the other hand. That lack such a regularity, but are conceivable to the human mind as the outcomes of purposeful aiming at definite ends chosen. Mathematical equations, says Rothbard, are appropriate and useful where there are constant quantitative relations among unmotivated variables. They are inappropriate in the field of conscious behavior. In a few brilliant lines, he demolishes the main device of mathematical economists, vis-a-vis -vis the fallacious idea of substituting the concepts of mutual determination and equilibrium for the allegedly outdated concept of cause and effect. And he shows that the concepts of equilibrium and the evenly rotating economy do not refer to reality. Although indispensable for any economic inquiry, they are merely auxiliary mental tools to aid us in the analysis of real action. The equations of physics describes a process through time, while those of economics do not describe a process at all, but merely the final equilibrium point, a hypothetical situation that is outside of time and will never be reached in reality. Furthermore, they cannot say anything about the path by which the economy moves in the direction of the final equilibrium position, as there are no constant relations between any of the elements which the science of action studies. There is no measurement possible. And all numerical data available have merely an historical character; they belong to economic history and not to economics as such. The positivist slogan "Science is measurement" in no way refers to the sciences of human action. The claims of econometrics are vain. In every chapter of his treatise, Dr. Rothbard, adopting the best of the teachings of his predecessors and adding to them highly important observations, not only develops the correct theory. But is no less anxious to refute all objections ever raised against these doctrines. He exposes the fallacies and contradictions of the popular interpretation of economic affairs. Thus, for instance, in dealing with the problem of unemployment, he points out, in the whole modern and Keynesian discussion of the subject, the missing link is precisely the wage rate. It is meaningless to talk of unemployment or employment without reference to a wage rate. Whatever supply of labor services brought to market can be sold, but only if wages are set at whatever rate will clear the market. 
If a man wishes to be employed, he will be, provided the wage rate is adjusted according to what Rothbard calls his discounted marginal value product, i.e. the present height of the value which the consumers, at the time of the final sale of the product, will ascribe to his contribution to its production. Whenever the job seeker insists on a higher wage, he will remain unemployed. If people refuse to be employed except at places, in occupations, or at wage rates they would like, then they are likely to be choosing unemployment for substantial periods. The full import of this state of affairs becomes manifest if one gives attention to the fact that, under present conditions, those offering their services on the labor market themselves represent the immense majority of the consumers whose buying or abstention from buying ultimately determines the height of wage rates. Less successful than his investigations in the fields of general praxeology and economics are the author's occasional observations concerning the philosophy of law and some problems of the penal code. But disagreement with his opinions concerning these matters cannot prevent me from qualifying Rothbard's work as an epical contribution to the general science of human action, praxeology, and its practically most important and up to now best elaborated part, economics. Henceforth, all essential studies in these branches of knowledge will have to take full account of the theories and criticisms expounded by Dr. Rothbard. The publication of a standard book on economics raises again an important question, vis-a-vis -vis for whom are essays of this consequence written? Only for specialists, the students of economics, or for all of the people? To answer this question, we have to keep in mind that the citizens in their capacity as voters are called upon to determine ultimately all issues of economic policies. The fact that the masses are ignorant of physics and do not know anything substantial about electricity does not obstruct the endeavors of experts who utilize the teachings of science for the satisfaction of the wants of the consumers. From various points of view, one may deplore the intellectual insufficiency and indolence of the multitude. But their ignorance regarding the achievements of the natural sciences does not endanger our spiritual and material welfare. It is quite different in the field of economics. The fact that the majority of our contemporaries, the masses of semi-barbarians led by self-styled intellectuals, entirely ignore everything that economics has brought forward, is the main political problem of our age. There is no use in deceiving ourselves. American public opinion rejects the market economy, the capitalistic free enterprise system that provided the nation with the highest standard of living ever attained. Full government control of all activities of the individual is virtually the goal of both national parties. The individual is to be deprived of his moral, political, and economic responsibility and autonomy, and to be converted into a pawn in the schemes of a supreme authority aiming at a national purpose. His affluence is to be cut down for the benefit of what is called the public sector, i.e. the machine operated by the party in power. Hosts of authors, writers, and professors are busy denouncing alleged shortcomings of capitalism and exalting the virtues of planning. Full of quasi-religious ardor, the immense majority is advocating measures that step-by-step -step lead to the methods of administration practiced in Moscow and in Peking. If we want to avoid the destruction of Western civilization and the relapse into primitive wretchedness, we must change the mentality of our fellow citizens. We must make them realize what they owe to the much vilified economic freedom, the system of free enterprise and capitalism. The intellectuals and those who call themselves educated must use their superior cognitive faculties and power of reasoning 
for the refutation of erroneous ideas about social, political, and economic problems, and for the dissemination of a correct grasp of the operation of the market economy. They must start by familiarizing themselves with all the issues involved in order to teach those who are blinded by ignorance and emotions. They must learn in order to acquire the ability to enlighten the misguided many. It is a fateful error on the part of our most valuable contemporaries to believe that economics can be left to specialists in the same way in which various fields of technology can be safely left to those who have chosen to make any one of them their vocation. The issues of society's economic organization are every citizen's business. To master them to the best of one's ability is the duty of everyone. Now, such a book as Man, Economy, and State offers to every intelligent man an opportunity to obtain reliable information concerning the great controversies and conflicts of our age. It is certainly not easy reading and asks for the utmost exertion of one's attention. But there are no shortcuts to wisdom. The Economist Eugene von Bombawerk on the occasion of the 10th anniversary of his death. Eugene von Bombawerk will remain unforgotten for all those who have known him. The students who enjoyed the fortune of attending his seminars will never lose what the acquaintance with such a strong mind has given them. For the politicians who have met him as a statesman, the integrity of his ethos and his altruistic commitment to duty will continue to be exemplary. And no citizen of this country shall forget the Minister of Finance, the last Austrian Minister of Finance, who, in spite of all obstacles, earnestly aimed at balancing the budget and preventing the upcoming financial catastrophe. But even when the lives of all those who had known him personally have come to an end, his scientific oeuvre shall live on and bear fruit. In his scientific work, Bombawerk focused from the outset on the central problem of theoretical economics, the interest problem. At the age of 25, in the spring of 1876, he gave a lecture on the interest on capital in the Nice Seminar in Heidelberg, which already contained the main feature of what would later become his famous agio theory of interest. Before he could, however, publish his work, there were difficult preliminary questions to answer. It was to these questions that he dedicated his work. Always keeping the ultimate object in mind, he published Rechte und Verhaltenes vom Standpunkt der Volkswirtschaftlichen Gutleher in 1881, Die und Kritik der Kapitalismentheorien in 1884, Grundzug der Theorie der Wirtschaftlichen Guterbetes in 1886, and finally his Positive Theorie des Kapitals in 1889. His work was thereby brought to completion. As senior legal secretary and head of division in the Ministry of Finance, as KUK Minister of Finance and President of the Senate of the Higher Administrative Court, he had very little leisure in the following years to perform any scientific work. Only since 1904, when he retired from office for the third and last time, could he devote himself again undisturbed to his research. A series of excellent works is the fruit of the tireless effort during the last decade that he was allowed to live. He died on August 27, in 1914, when the Austrian armies were about to fight the first battles of the Great War in Poland and Eastern Galicia. Bombawerk's scientific work has quickly found the recognition it richly deserves. His magnum opus, The Positive Theory of Capital, was translated into English by William Smart as early as 1890. Shortly afterward, a French edition followed. In England, the United States, France, Italy, the Netherlands, Sweden, and Denmark his doctrine became the starting point for further in-depth analyses and studies. 
Sure enough, in Germany, an understanding of Baum's achievements was long missing. The prevailing doctrine at the universities ignored him. It took decades until the accomplishments of the Austrian school were recognized in the Reich. Today, however, it is considered a grave mischief that only Baum Bauwerk's magnum opus, which is already in its fourth German-language edition, is easily accessible. His shorter writings, which are indispensable for any friend of economic inquiry, are rather difficult to access. It is therefore a thankworthy enterprise to republish them in a collected edition. A student of Baum Bauwerk, well known for several scientific works, has addressed himself to this task. The well-endowed volume, which is graced with a felicitous portrait of Baum, contains the above-mentioned work, Recte und Verhaltenisse, along with a tract on general theory and methodology, essays on the theory of value, and finally an essay that has been published on January 6, 8, and 9, 1924, in the Neue Freie Press, entitled Unser Passive Handelsbilanz. It starts with a short biographical introduction by the editor, Dr. Franz X. Weiss. The essays on capital and interest, which are not contained in this collection, shall be republished in a separate volume. To praise the tremendous value of the theoretical works collected in this volume would be like bringing owls to Athens. For the experts and numerous intellectuals who are concerned with economic questions, this would hardly constitute anything new. Let us, however, quote some sentences from the above-mentioned essay on the passive balance of trade, merely to emphasize the sharpness with which Baum has early on pointed to the fundamental problem underlying our state finances. It reads, Thrift is never popular. If parliaments have historically been the guardians of thrift, they now have turned much rather into its sworn enemies. Nowadays, the political and national parties, maybe not exclusively in our own country, but certainly also here, tend to develop a certain covetousness, almost considered to be dutiful, for all kinds of benefits for their own electorate at the expense of the general public. And when the political situation is relatively convenient, that is to say, if it is relatively inconvenient for the government, one's ends can be achieved through political pressure. Our population suffers from economical megalomania. This is, among other things, shown by the investments from the public purse. One is often mistaken when using the famous slogan of indirect productivity of public spending, even if at times the indirect advantages of public enterprises, which are unprofitable by themselves, may exceed the amount that has to be paid from public funds for their passive operations. The blind eulogists of frivolous investment policies will feel the mistakes of their approach only when, like these days, the capital stock has been exhausted by the public sector over many years to a degree that capital is lacking for the most important and vital private businesses in all spheres. Only when many enterprises begin to stumble, many projects have to remain undone, and all suffer severely from the increased rate of interest. These were the last words that Baumbauwerk has addressed to Austria's financial authorities. Today, they will be valued more highly than at the time when they were first published in this newspaper. The Mises Institute hopes you have enjoyed this audiobook. For a world of free market literature, media, and discussion, visit Mises.org.